This is Audible. Listening Library presents Aragon Inheritance, Book One, by Christopher Paolini. Read for you by Gerard Doyle. Prologue Shade of Fear. Wind howled through the night, carrying a scent that would change the world. A tall shade lifted his head and sniffed the air. He looked human, except for his crimson hair and maroon eyes. He blinked in surprise. The message had been correct. They were here. Or was it a trap? He weighed the odds, then said icily, Spread out. Hide behind trees and bushes. Stop whoever is coming, or die. Around him shuffled twelve urgles with short swords and round iron shields painted with black symbols. They resembled men with bowed legs and thick brutish arms made for crushing. A pair of twisted horns grew above their small ears. The monsters hurried into the brush, grunting as they hid. Soon the rustling quieted, and the forest was silent again. The shade peered around a thick tree and looked up the trail. It was too dark for any human to see, but for him the faint moonlight was like sunshine streaming between the trees. Every detail was clear and sharp to his searching gaze. He remained unnaturally quiet, a long pale sword in his hand. A wire-thin scratch curved down the blade. The weapon was thin enough to slip between a pair of ribs, yet stout enough to hack through the hardest armour. The Urgals could not see as well as the shade. They groped like blind beggars fumbling with their weapons. An owl screeched, cutting through the silence. No one relaxed until the bird flew past. Then the monsters shivered in the cold night. One snapped a twig with his heavy boot. The shade hissed in anger, and the urgles shrank back motionless. He suppressed his distaste. They smelled like fetid meat, and turned away. They were tools, nothing more. The shade forced back his impatience as the minutes became hours. The scent must have wafted far ahead of its owners. He did not let the urgles get up or warm themselves. He denied himself those luxuries too, and stayed behind the tree watching the trail. Another gust of wind rushed through the forest. The smell was stronger this time. Excited, he lifted a thin lip in a snarl. Get ready, he whispered, his whole body vibrating. The tip of his sword moved in small circles. It had taken many plots and much pain to bring himself to this moment. It would not do to lose control now. Eyes brightened under the urgle's thick brows, and the creatures gripped their weapons tighter. Ahead of them, the shade heard a clink as something hard struck a loose stone. Faint smudges emerged from the darkness and advanced down the trail. Three white horses with riders cantered toward the ambush, their heads held high and proud, their coats rippling in the moonlight like liquid silver. On the first horse was an elf, with pointed ears and elegantly slanted eyebrows. His build was slim but strong, like a rapier. A powerful bow was slung on his back. A sword pressed against his side opposite a quiver of arrows fletched with swan feathers. The last rider had the same fair face and angled features as the other. He carried a long spear in his right hand and a white dagger at his belt. A helm of extraordinary craftsmanship, wrought with amber and gold, rested on his head. Between these two rode a raven-haired elven lady, who surveyed her surroundings with poise. Framed by long black locks, her deep eyes shone with a driving force. Her clothes were unadorned, yet her beauty was undiminished. 
At her side was a sword, and on her back a long bow with a quiver. She carried in her lap a pouch that she frequently looked at, as if to reassure herself that it was still there. One of the elves spoke quietly, but the shade could not hear what was said. The lady answered with obvious authority, and her guards switched places. The one wearing the helm took the lead, shifting his spear to a readier grip. They passed the Shade's hiding place and the first few Urgles without suspicion. The Shade was already savouring his victory, when the wind changed direction and swept toward the elves, heavy with the Urgle's stench. The horses snorted with alarm and tossed their heads. The riders stiffened, eyes flashing from side to side, then wheeled their mounts around and galloped away. The lady's horse surged forward, leaving her guards far behind. Forsaking their hiding, the Urgles stood and released a stream of black arrows. The shade jumped out from behind the tree, raised his right hand, and shouted, Gargela! A red bolt flashed from his palm toward the elven lady, illuminating the trees with a bloody light. It struck her steed, and the horse toppled with a high-pitched squeal, ploughing into the ground chest first. She leapt off the animal with inhuman speed, landed lightly, then glanced back for her guards. The Urgle's deadly arrows quickly brought down the two elves. They fell from the noble horses, blood pooling in the dirt. As the Urgles rushed to the slain elves, the Shade screamed, After her! She is the one I want! The monsters grunted and rushed down the trail. Her cry tore from the elf's lips as she saw her dead companions. She took a step toward them, then cursed her enemies and bounded into the forest. While the urgles crashed through the trees, the shade climbed a piece of granite that jutted above them. From his perch he could see all of the surrounding forest. He raised his hand and uttered, Boetk Istalri, and a quarter-mile section of the forest exploded into flames. Grimly, he burned one section after another until there was a ring of fire a half-league across around the ambush site. The flames looked like a molten crown resting on the forest. Satisfied, he watched the ring carefully, in case it should falter. The band of fire thickened, contracting the area the Urgles had to search. Suddenly the Shade heard shouts and a coarse scream. Through the trees he saw three of his charges fall in a pile, mortally wounded. He caught a glimpse of the elf running from the remaining Urgles. She fled toward the craggy piece of granite at a tremendous speed. The Shade examined the ground twenty feet below, then jumped and landed nimbly in front of her. She skidded around and sped back to the trail. Black Urgle blood dripped from her sword, staining the pouch in her hand. The horned monsters came out of the forest and hemmed her in, blocking the only escape routes. Her head whipped around as she tried to find a way out. Seeing none, she drew herself up with regal disdain. The shade approached her with a raised hand, allowing himself to enjoy her helplessness. Get her. As the Urgles surged forward, the elf pulled open the pouch, reached into it, and then let it drop to the ground. In her hands was a large sapphire stone that reflected the angry light of the fires. She raised it over her head, lips forming frantic words. Desperate, the shade barked, Gargela! A ball of red flame sprang from his hand and flew toward the elf, fast as an arrow, but he was too late. A flash of emerald light briefly illuminated the forest, and the stone vanished. Then the red fire smote her, and she collapsed. The shade howled in rage and stalked forward, flinging his sword at a tree. 
It passed halfway through the trunk, where it stuck quivering. He shot nine bolts of energy from his palm, which killed the Urgles instantly, then ripped his sword free and strode to the elf. Prophecies of revenge, spoken in a wretched language only he knew, rolled from his tongue. He clenched his thin hands and glared at the sky. The cold stars stared back, unwinking, otherworldly watchers. Disgust curled his lip before he turned back to the unconscious elf. Her beauty, which would have entranced any mortal man, held no charm for him. He confirmed that the stone was gone, then retrieved his horse from its hiding place among the trees. After tying the elf onto the saddle, he mounted the charger and made his way out of the woods. He quenched the fires in his path, but left the rest to burn. Discovery Aragon knelt in a bed of trampled reed grass and scanned the tracks with a practiced eye. The prince told him that the deer had been in the meadow only a half hour before. Soon they would bed down. His target, a small doe with a pronounced limp in her left forefoot, was still with the herd. He was amazed she had made it so far without a wolf or bear catching her. The sky was clear and dark, and a slight breeze stirred the air. A silvery cloud drifted over the mountains that surrounded him, its edges glowing with ruddy light cast from the harvest moon cradled between two peaks. Streams flowed down the mountains from stolid glaciers and glistening snowpacks. A brooding mist crept along the valley's floor, almost thick enough to obscure his feet. Aragon was fifteen, less than a year from manhood. Dark eyebrows rested above his intense brown eyes. His clothes were worn from work. A hunting knife with a bone handle was sheathed at his belt, and a buckskin tube protected his U-bow from the mist. He carried a wood-frame pack. The deer had led him deep into the spine, a range of untamed mountains that extended up and down the land of Alagasia. Strange tales and men often came from those mountains, usually boding ill. Despite that, Aragon did not fear the spine. He was the only hunter near Carvajal who dared track game deep into its craggy recesses. It was the third night of the hunt, and his food was half gone. If he did not fell the doe, he would be forced to return home empty-handed. His family needed the meat for the rapidly approaching winter and could not afford to buy it in Carvajal. Aragon stood with quiet assurance in the dusky moonlight, then strode into the forest toward a glen where he was sure the deer would rest. The trees blocked the sky from view and cast feathery shadows on the ground. He looked at the tracks only occasionally. He knew the way. At the glen, he strung his bow with a sure touch, then drew three arrows and knocked one, holding the others in his left hand. The moonlight revealed twenty or so motionless lumps where the deer lay in the grass. The doe he wanted was at the edge of the herd, her left foreleg stretched out awkwardly. Aragon slowly crept closer, keeping the bow ready. All his work of the past three days had led to this moment. He took a last, steadying breath, and an explosion shattered the night. The herd bolted. Aragon lunged forward, racing through the grass as a fiery wind surged past his cheek. He slid to a stop and loosed an arrow at the bounding doe. It missed by a finger's breadth and hissed into darkness. He cursed and spun around, instinctively knocking another arrow. Behind him, where the deer had been, smouldered a large circle of grass and trees. Many of the pines stood bare of their needles. The grass outside the charring was flattened. A wisp of smoke curled in the air, carrying a burnt smell. 
In the centre of the blast radius lay a polished blue stone. Mist snaked across the scorched area and swirled insubstantial tendrils over the stone. Aragon watched for danger for several long minutes, but the only thing that moved was the mist. Cautiously, he released the tension from his bow and moved forward. Moonlight cast him in pale shadow as he stopped before the stone. He nudged it with an arrow, then jumped back. Nothing happened, so he warily picked it up. Nature had never polished a stone as smooth as this one. Its flawless surface was dark blue, except for thin veins of white that spiderwebbed across it. The stone was cool and frictionless under his fingers, like hardened silk. Oval and about a foot long, it weighed several pounds, though it felt lighter than it should have. Aragon found the stone both beautiful and frightening. Where did it come from? Does it have a purpose? Then a more disturbing thought came to him. Was it sent here by accident, or am I meant to have it? If he had learned anything from the old stories, it was to treat magic and those who used it with great caution. But what should I do with the stone? It would be tiresome to carry, and there was a chance it was dangerous. It might be better to leave it behind. A flicker of indecision ran through him, and he almost dropped it, but something stayed his hand. At the very least, it might pay for some food, he decided with a shrug, tucking the stone into his pack. The glen was too exposed to make a safe camp, so he slipped back into the forest and spread his bedroll beneath the upturned roots of a fallen tree. After a cold dinner of bread and cheese, he wrapped himself in blankets and fell asleep, pondering what had occurred. Palankar Valley the sun rose the next morning with a glorious conflagration of pink and yellow. The air was fresh, sweet, and very cold. Ice edged the streams, and small pools were completely frozen over. After a breakfast of porridge, Aragon returned to the glen and examined the charred area. The morning light revealed no new details, so he started for home. The rough game trail was faintly worn and in places non-existent. Because it had been forged by animals, it often backtracked and took long detours. Yet for all its flaws, it was still the fastest way out of the mountains. The spine was one of the only places that King Galbatorix could not call his own. Stories were still told about how half his army disappeared after marching into its ancient forest. A cloud of misfortune and bad luck seemed to hang over it. Though the trees grew tall and the sky shone brightly, Few people could stay in the spine for long without suffering an accident. Aragon was one of those few, not through any particular gift, it seemed to him, but because of persistent vigilance and sharp reflexes. He had hiked in the mountains for years, yet he was still wary of them. Every time he thought they had surrendered their secrets, something happened to upset his understanding of them, like the stone's appearance. He kept up a brisk pace, and the leagues steadily disappeared. In late evening, he arrived at the edge of a precipitous ravine. The Enora River rushed by far below, heading to Palankar Valley. Gorged with hundreds of tiny streams, the river was a brute force, battling against the rocks and boulders that barred its way. A low rumble filled the air. He camped in a thicket near the ravine and watched the moonrise before going to bed. It grew colder over the next day and a half. Aragon travelled quickly and saw little of the wary wildlife. 
A bit past noon, he heard the Igualda Falls blanketing everything with the dull sound of a thousand splashes. The trail led him onto a moist slate outcropping, which the river sped past, flinging itself into empty air and down mossy cliffs. Before him lay Palancar Valley, exposed like an unrolled map. The base of the Igualda Falls, more than a half mile below, was the northernmost point of the valley. A little ways from the falls was Carvajal, a cluster of brown buildings. White smoke rose from the chimneys, defiant of the wilderness around it. At this height, farms were small square patches no bigger than the end of his finger. The land around them was tan or sandy, where dead grass swayed in the wind. The Honora River wound from the falls toward Palancar's southern end, reflecting great strips of sunlight. Far in the distance, it flowed past the village Therensford and the lonely mountain Utgart. Beyond that, he knew only that it turned north and ran to the sea. After a pause, Aragon left the outcropping and started down the trail, grimacing at the descent. When he arrived at the bottom, soft dusk was creeping over everything, blurring colours and shapes into grey masses. Carvajal's lights shimmered nearby in the twilight. The houses cast long shadows. Aside from Therinsford, Carvajal was the only village in Palancar Valley. The settlement was secluded and surrounded by harsh, beautiful land. Few travelled here, except merchants and trappers. The village was composed of stout log buildings with low roofs, some thatched, others shingled. Smoke billowed from the chimneys, giving the air a woody smell. The buildings had wide porches where people gathered to talk and conduct business. Occasionally, a window brightened as a candle or lamp was lit. Aragon heard men talking loudly in the evening air, while wives scurried to fetch their husbands, scolding them for being late. Aragon wove his way between the houses to the butcher's shop, a broad, thick-beamed building. Overhead, the chimney belched black smoke. He pushed the door open. The spacious room was warm and well lit by a fire snapping in a stone fireplace. A bare counter stretched across the far side of the room. The floor was strewn with loose straw. Everything was scrupulously clean, as if the owner spent his leisure time digging in obscure crannies for minuscule pieces of filth. Behind the counter stood the butcher, Sloane. A small man, he wore a cotton shirt and a long, blood-stained smock. An impressive array of knives swung from his belt. He had a sallow, pock-marked face, and his black eyes were suspicious. He polished the counter with a ragged cloth. Sloane's mouth twisted as Aragon entered. Well, the mighty hunter joins the rest of us mortals. How many did you bag this time? None, was Aragon's curt reply. He had never liked Sloane. The butcher always treated him with disdain, as if he was something unclean. A widower, Sloane seemed to care for only one person, his daughter Katrina, on whom he doted. I'm amazed, said Sloane, with affected astonishment. He turned his back on Aragon to scrape something off the wall. And that's your reason for coming here? Yes, admitted Aragon uncomfortably. If that's the case, let's see your money. Sloane tapped his fingers when Aragon shifted his feet and remained silent. Come on, either you have it or you don't. Which is it? I don't really have any money, but I do... What, no money? The butcher cut him off sharply. And you expect to buy meat? Are the other merchants giving away their wares? Should I just hand you the goods without charge?
Besides, he said abruptly, it's late. Come back tomorrow with money. I'm closed for the day. Aragon glared at him. I can't wait until tomorrow, Sloane. It'll be worth your while, though. I found something to pay you with. He pulled out the stone with a flourish and set it gently on the scarred counter, where it gleamed with light from the dancing flames. Stole it is more likely, muttered Sloane, leaning forward with an interested expression. Ignoring the comment, Aragon asked, Will this be enough? Sloane picked up the stone and gauged its weight speculatively. He ran his hands over its smoothness and inspected the white veins. With a calculating look, he set it down. It's pretty, but how much is it worth? I don't know, admitted Aragon. But no one would have gone to the trouble of shaping it unless it had some value. Obviously, said Sloane with exaggerated patience. But how much value? Since you don't know, I suggest you find a trader who does, or take my offer of three crowns. That's a miser's bargain. It must be worth at least ten times that, protested Aragon. Three crowns would not even buy enough meat to last a week. Sloane shrugged. If you don't like my offer, wait until the traders arrive. Either way, I'm tired of this conversation. The traders were a nomadic group of merchants and entertainers who visited Carver Hall every spring and winter. They bought whatever excess the villagers and local farmers had managed to grow or make and sold what they needed to live through another year. Seeds, animals, fabric, and supplies like salt and sugar. But Aragon did not want to wait until they arrived. It could be a while, and his family needed the meat now. Fine, I accept, he snapped. Good, I'll get you the meat. Not that it matters, but where did you find this? Two nights ago in the spine. Get out, demanded Sloane, pushing the stone away. He stomped furiously to the end of the counter and started scrubbing old bloodstains off a knife. Why? asked Aragon. He drew the stone closer, as if to protect it from Sloane's wrath. I won't deal with anything you bring back from those damn mountains. Take your sorcerer's stone elsewhere. Sloane's hand suddenly slipped and he cut a finger on the knife, but he seemed not to notice. He continued to scrub, staining the blade with fresh blood. You refuse to sell to me? Yes, unless you pay with coins, Sloane growled and hefted the knife, sidling away. Go before I make you. The door behind them slammed open. Aragon whirled around, ready for more trouble. In stomped Horst, a hulking man. Sloane's daughter, Katrina, a tall girl of sixteen, trailed behind him with a determined expression. Aragon was surprised to see her. She usually absented herself from any arguments involving her father. Sloane glanced at them warily, then started to accuse Aragon. He won't... Quiet, announced Horst in a rumbling voice, cracking his knuckles at the same time. He was Carver Hull Smith, as his thick neck and scarred leather apron attested. His powerful arms were bare to the elbow. A great expanse of hairy, muscular chest was visible through the top of his shirt. A black beard, carelessly trimmed, roiled and knotted like his jaw muscles. Sloane, what have you done now? Nothing. He gave Aragon a murderous gaze, then spat. This boy came in here and started badgering me. 
I asked him to leave, but he won't budge. I even threatened him, and he still ignored me. Sloane seemed to shrink as he looked at Horst. Is this true? demanded the smith. No, replied Aragon. I offered this stone as payment for some meat, and he accepted it. When I told him that I'd found it in the spine, he refused to even touch it. What difference does it make where it came from? Horst looked at the stone curiously, then returned his attention to the butcher. Why won't you trade with him, Sloane? I've no love for the spine myself, but if it's a question of the stone's worth, I'll back it with my own money. The question hung in the air for a moment. Then Sloane licked his lips and said, This is my own store. I can do whatever I want. Katrina stepped out from behind Horst and tossed back her auburn hair like a spray of molten copper. Father, Aragon is willing to pay. Give him the meat, and then we can have supper. Sloane's eyes narrowed dangerously. Go back to the house. This is none of your business. I said go! Katrina's face hardened. Then she marched out of the room with a stiff back. Aragon watched with disapproval, but dared not interfere. Horst tugged at his beard before saying reproachfully, Fine, you can deal with me. What were you going to get, Aragon? His voice reverberated through the room. As much as I could. Horst pulled out a purse and counted out a pile of coins. Give me your best roasts and steaks. Make sure that it's enough to fill Aragon's pack. The butcher hesitated, his gaze darting between Horst and Aragon. Not selling to me would be a very bad idea, stated Horst. Glowering venomously, Sloane slipped into the back room. A frenzy of chopping, rapping, and low cursing reached them. After several uncomfortable minutes, he returned with an armful of wrapped meat. His face was expressionless as he accepted Horst's money, then proceeded to clean his knife, pretending that they were not there. Horst scooped up the meat and walked outside. Aragon hurried behind him, carrying his pack and the stone. The crisp night air rolled over their faces, refreshing after the stuffy shop. Thank you, Horst. Uncle Garrow will be pleased. Horse laughed quietly. Don't thank me. I've wanted to do that for a long time. Sloane's a vicious troublemaker. It does him good to be humbled. Katrina heard what was happening and ran to fetch me. Good thing I came. The two of you were almost at blows. Unfortunately, I doubt he'll serve you or any of your family next time you go in there, even if you do have coins. Why did he explode like that? We've never been friendly, but he's always taken our money. And I've never seen him treat Katrina that way, said Aragon, opening the top of the pack. Horst shrugged. Ask your uncle. He knows more about it than I do. Aragon stuffed the meat into his pack. Well, now I have one more reason to hurry home. To solve this mystery. Here, this is rightfully yours. He proffered the stone. Horst chuckled. No, you keep your strange rock. As for payment, Olbrake plans to leave for Feenster next spring. He wants to become a master smith, and I'm going to need an assistant. You can come and work off the debt on your spare days. Aragon bowed slightly, delighted. Horst had two sons, Olbrake and Baldor, both of whom worked in his forge. Taking one's place was a generous offer. Again, thank you. I look forward to working with you. He was glad that there was a way for him to pay Horst. His uncle would never accept charity.
Then Aragon remembered what his cousin had told him before he had left on the hunt. Roran wanted me to give Katrina a message, but since I can't, can you get it to her? Of course. He wants her to know that he'll come into town as soon as the merchants arrive, and that he will see her then. That all? Aragon was slightly embarrassed. No, he also wants her to know that she is the most beautiful girl he has ever seen, and that he thinks of nothing else. Horst's face broke into a broad grin, and he winked at Aragon. Getting serious, isn't he? Yes, sir, Aragon answered with a quick smile. Could you also give her my thanks? It was nice of her to stand up to her father for me. I hope she isn't punished because of it. Roran would be furious if I got her into trouble. I wouldn't worry about it. Sloane doesn't know that she called me, so I doubt he'll be too hard on her. Before you go, will you sup with us? I'm sorry, but I can't. Garrow is expecting me, said Aragon, tying off the top of the pack. He hoisted it onto his back and started down the road, raising his hand in farewell. The meat slowed him down, but he was eager to be home, and renewed vigour filled his steps. The village ended abruptly, and he left its warm lights behind. The pearlescent moon peeked over the mountains, bathing the land in a ghostly reflection of daylight. Everything looked bleached and flat. Near the end of his journey, he turned off the road which continued south. A simple path led straight through waist-high grass and up a knoll, almost hidden by the shadows of protective elm trees. He crested the hill and saw a gentle light shining from his home. The house had a shingled roof and a brick chimney. Eaves hung over the whitewashed walls, shadowing the ground below. One side of the enclosed porch was filled with split wood ready for the fire. A jumble of farm tools cluttered the other side. The house had been abandoned for half a century when they moved in after Garrow's wife, Marion, died. It was ten miles from Carver Hall, farther than anyone else's. People considered the distance dangerous because the family could not rely on help from the village in times of trouble, but Aragon's uncle would not listen. A hundred feet from the house, in a dull-coloured barn, lived two horses, Burka and Brug, with chickens and a cow. Sometimes there was also a pig, but they had been unable to afford one this year. A wagon sat wedged between the stalls. On the edge of their fields, a thick line of trees traced along the Anora River. He saw a light move behind a window as he wearily reached the porch. Uncle, it's Aragon, let me in. A small shutter slid back for a second, then the door swung inward. Garrow stood with his hand on the door. His worn clothes hung on him like rags on a stick frame. A lean, hungry face with intense eyes gazed out from under greying hair. He looked like a man who had been partly mummified before it was discovered that he was still alive. Roar and sleeping was his answer to Aragon's inquiring glance. A lantern flickered on a wood table so old that the grain stood up in tiny ridges like a giant fingerprint. Near a wood stove were rows of cooking utensils tacked onto the wall with homemade nails. A second door opened to the rest of the house. The floor was made of boards polished smooth by years of tramping feet. Aragon pulled off his pack and took out the meat. What's this? Did you buy meat? Where did you get the money? asked his uncle harshly as he saw the wrapped packages. Aragon took a breath before answering, No, Horst bought it for us. You let him pay for it? I told you before I won't beg for our food. If we can't feed ourselves, we might as well move into town. Before you can turn around twice, they'll be sending us used clothes and asking if we'll be able to get through the winter. Garrow's face paled with anger. 
I didn't accept charity, snapped Aragon. Horst agreed to let me work off the debt this spring. He needs someone to help him, because Albrecht is going away. And where will you get the time to work for him? Are you going to ignore all the things that need to be done here? asked Garrow, forcing his voice down. Aragon hung his bow and quiver on hooks beside the front door. I don't know how I'll do it, he said irritably. Besides, I found something that could be worth some money. He set the stone on the table. Garrow bowed over it. The hungry look on his face became ravenous, and his fingers moved with a strange twitch. You found this in the spine? Yes, said Aragon. He explained what had happened. And to make matters worse, I lost my best arrow. I'll have to make more before long. They stared at the stone in the near darkness. How was the weather? asked his uncle, lifting the stone. His hands tightened around it like he was afraid it would suddenly disappear. Cold, was Aragon's reply. It didn't snow, but it froze each night. Garrow looked worried by the news. Tomorrow you'll have to help Roran finish harvesting the barley. If we can get the squash picked too, the frost won't bother us. He passed the stone to Aragon. Here, keep it. When the traders come, we'll find out what it's worth. Selling it is probably the best thing to do. The less we're involved with magic, the better. Why did Horst pay for the meat? It took only a moment for Aragon to explain his argument with Sloane. I just don't understand what angered him so. Garrow shrugged. Sloane's wife, Ismira, went over the Igawalda Falls a year before you were brought here. He hasn't been near the spine since, nor had anything to do with it. But that's no reason to refuse payment. I think he wanted to give you trouble. Aragon swayed blearily and said, It's good to be back. Garrow's eyes softened, and he nodded. Aragon stumbled to his room, pushed the stone under his bed, then fell onto the mattress. Home. For the first time since before the hunt, he relaxed completely as sleep overtook him. Dragon Tales At dawn, the sun's rays streamed through the window, warming Aragon's face. Rubbing his eyes, he sat up on the edge of the bed. The pine floor was cold under his feet. He stretched his sore legs and rubbed his back, yawning. Beside the bed was a row of shelves covered with objects he had collected. There were twisted pieces of wood, odd bits of shells, rocks that had broken to reveal shiny interiors, and strips of dry grass tied into knots. His favourite item was a root so convoluted he never tired of looking at it. The rest of the room was bare except for a small dresser and nightstand. He pulled on his boots and stared at the floor, thinking. This was a special day. It was near this very hour, sixteen years ago, that his mother, Selina, had come home to Carver Hall alone and pregnant. She had been gone for six years, living in the cities. When she returned, she wore expensive clothes, and her hair was bound by a net of pearls. She had sought out her brother, Garrow, and asked to stay with him until the baby arrived. Within five months, her son was born. Everyone was shocked when Selina tearfully begged Garrow and Marion to raise him. When they asked why, she only wept and said, I must. Her pleas had grown increasingly desperate until they finally agreed. She named him Aragon, then departed early the next morning and never returned. Aragon still remembered how he had felt when Marion told him the story before she died. The realization that Garrow and Marion were not his real parents had disturbed him greatly. Things that had been permanent and unquestionable were suddenly thrown into doubt. 
Eventually, he had learned to live with it, but he always had a nagging suspicion that he had not been good enough for his mother. I'm sure there was a good reason for what she did. I only wish I knew what it was. One other thing bothered him. Who was his father? Selina had told no one, and whoever it might be had never come looking for Aragon. He wished that he knew who it was, if only to have a name. It would be nice to know his heritage. He sighed and went to the nightstand where he splashed his face, shivering as the water ran down his neck. Refreshed, he retrieved the stone from under the bed and set it on a shelf. The morning light caressed it, throwing a warm shadow on the wall. He touched it one more time, then hurried to the kitchen, eager to see his family. Garrow and Roran were already there, eating chicken. As Aragon greeted them, Roran stood with a grin. Roran was two years older than Aragon, muscular, sturdy, and careful with his movements. They could not have been closer, even if they had been real brothers. Roran smiled. I'm glad you're back. How was the trip? Hard, replied Aragon. Did Uncle tell you what happened? He helped himself to a piece of chicken, which he devoured hungrily. No, said Roran, and the story was quickly told. At Roran's insistence, Aragon left his food to show him the stone. This elicited a satisfactory amount of awe, but Roran soon asked nervously, Were you able to talk with Katrina? No. There wasn't an opportunity after the argument with Sloane. But she'll expect you when the traders come. I gave the message to Horst. He will get it to her. You told Horst? said Roran incredulously. That was private! If I wanted everyone to know about it, I could have built a bonfire and used smoke signals to communicate. If Sloane finds out, he won't let me see her again. Horst will be discreet, assured Aragon. He won't let anyone fall prey to Sloane, least of all you. Roran seemed unconvinced, but argued no more. They returned to their meals in the taciturn presence of Garrow. When the last bites were finished, all three went to work in the fields. The sun was cold and pale, providing little comfort. Under its watchful eye, the last of the barley was stored in the barn. Next, they gathered prickly vine squash, then the rutabagas, beets, peas, turnips and beans, which they packed into the root cellar. After hours of labour, they stretched their cramped muscles, pleased that the harvest was finished. The following days were spent pickling, salting, shelling, and preparing the food for winter. Nine days after Aragon's return, a vicious blizzard blew out of the mountains and settled over the valley. The snow came down in great sheets, blanketing the countryside in white. They only dared leave the house for firewood and to feed the animals, for they feared getting lost in the howling wind and featureless landscape. They spent their time huddled over the stove as gusts rattled the heavy window shutters. Days later, the storm finally passed, revealing an alien world of soft white drifts. I'm afraid the traders may not come this year with conditions this bad, said Garrow. They're late as it is. We'll give them a chance and wait before going to Carverhall. But if they don't show soon, we'll have to buy any spare supplies from the townspeople. His countenance was resigned. They grew anxious as the days crept by without sign of the traders. Talk was sparse, and depression hung over the house. On the eighth morning, Roran walked to the road and confirmed that the traders had not yet passed. The day was spent readying for the trip into Carverhall, scrounging with grim expressions for saleable items. That evening, out of desperation, Aragon checked the road again. He found deep ruts cut into the snow, with numerous hoofprints between them. 
Elated, he ran back to the house, whooping, bringing new life to their preparations. They packed their surplus produce into the wagon before sunrise. Garrow put the year's money in a leather pouch that he carefully fastened to his belt. Aragon set the wrapped stone between bags of grain so it would not roll when the wagon hit bumps. After a hasty breakfast, they harnessed the horses and cleared a path to the road. The traders' wagons had already broken the drifts, which sped their progress. By noon, they could see Carvajal. In daylight, it was a small, earthy village filled with shouts and laughter. The traders had made camp in an empty field on the outskirts of town. Groups of wagons, tents, and fires were randomly spread across it, spots of colour against the snow. The troubadours' four tents were garishly decorated. A steady stream of people linked the camp to the village. Crowds churned around a line of bright tents and booths clogging the main street. Horses whinnied at the noise. The snow had been pounded flat, giving it a glassy surface. Elsewhere, bonfires had melted it. Roasted hazelnuts added a rich aroma to the smells wafting around them. Garrow parked the wagon and picketed the horses, then drew coins from his pouch. Get yourself some treats. Roran, do what you want, only be at horse in time for supper. Aragon, bring that stone and come with me. Aragon grinned at Roran and pocketed the money, already planning how to spend it. Roran departed immediately with a determined expression on his face. Garrow led Aragon into the throng, shouldering his way through the bustle. Women were buying cloth, while nearby their husbands examined a new latch, hook, or tool. Children ran up and down the road, shrieking with excitement. Knives were displayed here, spices there, and pots were laid out in shiny rows next to leather harnesses. Aragon stared at the traders curiously. They seemed less prosperous than last year. Their children had a frightened, weary look, and their clothes were patched. The gaunt men carried swords and daggers with a new familiarity, and even the women had poniards belted at their waists. What could have happened to make them like this? And why are they so late? wondered Aragon. He remembered the traders as being full of good cheer, but there was none of that now. Garrow pushed down the street, searching for Murloc, a trader who specialised in odd trinkets and pieces of jewellery. They found him behind a booth, displaying brooches to a group of women. As each new piece was revealed, exclamations of admiration followed. Aragon guessed that more than a few purses would soon be depleted. Murloc seemed to flourish and grow every time his wares were complimented. He wore a goatee, held himself with ease, and seemed to regard the rest of the world with slight contempt. The excited group prevented Garrow and Aragon from getting near the trader, so they settled on a step and waited. As soon as Murloc was unoccupied, they hurried over. And what might you, sirs, want to look at? asked Murloc. An amulet or trinket for a lady? With a twirl, he pulled out a delicately carved silver rose of excellent workmanship. The polished metal caught Aragon's attention, and he eyed it appreciatively. The trader continued, Not even three crowns, though it has come all the way from the famed craftsman of Bellatona. Garrow spoke in a quiet voice. We aren't looking to buy, but to sell. Murloc immediately covered the rose and looked at them with new interest. I see. Maybe, if this item is of any value, you would like to trade it for one or two of these exquisite pieces? He paused for a moment while Aragon and his uncle stood uncomfortably, then continued, You did bring the object of consideration? We have it, but we would rather show it to you elsewhere.
said Garrow in a firm voice. Murlock raised an eyebrow, but spoke smoothly. In that case, let me invite you to my tent. He gathered up his wares and gently laid them in an iron-bound chest, which he locked. Then he ushered them up the street and into the temporary camp. They wound between the wagons to a tent removed from the rest of the traders. It was crimson at the top and sable at the bottom, with thin triangles of colour stabbing into each other. Murlock untied the opening and swung the flap to one side. Small trinkets and strange pieces of furniture, such as a round bed and three seats carved from tree stumps, filled the tent. A gnarled dagger with a ruby in the pommel rested on a white cushion. Murlock closed the flap and turned to them. Please, seat yourselves. When they had, he said, Now, show me why we are meeting in private. Aragon unwrapped the stone and set it between the two men. Murlock reached for it with a gleam in his eye, then stopped and asked, May I? When Garrow indicated his approval, Murlock picked it up. He put the stone in his lap and reached to one side for a thin box. Opened, it revealed a large set of copper scales which he set on the ground. After weighing the stone, he scrutinized its surface under a jeweler's glass, tapped it gently with a wooden mallet, and drew the point of a tiny clear stone over it. He measured its length and diameter, then recorded the figures on a slate. He considered the results for a while. Do you know what this is worth? No, admitted Garrow. His cheek twitched and he shifted uncomfortably on the seat. Murlock grimaced. Unfortunately, neither do I. But I can tell you this much. The white veins are the same material as the blue that surrounds them, only a different colour. What that material might be, though, I haven't a clue. It's harder than any rock I've ever seen, harder even than diamond. Whoever shaped it used tools I have never seen. Or magic. Also, it's hollow. What? exclaimed Garrow. An irritated edge crept into Murlock's voice. Did you ever hear a rock sound like this? He grabbed the dagger from the cushion and slapped the stone with the flat of the blade. A pure note filled the air, then faded away smoothly. Aragon was alarmed, afraid that the stone had been damaged. Murlock tilted the stone toward them. You will find no scratches or blemishes where the dagger struck. I doubt I could do anything to harm this stone, even if I took a hammer to it. Garrow crossed his arms with a reserved expression. A wall of silence surrounded him. Aragon was puzzled. I knew that the stone appeared in the spine through magic, but made by magic? What for and why? He blurted, but what is it worth? I can't tell you that, said Murlock in a pained voice. I'm sure there are people who would pay dearly to have it, but none of them are in Carverhall. You would have to go to the southern cities to find a buyer. This is a curiosity for most people, not an item to spend money on when practical things are needed. Garrow stared at the tent ceiling like a gambler calculating the odds. Will you buy it? The trader answered instantly. It's not worth the risk. I might be able to find a wealthy buyer during my spring travels, but I can't be certain. Even if I did, you wouldn't be paid until I return next year. No, you will have to find someone else to trade with. I am curious, however. Why did you insist on talking to me in private? Aragon put the stone away before answering. Because, he glanced at the man, wondering if he would explode like Sloane. I found this in the spine and folks around here don't like that. 
Murlock gave him a startled look. Do you know why my fellow merchants and I were late this year? Aragon shook his head. Our wanderings have been dogged with misfortune. Chaos seems to rule Alagazia. We could not avoid illness, attacks, and the most cursed black luck. Because the Vardens' attacks have increased, Galbatorix has forced cities to send more soldiers to the borders, men who are needed to combat the Urgles. The brutes have been migrating southeast towards the Hadarak Desert. No one knows why, and it wouldn't concern us except that they're passing through populated areas. They've been spotted on roads and near cities. Worst of all are reports of a shade, though the stories are unconfirmed. Not many people survive such an encounter. Why haven't we heard of this? cried Aragon. Because, said Murloc grimly, it only began a few months ago. Whole villages have been forced to move because Urgles destroyed their fields and starvation threatens. Nonsense, growled Garrow. We haven't seen any Urgles. The only one around here has his horns mounted in Morn's tavern. Murloc arched an eyebrow. Maybe so, but this is a small village hidden by mountains. It's not surprising that you've escaped notice. However, I wouldn't expect that to last. I only mention this because strange things are happening here as well if you found such a stone in the spine. With that sobering statement, he bid them farewell with a bow and a slight smile. Garrow headed back to Carvajal, with Aragon trailing behind. What do you think? asked Aragon. I'm going to get more information before I make up my mind. Take the stone back to the wagon, then do what you want. I'll meet you for dinner at Horst's. Aragon dodged through the crowd and happily dashed back to the wagon. Trading would take his uncle hours, time that he planned to enjoy fully. He hid the stone under the bags, then set out into town with a cocky stride. He walked from one booth to another, evaluating the goods with a buyer's eye despite his meagre supply of coins. When he talked with the merchants, they confirmed what Murloc had said about the instability in Alagazia. Over and over the message was repeated. Last year's security has deserted us, new dangers have appeared, and nothing is safe. Later in the day, he bought three sticks of malt candy and a small piping hot cherry pie. The hot food felt good after hours of standing in the snow. He licked the sticky syrup from his fingers regretfully, wishing for more, then sat on the edge of a porch and nibbled a piece of candy. Two boys from Carver Hall wrestled nearby, but he felt no inclination to join them. As the day descended into late afternoon, the traders took their business into people's homes. Aragon was impatient for evening when the troubadours would come out to tell stories and perform tricks. He loved hearing about magic, gods, and, if they were especially lucky, the dragon riders. Carvajal had its own storyteller, Brom, a friend of Aragon's, but his tales grew old over the years, whereas the troubadours always had new ones that he listened to eagerly. Aragon had just broken off an icicle from the underside of the porch when he spotted Sloane nearby. The butcher had not seen him, so Aragon ducked his head and bolted around a corner toward Morn's tavern. The inside was hot and filled with greasy smoke from sputtering tallow candles. The shiny black urgle horns, their twisted span as great as his outstretched arms, were mounted over the door. The bar was long and low, with a stack of staves on one end for customers to carve. Morn tended the bar, his sleeves rolled up to his elbows. The bottom half of his face was short and mashed, as if he had rested his chin on a grinding wheel. People crowded solid oak tables and listened to two traders who had finished their business early and come in for beer. 
Morn looked up from a mug he was cleaning. Aragon, good to see you. Where's your uncle? Buying, said Aragon with a shrug. He's going to be a while. And Roran, is he here? asked Morn as he swiped the cloth through another mug. Yes, no sick animals to keep him back this year. Good, good. Aragon gestured at the two traders. Who are they? Grain buyers. They bought everyone's seed at ridiculously low prices, and now they're telling wild stories, expecting us to believe them. Aragon understood why Morn was so upset. People need that money. We can't get by without it. What kind of stories? Morn snorted. They say the Varden have formed a pact with the Urgles and are massing an army to attack us. Supposedly it's only through the grace of our king that we've been protected for so long, as if Galbatorix would care if we burnt at the ground. Go listen to them. I've enough on my hands without explaining their lies. The first trader filled a chair with his enormous girth. His every movement caused it to protest loudly. There was no hint of hair on his face. His pudgy hands were baby-smooth, and he had pouting lips that curled petulantly as he sipped from a flagon. The second man had a florid face. The skin around his jaw was dry and corpulent, filled with lumps of hard fat like cold butter gone rancid. Contrasted with his neck and jowls, the rest of his body was unnaturally thin. The first trader vainly tried to pull back his expanding borders to fit within the chair. He said, No, no, you don't understand. It is only through the king's unceasing efforts on your behalf that you are able to argue with us in safety. If he, in all his wisdom, were to withdraw that support, woe unto you. Someone hollered, Right. Why don't you also tell us the riders have returned, and you've each killed a hundred elves? Do you think we're children to believe in your tales? We can take care of ourselves. The group chuckled. The trader started to reply when his thin companion intervened with a wave of his hand. Gaudy jewels flashed on his fingers. You misunderstand. We know the Empire cannot care for each of us personally as you may want, but it can keep Urgles and other abominations from overrunning this... He searched vaguely for the right term. Place. The trader continued. You're angry with the Empire for treating people unfairly, a legitimate concern. But a government cannot please everyone. There will inevitably be arguments and conflicts. However, the majority of us have nothing to complain about. Every country has some small group of malcontents who aren't satisfied with the balance of power. Yeah, called a woman. If you're willing to call the Varden small... The fat man sighed. We already explained that the Varden have no interest in helping you. That's only a falsehood perpetuated by the traitors in an attempt to disrupt the Empire and convince us that the real threat is inside, not outside our borders. All they want to do is overthrow the king and take possession of our land. They have spies everywhere as they prepare to invade. You never know who might be working for them. Aragon did not agree, but the trader's words were smooth and people were nodding. He stepped forward and said, How do you know this? I can say that clouds are green, but that doesn't mean it's true. Prove that you aren't lying. The two men glared at him, while the villagers waited silently for an answer.
The thin trader spoke first. He avoided Aragon's eyes. Aren't your children taught respect? Or do you let boys challenge men whenever they want to? The listeners fidgeted and stared at Aragon. Then a man said, Answer the question. It's only common sense, said the fat one, sweat beading on his upper lip. His reply riled the villagers, and the dispute resumed. Aragon returned to the bar with a sour taste in his mouth. He had never before met anyone who favoured the Empire and tore down its enemies. There was a deep-seated hatred of the Empire in Carvajal, almost hereditary in nature. The Empire never helped them during harsh years when they nearly starved and its tax collectors were heartless. He felt justified in disagreeing with the traders regarding the king's mercy, but he did speculate about the Varden. The Varden were a rebel group that constantly raided and attacked the Empire. It was a mystery who their leader was, or who had formed them in the years following Galbatorix's rise to power over a century ago. The group had garnered much sympathy as they eluded Galbatorix's efforts to destroy them. Little was known about the Varden, except that if you were a fugitive and had to hide, or if you hated the Empire, they would accept you. The only problem was finding them. Morn leaned over the bar and said, Incredible, isn't it? They're worse than vultures circling a dying animal. There's going to be trouble if they stay much longer. For us or for them? Them, said Morn, as angry voices filled the tavern. Aragon left when the argument threatened to become violent. The door thudded shut behind him, cutting off the voices. It was early evening, and the sun was sinking rapidly. The houses cast long shadows on the ground. As Aragon headed down the street, he noticed Roran and Katrina standing in an alley. Roran said something Aragon could not hear. Katrina looked down at her hands and answered in an undertone, then leaned up on her tiptoes and kissed him before darting away. Aragon trotted to Roran and teased, Having a good time? Roran grunted noncommittally as he paced away. Have you heard the trader's news? asked Aragon, following. Most of the villagers were indoors, talking to traders or waiting until it was dark enough for the troubadours to perform. Yes. Roran seemed distracted. What do you think of Sloane? I thought it was obvious. There'll be blood between us when he finds out about Katrina and me, stated Roran. A snowflake landed on Aragon's nose, and he looked up. The sky had turned grey. He could think of nothing appropriate to say. Roran was right. He clasped his cousin on the shoulder as they continued down the byway. Dinner at Horst's was hearty. The room was full of conversation and laughter. Sweet cordials and heavy ales were consumed in copious amounts, adding to the boisterous atmosphere. When the plates were empty... Horst's guests left the house and strolled to the field where the traders were camped. A ring of poles topped with candles had been stuck into the ground around a large clearing. Bonfires blazed in the background, painting the ground with dancing shadows. The villagers slowly gathered around the circle and waited expectantly in the cold. The troubadours came tumbling out of their tents dressed in tasseled clothing, followed by older and more stately minstrels. The minstrels provided music and narration as their younger counterparts acted out the stories. The first plays were pure entertainment, bawdy and full of jokes, pratfalls and ridiculous characters. Later, however, when the candles sputtered in their sockets and everyone was drawn together into a tight circle, the old storyteller Brom stepped forward. A knotted white beard rippled over his chest and a long black cape was wrapped around his bent shoulders, obscuring his body. 
he spread his arms with hands that reached out like talons and recited thus. The sands of time cannot be stopped. Years pass, whether we will them or not, but we can remember. What has been lost may yet live on in memories. That which you will hear is imperfect and fragmented, yet treasure it, for without you it does not exist. I give you now a memory that has been forgotten, hidden in the dreamy haze that lies behind us. His keen eyes inspected their interested faces. His gaze lingered on Aragon last of all. Before your grandfather's fathers were born, and yea, even before their fathers, the dragon riders were formed. To protect and guard was their mission, and for thousands of years they succeeded. Their prowess in battle was unmatched, for each had the strength of ten men. They were immortal unless blade or poison took them. For good only were their powers used, and under their tutelage tall cities and towers were built out of the living stone. While they kept peace, the land flourished. It was a golden time. The elves were our allies, the dwarves our friends. Wealth flowed into our cities, and men prospered. But weep, for it could not last. Brom looked down silently. Infinite sadness resonated in his voice. Though no enemy could destroy them, they could not guard against themselves. And it came to pass, at the height of their power, that a boy, Galbatorix by name, was born in the province of Inzilbeth, which is no more. At ten he was tested, as was the custom, and it was found that great power resided in him. The riders accepted him as their own. Through their training he passed, exceeding all others in skill. Gifted with a sharp mind and strong body, he quickly took his place among the riders' ranks. Some saw his abrupt rise as dangerous and warned the others, but the riders had grown arrogant in their power and ignored caution. Alas, sorrow was conceived that day. So it was that soon after his training was finished, Galbatorix took a reckless trip with two friends. Far north they flew, night and day, and passed into the Urgul's remaining territory, foolishly thinking their new powers would protect them. There, on a thick sheet of ice, unmelted even in summer, they were ambushed in their sleep. Though his friends and their dragons were butchered and he suffered great wounds, Galbatorix slew his attackers. Tragically, during the fight, a stray arrow pierced his dragon's heart. Without the arts to save her, she died in his arms. Then were the seeds of madness planted. The storyteller clasped his hands and looked around slowly, shadows flickering across his worn face. The next words came like the mournful toll of a requiem. Alone. Bereft of much of his strength and half mad with loss, Galbatorix wandered without hope in that desolate land, seeking death. It did not come to him, though he threw himself without fear against any living thing. Urgles and other monsters soon fled from his haunted form. 
During this time, he came to realize that the riders might grant him another dragon. Driven by this thought, he began the arduous journey on foot back through the spine. Territory he had soared over effortlessly on a dragon's back now took him months to traverse. He could hunt with magic, but oftentimes he walked in places where animals did not travel. Thus, when his feet finally left the mountains, he was close to death. A farmer found him collapsed in the mud and summoned the riders. Unconscious, he was taken to their holdings, and his body healed. He slept for four days. Upon awakening, he gave no sign of his fevered mind. When he was brought before a council convened to judge him, Galbatorix demanded another dragon. The desperation of the request revealed his dementia, and the council saw him for what he truly was. Denied his hope, Galbatorix, through the twisted mirror of his madness, came to believe it was the rider's fault his dragon had died. Night after night he brooded on that and formulated a plan to exact revenge. Brom's words dropped to a mesmerizing whisper. He found a sympathetic rider, and there his insidious words took root. By persistent reasoning and the use of dark secrets learned from a shade, he inflamed the rider against their elders. Together they treacherously lured and killed an elder. When the foul deed was done, Galbatorix turned on his ally and slaughtered him without warning. The riders found him then with blood dripping from his hands. A scream tore from his lips and he fled into the night. As he was cunning in his madness, they could not find him. For years he hid in wastelands like a hunted animal, always watching for pursuers. His atrocity was not forgotten, but over time searches ceased. Then, through some ill fortune, he met a young rider, Morzan, strong of body but weak of mind. Galbatorix convinced Morzan to leave a gate unbolted in the citadel Illyria, which is now called Urubain. Through this gate Galbatorix entered and stole a dragon hatchling. He and his new disciple hid themselves in an evil place where the riders dare not venture. There Morzan entered into a dark apprenticeship, learning secrets and forbidden magic that should never have been revealed. When his instruction was finished and Galbatorix's black dragon Shrukan was fully grown, Galbatorix revealed himself to the world with Morzan at his side. Together they fought any rider they met. With each kill their strength grew. Twelve of the riders joined Galbatorix out of desire for power and revenge against perceived wrongs. Those twelve with Morzan became the thirteen forsworn. The riders were unprepared and fell beneath the onslaught. The elves, too, fought bitterly against Galbatorix, but they were overthrown and forced to flee to their secret places from whence they come no more. Only Vrail, leader of the riders, could resist Galbatorix and the Forsworn. Ancient and wise, he struggled to save what he could and keep the last remaining dragons from falling to his enemies. In the last battle, before the gates of Doru Ariba, 
Vrail defeated Galbatorix, but hesitated with the final blow. Galbatorix seized the moment and smote him in the side. Grievously wounded, Vrail fled to Utgard Mountain, where he hoped to gather strength. But it was not to be, for Galbatorix found him. As they fought, Galbatorix kicked Vrail in the fork of his legs. With that underhanded blow, he gained dominance over Vrail and removed his head with a blazing sword. Then, as power rushed through his veins, Galbatorix anointed himself king over all Alagasia. And from that day, he has ruled us. With the completion of the story, Brom shuffled away with the troubadours. Aragon thought he saw a tear shining on his cheek. People murmured quietly to each other as they departed. Garrow said to Aragon and Roran, Consider yourselves fortunate. I have heard this tale only twice in my life. If the Empire knew that Brom had recited it, he would not live to see a new month. Fate's Gift The evening after their return from Carver Hall, Aragon decided to test the stone as Murloc had. Alone in his room, he set it on his bed and laid three tools next to it. He started with a wooden mallet and lightly tapped the stone. It produced a subtle ringing. Satisfied, he picked up the next tool, a heavy leather hammer. A mournful peal reverberated when it struck. Lastly, he pounded a small chisel against it. The metal did not chip or scratch the stone, but it produced the clearest sound yet. As the final note died away, he thought he heard a faint squeak. Murloc said the stone was hollow. There could be something of value inside. I don't know how to open it, though. There must have been a good reason for someone to shape it, but whoever sent the stone into the spine hasn't taken the trouble to retrieve it, or doesn't know where it is. But I don't believe that a magician with enough power to transport the stone wouldn't be able to find it again. So was I meant to have it? He could not answer the question. Resigned to an unsolvable mystery, he picked up the tools and returned the stone to its shelf. That night, he was abruptly roused from sleep. He listened carefully. All was quiet. Uneasy, he slid his hand under the mattress and grasped his knife. He waited a few minutes, then slowly sank back to sleep. A squeak pierced the silence, tearing him back to wakefulness. He rolled out of bed and yanked the knife from its sheath. Fumbling with a tinderbox, he lit a candle. The door to his room was closed. Though the squeak was too loud for a mouse or a rat, he still checked under the bed. Nothing. He sat on the edge of the mattress and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. Another squeak filled the air, and he started violently. Where was the noise coming from? Nothing could be in the floor or walls. They were solid wood. The same went for his bed. And he would have noticed if anything had crawled into his straw mattress during the night. His eyes settled on the stone. He took it off the shelf and absently cradled it as he studied the room. A squeak rang in his ears and reverberated through his fingers. It came from the stone. The stone had given him nothing but frustration and anger, and now it would not even let him sleep. It ignored his furious glare and sat solidly, occasionally peeping. Then it gave one very loud squeak and fell silent. Aragon warily put it away and got back under the sheets. Whatever secret the stone held, it would have to wait until morning. 
The moon was shining through his window when he woke again. The stone was rocking rapidly on the shelf, knocking against the wall. It was bathed in cool moonlight that bleached its surface. Aragon jumped out of bed, knife in hand. The motion stopped, but he remained tense. Then the stone started squeaking and rocking faster than ever. With an oath, he began dressing. He did not care how valuable the stone might be. He was going to take it far away and bury it. The rocking stopped. The stone became quiet. It quivered, then rolled forward and dropped onto the floor with a loud thump. He inched toward the door in alarm as the stone wobbled toward him. Suddenly a crack appeared on the stone. Then another and another. Transfixed, Aragon leaned forward, still holding the knife. At the top of the stone, where all the cracks met, a small piece wobbled as if it were balanced on something, then rose and toppled to the floor. After another series of squeaks, a small dark head poked out of the hole, followed by a weirdly angled body. Aragon gripped the knife tighter and held very still. Soon the creature was all the way out of the stone. It stayed in place for a moment, then skittered into the moonlight. Aragon recoiled in shock. Standing in front of him, licking off the membrane that encased it, was a dragon. Awakening The dragon was no longer than his forearm, yet it was dignified and noble. Its scales were deep sapphire blue, the same color as the stone. But not a stone, he realized, an egg. The dragon fanned its wings. They were what had made it appear so contorted. The wings were several times longer than its body, and ribbed with thin fingers of bone that extended from the wing's front edge, forming a line of widely spaced talons. The dragon's head was roughly triangular. Two diminutive white fangs curved down out of its upper jaw. They looked very sharp. Its claws were also white, like polished ivory, and slightly serrated on the inside curve. A line of small spikes ran down the creature's spine from the base of its head to the tip of its tail. A hollow where its neck and shoulders joined created a larger-than-normal gap between the spikes. Aragon shifted slightly, and the dragon's head snapped around. Hard, ice-blue eyes fixed on him. He kept very still. It might be a formidable enemy if it decided to attack. The dragon lost interest in Aragon and awkwardly explored the room, squealing as it bumped into a wall or furniture. With a flutter of wings it leapt onto the bed and crawled to his pillow, squeaking. Its mouth was open pitifully, like a young bird's, displaying rows of pointed teeth. Aragon sat cautiously on the end of the bed. The dragon smelled his hand, nibbled his sleeve. He pulled his arm back. A smile tugged at Aragon's lips as he looked at the small creature. Tentatively, he reached out with his right hand and touched its flank. A blast of icy energy surged into his hand and raced up his arm, burning in his veins like liquid fire. He fell back with a wild cry. An iron clang filled his ears and he heard a soundless scream of rage. Every part of his body seared with pain. He struggled to move, but was unable to. After what seemed like hours, warmth seeped back into his limbs, leaving them tingling. Shivering uncontrollably, he pushed himself upright. His hand was numb, his fingers paralysed. Alarmed, he watched as the middle of his palm shimmered and formed a diffused white oval. The skin itched and burned like a spider bite. His heart pounded frantically. Aragon blinked, trying to understand what had occurred. Something brushed against his consciousness, like a finger trailing over his skin. He felt it again, but this time it solidified into a tendril of thought through which he could feel a growing curiosity. 
It was as if an invisible wall surrounding his thoughts had fallen away, and he was now free to reach out with his mind. He was afraid that without anything to hold him back he would float out of his body and be unable to return, becoming a spirit of the ether. Scared, he pulled away from the contact. The new sense vanished, as if he had closed his eyes. He glared suspiciously at the motionless dragon. A scaly leg scraped against his side and he jerked back, but the energy did not shock him again. Puzzled, he rubbed the dragon's head with his right hand. A light tingling ran up his arm. The dragon nuzzled him, arching its back like a cat. He slid a finger over its thin wing membranes. They felt like old parchment, velvety and warm, but still slightly damp. Hundreds of slender veins pulsed through them. Again, the tendril touched his mind, but this time, instead of curiosity, he sensed an overpowering, ravenous hunger. He got up with a sigh. This was a dangerous animal, of that he was sure, yet it seemed so helpless, crawling on his bed, he could only wonder if there was any harm in keeping it. The dragon wailed in a reedy tone as it looked for food. Aragon quickly scratched its head to keep it quiet. I'll think about this later, he decided, and left the room, carefully closing the door. Returning with two strips of dried meat, he found the dragon sitting on the windowsill, watching the moon. He cut the meat into small squares and offered one to the dragon. It smelled the square cautiously, then jabbed its head forward like a snake and snatched the meat from his fingers, swallowing it whole with a peculiar jerk. The dragon prodded Aragon's hand for more food. He fed it, careful to keep his fingers out of the way. By the time there was only one square left, the dragon's belly was bulging. He proffered the last piece. The dragon considered it for a moment, then lazily snapped it up. Done eating, it crawled onto his arm and curled against his chest. Then it snorted, a puff of dark smoke rising from its nostrils. Aragon looked at it with wonder. Just when he thought the dragon was asleep, a low humming came from its vibrating throat. Gently he carried it to the bed and set it by his pillow. The dragon, eyes closed, wrapped its tail around the bedpost contentedly. Aragon lay next to it, flexing his hand in the near darkness. He faced a painful dilemma. By raising a dragon, he could become a rider. Myths and stories about riders were treasured, and being one would automatically place him among those legends. However, if the Empire discovered the dragon, he and his family would be put to death unless he joined the king. No one could or would help them. The simplest solution was just to kill the dragon, but the idea was repugnant and he rejected it. Dragons were too revered for him to even consider that. Besides, what could betray us, he thought. We live in a remote area and have done nothing to draw attention. The problem was convincing Garrow and Roran to let him keep the dragon. Neither of them would care to have a dragon around. I could raise it in secret. In a month or two it will be too large for Garrow to get rid of. But will he accept it? Even if he does, can I get enough food for the dragon while it's hiding? It's no larger than a small cat, but it ate an entire handful of meat. I suppose it'll be able to hunt for itself eventually. But how long until then? Will it be able to survive the cold outside? All the same, he wanted the dragon. The more he thought about it, the surer he was. However things might work out with Garrow, Aragon would do everything he could to protect it. Determined, he fell asleep with the dragon cradled against him. When dawn came, the dragon was sitting atop his bedpost like an ancient sentinel welcoming the new day. Aragon marvelled at its colour. He had never seen such a clear, hard blue. Its scales were like hundreds of small gemstones. 
he noticed that the white oval on his palm where he had touched the dragon had a silvery sheen. He hoped he could hide it by keeping his hands dirty. The dragon launched off the post and glided to the floor. Aragon gingerly picked it up and left the quiet house, pausing to grab meat, several leather strips, and as many rags as he could carry. The crisp morning was beautiful. A fresh layer of snow covered the farm. He smiled as the small creature looked around with interest from the safety of his arms. Hurrying across the fields, he walked silently into the dark forest, searching for a safe place for the dragon to stay. Eventually, he found a rowan tree standing alone on a barren knoll, its branches snow-tipped grey fingers that reached toward the sky. He set the dragon down by the base of the trunk and shook the leather onto the ground. With a few deft movements, he made a noose and slipped it over the dragon's head as it explored the snowy clumps surrounding the tree. The leather was worn, but it would hold. He watched the dragon crawl around, then untied the noose from its neck and fashioned a makeshift harness for its legs so the dragon would not strangle itself. Next, he gathered an armful of sticks and built a crude hut high in the branches, layering the inside with rags and stashing the meat. Snow fell on his face as the tree swayed. He hung more rags over the front of the shelter to keep heat inside. Pleased, he surveyed his work. Time to show you your new home, he said, and lifted the dragon up into the branches. It wriggled, trying to get free, then clambered into the hut where it ate a piece of meat, curled up, and blinked coyly at him. You'll be fine as long as you stay in here, he instructed. The dragon blinked again. Sure that it had not understood him, Aragon groped with his mind until he felt the dragon's consciousness. Again he had the terrible feeling of openness, of a space so large it pressed down on him like a heavy blanket. Summoning his strength, he focused on the dragon and tried to impress on it one idea. Stay here. The dragon stopped moving and cocked its head at him. He pushed harder. Stay here. A dim acknowledgement came tentatively through the link, but Aragon wondered if it really understood. After all, it's only an animal. He retreated from the contact with relief and felt the safety of his own mind envelop him. Aragon left the tree, casting glances backward. The dragon stuck its head out of the shelter and watched with large eyes as he left. After a hurried walk home, he sneaked back into his room to dispose of the egg fragments. He was sure Garrow and Roram would not notice the egg's absence. It had faded from their thoughts after they learned it could not be sold. When his family got up, Roran mentioned that he had heard some noises during the night, but to Aragon's relief did not pursue the issue. Aragon's enthusiasm made the day go by quickly. The mark on his hand proved easy to hide, so he soon stopped worrying about it. Before long, he headed back to the rowan, carrying sausages he had pilfered from the cellar. With apprehension, he approached the tree. Is the dragon able to survive outside in winter? His fears were groundless. The dragon was perched on a branch, gnawing on something between its front legs. It started squeaking excitedly when it saw him. He was pleased to see that it had remained in the tree, above the reach of large predators. As soon as he dropped the sausages at the base of the trunk, the dragon glided down. While it voraciously tore apart the food, Aragon examined the shelter. All the meat he had left was gone, but the hut was intact, and tufts of feathers littered the floor. Good, it can get its own food. It struck him that he did not know if the dragon was a he or a she. He lifted and turned it over, ignoring its squeals of displeasure, but was unable to find any distinguishing marks. 
it seems like it won't give up any secrets without a struggle. He spent a long time with the dragon. He untied it, set it on his shoulder, and went to explore the woods. The snow-laden trees watched over them like solemn pillars of a great cathedral. In that isolation, Aragon showed the dragon what he knew about the forest, not caring if it understood his meaning. It was the simple act of sharing that mattered. He talked to it continuously. The dragon gazed back at him with bright eyes, drinking in his words. For a while he just sat with it, resting in his arms, and watched it with wonder, still stunned by recent events. Aragon started for home at sunset, conscious of two hard blue eyes drilling into his back, indignant at being left behind. That night he brooded about all the things that could happen to a small and unprotected animal. Thoughts of ice storms and vicious animals tormented him. It took hours for him to find sleep. His dreams were of foxes and black wolves tearing at the dragon with bloody teeth. In the sunrise glow, Aragon ran from the house with food and scraps of cloth, extra insulation for the shelter. He found the dragon awake and safe, watching the sunrise from high in the tree. He fervently thanked all the gods, known and unknown. The dragon came down to the ground as he approached and leapt into his arms, huddling close to his chest. The cold had not harmed it, but it seemed frightened. A puff of dark smoke blew out of its nostrils. He stroked it comfortingly and sat with his back to the rowan, murmuring softly. He kept still as the dragon buried its head in his coat. After a while it crawled out of his embrace and onto his shoulder. He fed it, then wrapped the new rags around the hut. They played together for a time, but Aragon had to return to the house before long. A smooth routine was quickly established. Every morning Aragon ran out to the tree and gave the dragon breakfast before hurrying back. During the day he attacked his chores until they were finished and he could visit the dragon again. Both Garrow and Roran noted his behaviour and asked why he spent so much time outside. Aragon just shrugged and started checking to make sure he was not followed to the tree. After the first few days he stopped worrying that a mishap would befall the dragon. Its growth was explosive. It would soon be safe from most dangers. The dragon doubled in size in the first week. Four days later it was as high as his knee. It no longer fit inside the hut in the rowan, so Aragon was forced to build a hidden shelter on the ground. The task took him three days. When the dragon was a fortnight old, Aragon was compelled to let it roam free because it needed so much food. The first time he untied it, only the force of his will kept it from following him back to the farm. Every time it tried, he pushed it away with his mind until it learned to avoid the house and its other inhabitants and he impressed on the dragon the importance of hunting only in the spine, where there was less chance of being seen. Farmers would notice if game started disappearing from Palancar Valley. It made him feel both safer and uneasy when the dragon was so far away. The mental contact he shared with the dragon waxed stronger each day. He found that although it did not comprehend words, he could communicate with it through images or emotions. It was an imprecise method, however, and he was often misunderstood. The range at which they could touch each other's thoughts expanded rapidly. Soon Aragon could contact the dragon anywhere within three leagues. He often did so, and the dragon in turn would lightly brush against his mind. These mute conversations filled his working hours. 
There was always a small part of him connected to the dragon, ignored at times, but never forgotten. When he talked with people, the contact was distracting, like a fly buzzing in his ear. As the dragon matured, its squeaks deepened to a roar, and the humming became a low rumble. Yet the dragon did not breathe fire, which concerned him. He had seen it blow smoke when it was upset, but there was never a hint of flame. When the month ended, Aragon's elbow was level with the dragon's shoulder. In that brief span it had transformed from a small, weak animal into a powerful beast. Its hard scales were as tough as chainmail armor, its teeth like daggers. Aragon took long walks in the evening with the dragon padding beside him. When they found a clearing, he would settle against a tree and watch the dragon soar through the air. He loved to see it fly and regretted that it was not yet big enough to ride. He often sat beside the dragon and rubbed its neck, feeling sinews and corded muscles flex under his hands. Despite Aragon's efforts, the forest around the farm filled with signs of the dragon's existence. It was impossible to erase all the huge four-clawed footprints sunk deep in the snow, and he refused even to try to hide the giant dung heaps that were becoming far too common. The dragon had rubbed against trees, stripping off the bark, and had sharpened its claws on dead logs, leaving gashes inches deep. If Garrow or Roran went too far beyond the farm's boundaries, they would discover the dragon. Aragon could imagine no worse way for the truth to come out, so he decided to preempt it by explaining everything to them. He wanted to do two things first, though. Give the dragon a suitable name, and learn more about dragons in general. To that end, he needed to talk with Brom, master of epics and legends, the only places where dragon lore survived. So when Roran went to get a chisel repaired in Carver Hall, Aragon volunteered to go with him. The evening before they left, Aragon went to a small clearing in the forest and called the dragon with his mind. After a moment, he saw a fast-moving speck in the dusky sky. The dragon dived toward him, pulled up sharply, then leveled off above the trees. He heard a low-pitched whistle as air rushed over its wings. It banked slowly to his left and spiralled gently down to the ground. The dragon backflapped for balance with a deep, muffled thwomp as it landed. Aragon opened his mind, still uncomfortable with the strange sensation, and told the dragon that he was leaving. It snorted with unease. He attempted to soothe it with a calming mental picture, but the dragon whipped its tail unsatisfied. He rested his hand on its shoulder and tried to radiate peace and serenity. Scales bumped under his fingers as he patted it gently. A single word ran in his head, deep and clear. Aragon. It was solemn and sad as if an unbreakable pact were being sealed. He stared at the dragon and a cold tingle ran down his arm. Aragon. A hard knot formed in his stomach as unfathomable sapphire eyes gazed back at him. For the first time he did not think of the dragon as an animal. It was something else, something different. He raced home, trying to escape the dragon. My dragon. Aragon. Tea for Two Roran and Aragon parted at the outskirts of Carvajal. Aragon walked slowly to Brom's house, engrossed in his thoughts. He stopped at the doorstep and raised his hand to knock. 
A voice rasped, What do you want, boy? He whirled around. Behind him, Brom leaned on a twisted staff embellished with strange carvings. He wore a brown hooded robe like a friar. A pouch hung from the scuffed leather belt clasped round his waist. Above his white beard, a proud eagle nose hooked over his mouth and dominated his face. He peered at Aragon with deep-set eyes shadowed by a gnarled brow and waited for his reply. To get information, Aragon said. Roran is getting a chisel fixed and I had free time, so I came to see if you could answer a few questions. The old man grunted and reached for the door. Aragon noticed a gold ring on his right hand. Light glinted off a sapphire, highlighting a strange symbol carved on its face. You might as well come in. We'll be talking a while. Your questions never seem to end. Inside, the house was darker than charcoal, an acrid smell heavy in the air. Now for a light. Aragon heard the old man move around, then a low curse as something crashed to the floor. Ah, here we go. A white spark flashed, a flame wavered into existence. Brom stood with a candle before a stone fireplace. Stacks of books surrounded a high-backed, deeply carved wooden chair that faced the mantel. The four legs were shaped like eagle claws, and the seat and back were padded with leather embossed with a swirling rose pattern. A cluster of lesser chairs held piles of scrolls. Ink pots and pens were scattered across a writing desk. Make room for yourself, but by the lost kings be careful. This stuff is valuable. Aragon stepped over pages of parchment covered with angular runes. He gently lifted crackling scrolls off a chair and placed them on the floor. A cloud of dust flew into the air as he sat. He stifled a sneeze. Brom bent down and lit the fire with his candle. Good. Nothing like sitting by a fire for conversation. He threw back his hood to reveal hair that was not white but silver, then hung a kettle over the flames and settled into the high-backed chair. Now what do you want? He addressed Aragon roughly, but not unkindly. Well, said Aragon, wondering how best to approach the subject, I keep hearing about the dragon riders and their supposed accomplishments. Most everyone seems to want them to return, but I've never heard tell of how they were started, where the dragons came from, or what made the riders special, aside from the dragons. A vast subject to tell about, grumbled Brom. He peered at Aragon alertly. If I told you their whole story, we would still be sitting here when winter comes again. It will have to be reduced to a manageable length. But before we start properly, I need my pipe. Aragon waited patiently as Brom tamped down the tobacco. He liked Brom. The old man was irascible at times, but he never seemed to mind taking time for Aragon. Aragon had once asked him where he came from, and Brom had laughed, saying, A village much like Carvajal, only not quite as interesting. Curiosity aroused, Aragon asked his uncle, but Garrow could only tell him that Brom had bought a house in Carvajal nearly fifteen years ago, and had lived there quietly ever since. Brom used a tinderbox to light the pipe. He puffed a few times, then said, There, we won't have to stop, except for the tea. Now, about the riders, or the Shotogal, as they are called by the elves, where to start? 
They spanned countless years, and at the height of their power held sway over twice the Empire's lands. Numerous stories have been told about them, most nonsense. If you believed everything said, you would expect them to have the powers of a lesser god. Scholars have devoted entire lives to separating these fictions from fact, but it's doubtful any of them will succeed. However, it isn't an impossible task if we confine ourselves to the three areas you specified, how the riders began, why they were so highly regarded, and where dragons came from. I shall start with the last item. Aragon settled back and listened to the man's mesmerizing voice. Dragons have no beginning, unless it lies with the creation of Alagasia itself. And if they have an end, it will be when this world perishes, for they suffer as the land does. They, the dwarves and a few others, are the true inhabitants of this land. They lived here before all others, strong and proud in their elemental glory. Their world was unchanging until the first elves sailed over the sea on their silver ships. Where did the elves come from? interrupted Aragon. And why are they called the Fair Folk? Do they really exist? Brom scowled. Do you want your original questions answered or not? They won't be if you want to explore every obscure piece of knowledge. Sorry, said Aragon. He dipped his head and tried to look contrite. No, you're not said Brom with some amusement. He shifted his gaze to the fire and watched it lick the underside of the kettle. If you must know, elves are not legends, and they are called the Fair Folk because they are more graceful than any of the other races. They come from what they call Alalea, though none but they know what or even where it is. Now, he glared from under his bushy eyebrows to make sure there would be no more interruptions. The elves were a proud race then, and strong in magic. At first they regarded dragons as mere animals. From that belief rose a deadly mistake. A brash elven youth hunted down a dragon as he would a stag and killed it. Outraged, the dragons ambushed and slaughtered the elf. Unfortunately, the bloodletting did not stop there. The dragons massed together and attacked the entire elven nation. Dismayed by the terrible misunderstanding, the elves tried to end the hostilities, but couldn't find a way to communicate with the dragons. Thus, to greatly abbreviate a complicated series of occurrences, there was a very long and very bloody war, which both sides later regretted. At the beginning, the elves fought only to defend themselves, for they were reluctant to escalate the fighting. But the dragon's ferocity eventually forced them to attack for their own survival. This lasted for five years, and would have continued for much longer if an elf called Aragon hadn't found a dragon egg. Aragon blinked in surprise. Ah, I see you didn't know of your namesake, said Brom. No. The tea kettle whistled stridently. Why was I named after an elf? Then you should find this all the more interesting, said Brom. He hooked the kettle out of the fire and poured boiling water into two cups. Handing one to Aragon, he warned, These leaves don't need to steep long, so drink it quickly before it gets too strong. Aragon tried a sip but scalded his tongue. Brom set his own cup aside and continued smoking the pipe. 
no one knows why that egg was abandoned. Some say the parents were killed in an elven attack. Others believe the dragons purposefully left it there. Either way, Aragorn saw the value of raising a friendly dragon. He cared for it secretly, and in the custom of the ancient language named him Bid-Dam. When Bid-Dam had grown to a good size, they travelled together among the dragons and convinced them to live in peace with the elves. Treaties were formed between the two races. To ensure that war would never break out again, they decided that it was necessary to establish the Riders. At first, the Riders were intended merely as a means of communication between the elves and dragons. However, as time passed, their worth was recognized and they were given ever more authority. Eventually, they took the island Vroengard for their home and built a city on it, Doru Ariba. Before Galbatorix overthrew them, the riders held more power than all the kings in Alagasia. Now I believe I have answered two of your questions. Yes, said Aragon absently. It seemed like an incredible coincidence that he had been named after the first rider. For some reason his name did not feel the same any more. What does Aragon mean? I don't know, said Brom. It's very old. I doubt anyone remembers except the elves, and fortune would have to smile greatly before you talked with one. It is a good name to have, though. You should be proud of it. Not everyone has one so honourable. Aragon brushed the matter from his mind and focused on what he had learned from Brom. There was something missing. I don't understand. Where were we when the riders were created? We? asked Brom, raising an eyebrow. You know, all of us. Aragon waved his hands vaguely. Humans in general. Brom laughed. We are no more native to this land than the elves. It took our ancestors another three centuries to arrive here and join the riders. That can't be, protested Aragon. We've always lived in Palancar Valley. That might be true for a few generations, but beyond that, no. It isn't even true for you, Aragon, said Brom gently. Though you consider yourself part of Garrow's family, and rightly so, your sire was not from here. Ask around and you'll find many people who haven't been here that long. This valley is old and hasn't always belonged to us. Aragon scowled and gulped at the tea. It was still hot enough to burn his throat. This was his home, regardless of who his father was. What happened to the dwarfs after the riders were destroyed? No one really knows. They fought with the riders through the first few battles, but when it became clear Galbatorix was going to win, they sealed all the known entrances to their tunnels and disappeared underground. As far as I know, not one has been seen since. And the dragons? he asked. What of them? Surely they weren't all killed? Brom answered sorrowfully. That is the greatest mystery in Alagasia nowadays. How many dragons survived Galbatorix's murderous slaughter? He spared those who agreed to serve him, but only the twisted dragons of the Forsworn would assist his madness. If any dragons, aside from Shrukun, are still alive, they have hidden themselves so they will never be found by the Empire. So where did my dragon come from? wondered Aragon. Were the Urgles here when the elves came to Alagasia?
he asked. No, they followed the elves across the sea like ticks seeking blood. They were one of the reasons the riders became valued for their battle prowess and ability to keep the peace. Much can be learned from this history. It's a pity the king makes it a delicate subject, reflected Brom. Yes, I heard your story the last time I was in town. Story! roared Brom. Lightning flashed in his eyes. If it is a story, then the rumours of my death are true, and you are speaking with a ghost. Respect the past. You never know how it may affect you. Aragon waited until Brom's face mellowed before he dared ask, How big were the dragons? A dark plume of smoke swirled above Brom like a miniature thunderstorm. Larger than a house. Even the small ones had wingspans over a hundred feet. They never stopped growing. Some of the ancient ones before the Empire killed them could have passed for large hills. Dismay swept through Aragon. How can I hide my dragon in the years to come? He raged silently, but kept his voice calm. When did they mature? Well, said Brom, scratching his chin, they couldn't breathe fire until they were around five to six months old, which was about when they could mate. The older a dragon was, the longer it could breathe fire. Some of them could keep at it for minutes. Brom blew a smoke ring and watched it float up to the ceiling. I heard that their scales shone like gems. Brom leaned forward and growled, You heard right. They came in every color and shade. It was said that a group of them looked like a living rainbow, constantly shifting and shimmering. But who told you that? Aragon froze for a second, then lied, A trader. What was his name? asked Brom. His tangled eyebrows met in a thick white line. The wrinkles deepened on his forehead. Unnoticed, the pipe smouldered out. Aragon pretended to think. I don't know. He was talking in morns, but I never found out who he was. I wish you had, muttered Brom. He also said a rider could hear his dragon's thoughts, said Aragon quickly, hoping that the fictitious trader would protect him from suspicion. Brom's eyes narrowed. Slowly he took out a tinderbox and struck the flint. Smoke rose, and he took a long pull from the pipe, exhaling slowly. In a flat voice he said, He was wrong. It isn't in any of the stories, and I know them all. Did he say anything else? Aragon shrugged. No. Brom was too interested in the trader for him to continue the falsehood. Casually he inquired, Did dragons live very long? Brom did not respond at once. His chin sank to his chest while his fingers tapped the pipe thoughtfully, light reflecting off his ring. Sorry, my mind was elsewhere. Yes, a dragon will live for quite a while, forever in fact, as long as it isn't killed and its rider doesn't die. How does anyone know that? objected Aragon. If dragons die when their riders do, they could only live to be sixty or seventy. You said during your narration, that riders live for hundreds of years, but that's impossible. It troubled him to think about living his family and friends. A quiet smile curled Brom's lips as he said slyly, What is possible is subjective. Some would say that you cannot travel through the spine and live, yet you do. It is a matter of perspective. You must be very wise to know so much at such a young age. 
Aragon flushed, and the old man chuckled. <laughs> Don't be angry. You can't be expected to know such things. You forget that the dragons were magical. They affected everything around them in strange ways. The riders were closest to them and experienced this the most. The most common side effect was an extended life. Our king has lived long enough to make that apparent, but most people attribute it to his own magical abilities. There were also other, less noticeable changes. All the riders were stronger of body, keener of mind, and truer of sight than normal men. Along with this, a human rider would slowly acquire pointed ears, though they were never as prominent as an elf's. Aragon had to stop his hand from reaching up to feel the tips of his ears. How else will this dragon change my life? Not only has it gotten inside my head, but it's altering my body as well. Were dragons very smart? Didn't you pay attention to what I told you earlier? demanded Brom. How could the elves form agreements and peace treaties with dumb brutes? They were as intelligent as you or I. But they were animals, persisted Aragon. Brom snorted. They were no more animals than we are. For some reason, people praise everything the riders did, yet ignore the dragons, assuming that they were nothing more than an exotic means to get from one town to another. They weren't. The riders' great deeds were only possible because of the dragons. How many men would draw their swords if they knew a giant fire-breathing lizard, one with more natural cunning and wisdom than even a king could hope for, would soon be there to stop the violence? Hmm? He blew another smoke ring and watched it waft away. Did you ever see one? Nay, said Brom. It was long before my time. And now for a name. I've been trying to recall the name of a certain dragon, but it keeps eluding me. I think I heard it when the traders were in Carver Hall, but I'm not sure. Could you help me? Brom shrugged and quickly listed a stream of names. There was Jura, Hirador, and Fundor, who fought the giant sea snake. Galzra, Bryam, Ohen the Strong, Gretium, Baron, Roslarp. He added many others. At the very end, he uttered so softly Aragon almost did not hear. And Sephira. Brom quietly emptied his pipe. Was it any of those? I'm afraid not, said Aragon. Brom had given him much to think about, and it was getting late. Well, Roran's probably finished with Horst. I should get back, though I'd rather not. Brom raised an eyebrow. What, is that it? I expected to be answering your questions until he came looking for you. No queries about dragon battle tactics or requests for descriptions of breathtaking aerial combat? Are we done? For now, laughed Aragon. I learned what I wanted to, and more. He stood, and Brom followed. Very well, then. He ushered Aragon to the door. Goodbye. Take care. And don't forget, if you remember who that trader was, tell me. I will. Thank you. Aragon stepped into the glaring winter sunlight, squinting. He slowly paced away, pondering what he had heard. A Name of Power on the way home, Roran said, There was a stranger from Therinsford at Horst's today. What's his name? asked Aragon. He sidestepped a patch of ice and continued walking at a brisk pace. 
his cheeks and eyes burned from the cold. Dempton, he came here to have Horst forge him some sockets, said Roran. His stocky legs ploughed through a drift, clearing the way for Aragon. Doesn't Therensford have its own smith? Yes, replied Roran, but he isn't skilled enough. He glanced at Aragon. With a shrug, he added, Dempton needs the sockets for his mill. He's expanding it and offered me a job. If I accept, I'll leave with him when he picks up the sockets. Millers worked all year. During winter, they ground whatever people brought them. But in harvest season, they bought grain and sold it as flour. It was hard, dangerous work. Workers often lost fingers or hands to the giant millstones. Are you going to tell Garrow? asked Aragon. Yes. A grimly amused smile played across Roran's face. What for? You know what he thinks about us going away. It'll only cause trouble if you say anything. Forget about it so we can eat tonight's dinner in peace. I can't. I'm going to take the job. Aragon halted. Why? They faced each other, their breath visible in the air. I know money is hard to come by, but we always manage to survive. You don't have to leave. No, I don't, but the money is for myself. Roran tried to resume walking, but Aragon refused to budge. What do you need it for? he demanded. Roran's shoulders straightened slightly. I want to marry. Bewilderment and astonishment overwhelmed Aragon. He remembered seeing Katrina and Roran kissing during the trader's visit, but marriage? Katrina, he asked weakly, just to confirm. Roran nodded. Have you asked her? Not yet, but come spring, when I can raise a house, I will. There's too much work on the farm for you to leave now, protested Aragon. Wait until we're ready for planting. No, said Roran, laughing slightly. Spring's the time I'll be needed the most. The ground will have to be furrowed and sown. The crops must be weeded, not to mention all the other chores. No, this is the best time for me to go, when all we really do is wait for the seasons to change. You and Garrow can make do without me. If all goes well, I'll soon be back working on the farm, with a wife. Aragon reluctantly conceded that Roran made sense. He shook his head, but whether with amazement or anger, he knew not. I guess I can only wish you the best of luck, but Garrow may take this with ill humour. We will see. They resumed walking, the silence a barrier between them. Aragon's heart was disturbed. It would take time before he could look upon this development with favour. When they arrived home, Roran did not tell Garrow of his plans, but Aragon was sure that he soon would. Aragon went to see the dragon for the first time since it had spoken to him. He approached apprehensively, aware now that it was an equal. Aragon. Is that all you can say? he snapped. Yes. His eyes widened at the unexpected reply, and he sat down roughly. Now it has a sense of humour. What next? Impulsively, he broke a dead branch with his foot. Roran's announcement had put him in a foul mood. A questioning thought came from the dragon, so he told it what had happened. As he talked, his voice grew steadily louder until he was yelling pointlessly into the air. He ranted until his emotions were spent, then ineffectually punched the ground. I don't want him to go, that's all, he said helplessly. The dragon watched impassively, listening and learning. Aragon mumbled a few choice curses and rubbed his eyes. He looked at the dragon thoughtfully. You need a name. 
I heard some interesting ones today. Perhaps you'll like one. He mentally ran through the list Brom had given him until he found two names that struck him as heroic, noble, and pleasing to the ear. What do you think of Vanilor or his successor, Eridor? Both were great dragons. No, said the dragon. It sounded amused with his efforts. Aragon. That's my name. You can't have it, he said, rubbing his chin. Well, if you don't like those, there are others. He continued through the list, but the dragon rejected every one he proposed. It seemed to be laughing at something Aragon did not understand, but he ignored it and kept suggesting names. There was Ingathold. He slew the... A revelation stopped him. That's the problem. I've been choosing male names. You are a she. Yes. The dragon folded her wings smugly. Now that he knew what to look for, he came up with half a dozen names. He toyed with Miramel, but that did not fit. After all, it was the name of a brown dragon. Ophelia and Lenora were also discarded. He was about to give up when he remembered the last name Brom had muttered. Aragon liked it, but would the dragon? He asked, Are you Sephira? She looked at him with intelligent eyes. Deep in his mind, he felt her satisfaction. Yes. Something clicked in his head, and her voice echoed as if from a great distance. He grinned in response. Sephira started humming. A Miller to Be The sun had set by the time dinner was served. A blustery wind howled outside, shaking the house. Aragon eyed Roran closely and waited for the inevitable. Finally, I was offered a job at Therensford's mill, which I planned to take. Garrow finished his mouthful of food with deliberate slowness and laid down his fork. He leaned back in his chair, then interlaced his fingers behind his head and uttered one dry word. Why? Roran explained, while Aragon absently picked at his food. I see, was Garrow's only comment. He fell silent and stared at the ceiling. No one moved as they awaited his response. Well, when do you leave? What? asked Roran. Garrow leaned forward with a twinkle in his eye. Did you think I would stop you? I'd hoped you would marry soon. It will be good to see this family growing again. Katrina will be lucky to have you. Astonishment raced over Roran's face, then he settled into a relieved grin. So, when do you leave? Garrow asked. Roran regained his voice. When Dempton returns to get the sockets for the mill. Garrow nodded. And that will be in... two weeks. Good. That will give us time to prepare. It'll be different to have the house to ourselves. But if nothing goes amiss, it shouldn't be for too long. He looked over the table and asked, Aragon, did you know of this? He shrugged ruefully. Not until today. It's madness. Garrow ran a hand over his face. It's life's natural course. He pushed himself up from the chair. All will be fine. Time will settle everything. For now, though, let's clean the dishes. Aragon and Roran helped him in silence. The next few days were trying. Aragon's temper was frayed. Except for curtly answering direct questions, he spoke with no one. There were small reminders everywhere that Roran was leaving. Garrow making him a pack, things missing from the walls, and a strange emptiness that filled the house. 
It was almost a week before he realized that distance had grown between Roran and him. When they spoke, the words did not come easily and their conversations were uncomfortable. Sephira was a balm for Aragon's frustration. He could talk freely with her. His emotions were completely open to her mind, and she understood him better than anyone else. During the weeks before Roran's departure, she went through another growth spurt. She gained twelve inches at the shoulder, which was now higher than Aragon's. He found that the small hollow where her neck joined her shoulders was a perfect place to sit. He often rested there in the evenings and scratched her neck while he explained the meanings of different words. Soon she understood everything he said and frequently commented on it. For Aragon, this part of his life was delightful. Sephira was as real and complex as any person. Her personality was eclectic and at times completely alien, yet they understood each other on a profound level. Her actions and thoughts constantly revealed new aspects of her character. Once she caught an eagle, and instead of eating it, released it, saying, No hunter of the sky should end his days as prey. Better to die on the wing than pinned to the ground. Aragon's plan to let his family see Sephira was dispelled by Roran's announcement and Sephira's own cautionary words. She was reluctant to be seen, and he, partly out of selfishness, agreed. The moment her existence was divulged, he knew that shouts, accusations, and fear would be directed at him, so he procrastinated. He told himself to wait for a sign that it was the right time. The night before Roran was to leave, Aragon went to talk with him. He stalked down the hallway to Roran's open door. An oil lamp rested on a nightstand, painting the walls with warm, flickering light. The bedposts cast elongated shadows on empty shelves that rose to the ceiling. Roran, his eyes shaded and the back of his neck tense, was rolling blankets around his clothes and belongings. He paused, then picked up something from the pillow and bounced it in his hand. It was a polished rock Aragon had given him years ago. Roran started to tuck it into the bundle, then stopped and set it on a shelf. A hard lump formed in Aragon's throat, and he left. Strangers in Carvajal Breakfast was cold, but the tea was hot. Ice inside the windows had melted with the morning fire and soaked into the wood floor, staining it with dark puddles. Aragon looked at Garrow and Roran by the kitchen stove and melodramatically reflected that this would be the last time he saw them together for many months. Roran sat in a chair, lacing his boots. His full pack rested on the floor next to him. Garrow stood between them with his hands stuck deep into his pockets. His shirt hung loosely. His skin looked drawn. Despite the young men's cajolings, he refused to go with them. When pressed for a reason, he only said that it was for the best. Do you have everything? Garrow asked Roran. Yes. He nodded and took a small pouch from his pocket. Coins clinked as he handed it to Roran. I've been saving this for you. It isn't much, but if you wish to buy some bauble or trinket, it will suffice. Thank you, but I won't be spending my money on trifles, said Roran. Do what you will, it is yours, said Garrow. I've nothing else to give you except a father's blessing. Take it if you wish, but it is worth little. Roran's voice was thick with emotion. I would be honoured to receive it. Then do, and go in peace, said Garrow, and kissed him on the forehead. He turned and said in a louder voice, Do not think that I have forgotten you, Aragon. I have words for both of you. It's time I said them as you are entering the world. 
Heed them, and they will serve you well. He bent his gaze sternly on them. First, let no one rule your mind or body. Take special care that your thoughts remain unfettered. One may be a free man and yet be bound tighter than a slave. Give men your ear, but not your heart. Show respect for those in power, but don't follow them blindly. Judge with logic and reason, but comment not. Consider none your superior, whatever their rank or station in life. Treat all fairly, or they will seek revenge. Be careful with your money. Hold fast to your beliefs, and others will listen. He continued at a slower pace. Of the affairs of love, my only advice is to be honest. That's your most powerful tool to unlock a heart or gain forgiveness. That is all I have to say. He seemed slightly self-conscious of his speech. He hoisted Roran's pack. Now you must go. Dawn is approaching and Dempton will be waiting. Roran shouldered the pack and hugged Garrow. I will return as soon as I can, he said. Good, replied Garrow. But now go and don't worry about us. They parted reluctantly. Aragon and Roran went outside, then turned and waved. Garrow raised a bony hand, his eyes grave, and watched as they trudged to the road. After a long moment, he shut the door. As the sound carried through the morning air, Roran halted. Aragon looked back and surveyed the land. His eyes lingered on the lone buildings. They looked pitifully small and fragile. A thin finger of smoke trailing up from the house was the only proof that the snowbound farm was inhabited. There is our whole world, Roran observed somberly. Aragon shivered impatiently and grumbled, A good one, too. Roran nodded, then straightened his shoulders and headed into his new future. The house disappeared from view as they descended the hill. It was still early when they reached Carver Hall, but they found the smithy doors already open. The air inside was pleasantly warm. Baldor slowly worked two large bellows attached to the side of a stone forge filled with sparkling coals. Before the forge stood a black anvil and an iron-bound barrel filled with brine. From a line of neck-high poles protruding from the walls hung rows of items, giant tongs, pliers, hammers in every shape and weight, chisels, angles, centre-punches, files, rasps, lathes, bars of iron and steel, waiting to be shaped, vices, shears, picks and shovels. Horst and Dempton stood next to a long table. Dempton approached with a smile beneath his flamboyant red moustache. Roran, I'm glad you came. There's going to be more work than I can handle with my new grindstones. Are you ready to go? Roran hefted his pack. Yes. Do we leave soon? I've a few things to take care of first, but we'll be off within the hour. Aragon shifted his feet as Dempton turned to him, tugging at the corner of his moustache. You must be Aragon. I would offer you a job too, but Roran got the only one. Maybe in a year or two, eh? Aragon smiled uneasily and shook his hand. The man was friendly. Under other circumstances, Aragon would have liked him, but right then he sourly wished that the miller had never come to Carverhall. Dempton huffed. Good, very good. He returned his attention to Roran and started to explain how a mill worked. They're ready to go, interrupted Horst, gesturing at the table where several bundles rested. You can take them whenever you want to. They shook hands, then Horst left the smithy, beckoning to Aragon on the way out. 
Interested, Aragon followed. He found the smith standing in the street with his arms crossed. Aragon thrust his thumb back toward the miller and asked, What do you think of him? Horst rumbled. A good man. He'll do fine with Roran. He absently brushed metal filings off his apron, then put a massive hand on Aragon's shoulder. Lad, do you remember the fight you had with Sloane? If you're asking about payment for the meat, I haven't forgotten. No, I trust you, lad. What I wanted to know is if you still have that blue stone. Aragon's heart fluttered. Why does he want to know? Maybe someone saw Saphira. Struggling not to panic, he said, I do, but why do you ask? As soon as you return home, get rid of it. Horst overrode Aragon's exclamation. Two men arrived here yesterday. Strange fellows dressed in black and carrying swords. It made my skin crawl just to look at them. Last evening they started asking people if a stone like yours had been found. They're at it again today. Aragon blanched. No one with any sense said anything. They know trouble when they see it. But I could name a few people who will talk. Dread filled Aragon's heart. Whoever had sent the stone into the spine had finally tracked it down. Or perhaps the Empire had learned of Severa. He did not know which would be worse. Think, think. The egg is gone. It's impossible for them to find it now. But if they know what it was, it'll be obvious what happened. Safira might be in danger. It took all of his self-control to retain a casual air. Thanks for telling me. Do you know where they are? He was proud that his voice barely trembled. I didn't warn you because I thought you needed to meet those men. Leave Carvajal. Go home. All right, said Aragon, to placate the smith. If you think I should. I do. Horst's face softened. I may be overreacting, but these strangers give me a bad feeling. It would be better if you stay home until they leave. I'll try to keep them away from your farm, though it may not do any good. Aragon looked at him gratefully. He wished he could tell him about Saphira. I'll leave now, he said, and hurried back to Roran. Aragon clasped his cousin's arm and bade him farewell. Aren't you going to stay a while? Roran asked with surprise. Aragon almost laughed. For some reason, the question struck him as funny. There's nothing for me to do, and I'm not going to stand around until you go. Well, said Roran doubtfully, I guess this is the last time we'll see each other for a few months. I'm sure it won't seem that long, said Aragon hastily. Take care and come back soon. He hugged Roran, then left. Horst was still in the street. Aware that the smith was watching, Aragon headed to the outskirts of Carvajal. Once the smithy was out of sight, he ducked behind a house and sneaked back through the village. Aragon kept to the shadows as he searched each street, listening for the slightest noise. His thoughts flashed to his room where his bow hung. He wished that it was in his hand. He prowled across Carvajal, avoiding everyone until he heard a sibilant voice from around a house. Although his ears were keen, he had to strain to hear what was being said. When did this happen? The words were smooth like oiled glass and seemed to worm their way through the air. Underlying the speech was a strange hiss that made his scalp prickle. About three months ago, someone else answered. Aragon identified him as Sloane. Shades, blood, he's telling them... He resolved to punch Sloane the next time they met. A third person spoke. The voice was deep and moist. It conjured up images of creeping decay, mould, and other things best left untouched. Are you sure? 
We would hate to think you had made a mistake. If that were so, it would be most unpleasant. Aragon could imagine only too well what they might do. Would anyone but the Empire dare threaten people like that? Probably not. But whoever sent the egg might be powerful enough to use force with impunity. Yeah, I'm sure. He had it then. I'm not lying. Plenty of people know about it. Go ask them. Sloane sounded shaken. He said something else that Aragon did not catch. They have been rather uncooperative. The words were derisive. There was a pause. Your information has been helpful. We will not forget you. Aragon believed him. Sloane muttered something. Then Aragon heard someone hurrying away. He peered around the corner to see what was happening. Two tall men stood in the street. Both were dressed in long black cloaks that were lifted by sheaths poking past their legs. On their shirts were insignias, intricately wrought with silver thread. Hoods shaded their faces, and their hands were covered by gloves. Their backs were oddly humped, as though their clothes were stuffed with padding. Aragon shifted slightly to get a better view. One of the strangers stiffened and grunted peculiarly to his companion. They both swiveled around and sank into crouches. Aragon's breath caught. Mortal fear clenched him. His eyes locked onto their hidden faces, and a stifling power fell over his mind, keeping him in place. He struggled against it and screamed to himself, Move! His legs swayed, but to no avail. The strangers stalked toward him with a smooth, noiseless gait. He knew they could see his face now. They were almost to the corner, hands grasping at swords. Aragon! He jerked as his name was called. The strangers froze in place and hissed. Brom hurried toward him from the side, head bare and staff in hand. The strangers were blocked from the old man's view. Aragon tried to warn him, but his tongue and arms would not stir. Aragon, cried Brom again. The strangers gave Aragon one last look, then slipped away between the houses. Aragon collapsed to the ground, shivering. Sweat beaded on his forehead and made his palms sticky. The old man offered Aragon a hand and pulled him up with a strong arm. You look sick. Is all well? Aragon gulped and nodded mutely. His eyes flickered around, searching for anything unusual. I just got dizzy all of a sudden. It's past. It was very odd. I don't know why it happened. You'll recover, said Brom. But perhaps it would be better if you went home. Yes, I have to get home. Have to get there before they do. I think you're right. Maybe I'm getting ill. Then home is the best place for you. It's a long walk, but I'm sure you will feel better by the time you arrive. Let me escort you to the road. Aragon did not protest as Brom took his arm and led him away at a quick pace. Brom's staff crunched in the snow as they passed the houses. Why were you looking for me? Brom shrugged. Simple curiosity. I learned you were in town and wondered if you had remembered the name of that trader. Trader? What's he talking about? Aragon stared blankly. His confusion caught the attention of Brom's probing eyes. No, he said, and then amended himself. I'm afraid I still don't remember. Brom sighed gruffly, as if something had been confirmed, and rubbed his eagle nose. Well then, if you do, come tell me. I am most interested in this trader who pretends to know so much about dragons. Aragon nodded with a distracted air. They walked in silence to the road. Then Brom said, Hasten home.
I don't think it would be a good idea to tarry on the way. He offered a gnarled hand. Aragon shook it, but as he let go, something in Brom's hand caught on his mitt and pulled it off. It fell to the ground. The old man picked it up. Clumsy of me, he apologized and handed it back. As Aragon took the mitt, Brom's strong fingers wrapped around his wrist and twisted sharply. His palm briefly faced upward, revealing the silvery mark. Brom's eyes glinted, but he let Aragon yank his hand back and jam it into the mitt. Goodbye, Aragon forced out, perturbed, and hurried down the road. Behind him, he heard Brom whistling a merry tune. Flight of Destiny Aragon's mind churned as he sped on his way. He ran as fast as he could, refusing to stop even when his breath came in great gasps. As he pounded down the cold road, he cast out with his mind for Safira, but she was too far away for him to contact. He thought about what to say to Garrow. There was no choice now. He would have to reveal Safira. He arrived home, panting for air and heart pounding. Garrow stood by the barn with the horses. Aragon hesitated. Should I talk to him now? He won't believe me unless Safira is here. I'd better find her first. He slipped around the farm and into the forest. Safira! he shouted with his thoughts. I come, was the dim reply. Through the words he sensed her alarm. He waited impatiently, though it was not long before the sound of her wings filled the air. She landed amid a gout of smoke. What happened? she queried. He touched her shoulder and closed his eyes. Calming his mind, he quickly told her what had occurred. When he mentioned the strangers, Safira recoiled. She reared and roared deafeningly, then whipped her tail over his head. He scrambled back in surprise, ducking as her tail hit a snowdrift. Bloodlust and fear emanated from her in great, sickening waves. Fire! Enemies! Death! Murderers! What's wrong? He put all of his strength into the words, but an iron wall surrounded her mind, shielding her thoughts. She let out another roar and gouged the earth with her claws, tearing the frozen ground. Stop it! Garrow will hear! Oats betrayed, souls killed, eggs shattered, blood everywhere, murderers! Frantic, he blocked out Sephira's emotions and watched her tail. When it flicked past him, he dashed to her side and grabbed a spike on her back. Clutching it, he pulled himself into the small hollow at the base of her neck and held on tightly as she reared again. Enough, Safira! he bellowed. Her stream of thoughts ceased abruptly. He ran a hand over her scales. Everything is going to be all right. She crouched and her wings rushed upward. They hung there for an instant, then drove down as she flung herself into the sky. Aragon yelled as the ground dropped away and they rose above the trees. Turbulence buffeted him, snatching the breath out of his mouth. Safira ignored his terror and banked toward the spine. Underneath he glimpsed the farm and the Enora River. His stomach convulsed. He tightened his arms around Safira's neck and concentrated on the scales in front of his nose, trying not to vomit as she continued to climb. When she leveled off, he gained the courage to glance around. The air was so cold that frost accumulated on his eyelashes. They had reached the mountains faster than he had thought possible. From the air, the peaks looked like giant razor-sharp teeth waiting to slash them to ribbons. Safira wobbled unexpectedly, and Aragon heaved over her side. He wiped his lips, tasting bile, and buried his head against her neck. We have to go back, 
he pleaded. The strangers are coming to the farm. Garrow has to be warned. Turn around. There was no answer. He reached for her mind but was blocked by a barrier of roiling fear and anger. Determined to make her turn around, he grimly wormed into her mental armour. He pushed at its weak places, undermined the stronger sections, and fought to make her listen, but to no avail. Soon mountains surrounded them, forming tremendous white walls broken by granite cliffs. Blue glaciers sat between the summits like frozen rivers. Long valleys and ravines opened beneath them. He heard the dismayed screech of birds far below as Sephira soared into view. He saw a herd of woolly goats bounding from ledge to ledge on a rocky bluff. Aragon was battered by swirling gusts from Sephira's wings, and whenever she moved her neck he was tossed from side to side. She seemed tireless. He was afraid she was going to fly through the night. Finally, as darkness fell, she tilted into a shallow dive. He looked ahead and saw that they were headed for a small clearing in a valley. Sephira spiralled down, leisurely drifting over the treetops. She pulled back as the ground neared, filled her wings with air, and landed on her rear legs. Her powerful muscles rippled as they absorbed the shock of impact. She dropped to all fours and skipped a step to keep her balance. Aragon slid off without waiting for her to fold her wings. As he struck the ground, his knees buckled and his cheeks slammed against the snow. He gasped as excruciating pain seared through his legs, sending tears to his eyes. His muscles, cramped from clenching for so long, shook violently. He rolled onto his back, shivering, and stretched his limbs as best he could. Then he forced himself to look down. Two large blots darkened his wool pants on the insides of his thighs. He touched the fabric. It was wet. Alarmed, he peeled off the pants and grimaced. The insides of his legs were raw and bloody. The skin was gone, rubbed off by Sephira's hard scales. He gingerly felt the abrasions and winced. Cold bit into him as he pulled the pants back on, and he cried out as they scraped against the sensitive wounds. He tried to stand, but his legs would not support him. The deepening night obscured his surroundings, and the shaded mountains were unfamiliar. I'm in the spine. I don't know where, during the middle of winter, with a crazed dragon, unable to walk or find shelter. Night is falling. I have to get back to the farm tomorrow. And the only way to do that is to fly, which I can't endure any more. He took a deep breath. Oh, I wish Sephira could breathe fire. He turned his head and saw her next to him, crouched low to the ground. He put a hand on her side and found it trembling. The barrier in her mind was gone. Without it, her fear scorched through him. He clamped down on it and slowly smoothed her with gentle images. Why do the strangers frighten you? Murderers, she hissed. Garrow is in danger, and you kidnap me on this ridiculous journey. Are you unable to protect me? She growled deeply and snapped her jaws. Ah, oh, but if you think you can, why run? Death is a poison. He leaned on one elbow and stifled his frustration. Sephira, look where we are. The sun is down, and your flight has stripped my legs as easily as I would scale a fish. Is that what you wanted? No. Then why did you do it? he demanded. Through his link with Sephira, he felt her regret for his pain, but not for her actions. She looked away and refused to answer. The icy temperature deadened Aragon's legs. Although it lessened the pain, he knew that his condition was not good. He changed tack. 
I'm going to freeze unless you make me a shelter or hollow so I can stay warm. Even a pile of pine needles and branches would do. She seemed relieved that he had stopped interrogating her. There is no need. I will curl around you and cover you with my wings. The fire inside me will stay the cold. Aragon let his head thump back on the ground. Fine, but scrape the snow off the ground. It'll be more comfortable. In answer, Sephira raised a drift with her tail, clearing it with one powerful stroke. She swept over the side again to remove the last few inches of hardened snow. He eyed the exposed dirt with distaste. I can't walk over there. You'll have to help me to it. Her head, larger than his torso, swung over him and came to rest by his side. He stared at her large, sapphire-coloured eyes and wrapped his hands around one of her ivory spikes. She lifted her head and slowly dragged him to the bare spot. Gently, gently. Stars danced in his eyes as he slid over a rock, but he managed to hold on. After he let go, Sephira rolled on her side, exposing her warm belly. He huddled against the smooth scales of her underside. Her right wing extended over him and enclosed him in complete darkness, forming a living tent. Almost immediately, the air began to lose its frigidity. He pulled his arms inside his coat and tied the empty sleeves around his neck. For the first time he noticed that hunger gnawed at his stomach, but it did not distract him from his main worry. Could he get back to the farm before the strangers did? And if not, what would happen? Even if I can force myself to ride Sephira again, it'll be at least mid-afternoon before we get back. The strangers could be there long before that. He closed his eyes and felt a single tear slide down his face. What have I done? The Doom of Innocence When Aragon opened his eyes in the morning, he thought the sky had fallen. An unbroken plain of blue stretched over his head and slanted to the ground. Still half asleep, he reached out tentatively and felt a thin membrane under his fingers. It took him a long minute to realize what he was staring at. He bent his neck slightly and glared at the scaly haunch his head rested on. Slowly, he pushed his legs out from his fetal curl, scabs cracking. The pain had subsided some from yesterday, but he shrank from the thought of walking. Burning hunger reminded him of his missed meals. He summoned the energy to move and pounded weakly on Sephira's side. Hey, wake up! he yelled. She stirred and lifted her wing to admit a torrent of sunshine. He squinted as the snow momentarily blinded him. Beside him, Sephira stretched like a cat and yawned, flashing rows of white teeth. When Aragon's eyes adjusted, he examined where they were. Imposing and unfamiliar mountains surrounded them, casting deep shadows on the clearing. Off to one side, he saw a trail cut through the snow and into the forest, where he could hear the muffled gurgling of a creek. Groaning, he stood and swayed, then stiffly hobbled to a tree. He grabbed one of its branches and threw his weight against it. It held, then broke with a loud crack. He ripped off the twigs, fit one end of the branch under his arm, and planted the other firmly in the ground. With the help of his improvised crutch, he limped to the iced-over creek. He broke through the hard shell and cupped the clear, bitter water. Sated, he returned to the clearing. As he emerged from the trees, he finally recognized the mountains and the lay of the land. This was where, amid deafening sound, Sephira's egg had first appeared. He sagged against a rough trunk. There could be no mistake. 
for now he saw the grey trees that had been stripped of their needles in the explosion. How did Sephira know where this was? She was still in the ache. My memories must have given her enough information to find it. He shook his head in silent astonishment. Sephira was waiting patiently for him. Will you take me home? he asked her. She cocked her head. I know you don't want to, but you must. Both of us carry an obligation to Garrow. He has cared for me, and through me, you. Would you ignore that debt? What will be said of us in years to come if we don't return? That we hid like cowards while my uncle was in danger? I can hear it now, the story of the rider and his craven dragon. If there will be a fight, let's face it and not shy away. You are a dragon. Even a shade would run from you. Yet you crouch in the mountains like a frightened rabbit. Aragon meant to anger her, and he succeeded. A growl rippled in her throat as her head jabbed within a few inches of his face. She bared her fangs and glared at him, smoke trailing from her nostrils. He hoped that he had not gone too far. Her thoughts reached him, red with anger. Blood will meet blood. I will fight. Our weirds, our fates bind us. But try me not. I will take you because of debt owed, but into foolishness we fly. Foolishness or not, he said into the air, there is no choice, we must go. He ripped his shirt in half and stuffed a piece into each side of his pants. Gingerly, he hoisted himself onto Sephira and took a tight hold on her neck. This time, he told her, fly lower and faster, time is of the essence. Don't let go, she cautioned then surged into the sky. They rose above the forest and levelled out immediately, barely staying above the branches. Aragon's stomach lurched. He was glad it was empty. Faster, faster, he urged. She said nothing, but the beat of her wings increased. He screwed his eyes shut and hunched his shoulders. He had hoped that the extra padding of his shirt would protect him, but every movement sent pangs through his legs. Soon lines of hot blood trickled down his calves. Concern emanated from Sephira. She went even faster now, her wings straining. The land sped past as if it were being pulled out from under them. Aragon imagined that to someone on the ground they were just a blur. By early afternoon, Palankar Valley lay before them. Clouds obscured his vision to the south. Carvajal was to the north. Sephira glided down while Aragon searched for the farm. When he spotted it, fear jolted him. A black plume with orange flames dancing at its base rose from the farm. Sephira, he pointed. Get me down there, now! She locked her wings and tilted into a steep dive, hurtling groundward at a frightening rate. Then she altered her dive slightly, so they sped toward the forest. He yelled over the screaming air, Land in the fields! He held on tighter as they plummeted. Sephira waited until they were only a hundred feet off the ground before driving her wings downward in several powerful strokes. She landed heavily, breaking his grip. He crashed to the ground, then staggered upright, gasping for breath. The house had been blasted apart. Timbers and boards that had been walls and roof were strewn across a wide area. The wood was pulverized as if a giant hammer had smashed it. Sooty shingles lay everywhere. A few twisted metal plates were all that remained of the stove. The snow was perforated with smashed white crockery and chunks of bricks from the chimney. Thick, oily smoke billowed from the barn, which burned fiercely. The farm animals were gone, either killed or frightened away. Uncle! 
Aragon ran to the wreckage, hunting through the destroyed rooms for Garrow. There was no sign of him. Uncle! Aragon cried again. Sephira walked around the house and came to his side. Sorrow breeds here, she said. This wouldn't have happened if you hadn't run away with me. You would not be alive if we had stayed. Look at this, he screamed. We could have warned Garrow. It's your fault he didn't get away. He slammed his fist against a pole, splitting the skin on his knuckles. Blood dripped down his fingers as he stalked out of the house. He stumbled to the path that led to the road and bent down to examine the snow. Several tracks were before him, but his vision was blurry and he could barely see. Am I going blind? he wondered. With a shaking hand, he touched his cheeks and found them wet. A shadow fell on him as Sephira loomed overhead, sheltering him with her wings. Take comfort. All may not be lost. He looked up at her, searching for hope. Examine the trail. My eyes see only two sets of prints. Garrow could not have been taken from here. He focused on the trampled snow. The faint imprints of two pairs of leather boots headed toward the house. On top of those were traces of the same two sets of boots leaving, and whoever had made the departing tracks had been carrying the same weight as when they arrived. You're right. Garrow has to be here. He leapt to his feet and hurried back to the house. I will search around the buildings and in the forest, said Sophira. Aragon scrambled into the remains of the kitchen and frantically started digging through a pile of rubble. Pieces of debris that he could not have moved normally now seemed to shift on their own accord. A cupboard mostly intact stymied him for a second, then he heaved and sent it flying. As he pulled on a board, something rattled behind him. He spun around, ready for an attack. A hand extended from under a section of collapsed roof. It moved weakly, and he grasped it with a cry. Uncle, can you hear me? There was no response. Aragon tore at pieces of wood, heedless of the splinters that pierced his hands. He quickly exposed an arm and shoulder, but was barred by a heavy beam. He threw his shoulder at it and shoved with every fibre of his being, but it defied his efforts. Sephira, I need you! She came immediately. Wood cracked under her feet as she crawled over the ruined walls. Without a word, she nosed past him and set her side against the beam. Her claws sunk into what was left of the floor, her muscles strained. With a grating sound, the beam lifted, and Aragon rushed under it. Garrow lay on his stomach, his clothes mostly torn off. Aragon pulled him out of the rubble. As soon as they were clear, Sephira released the beam, leaving it to crash to the floor. Aragon dragged Garrow out of the destroyed house and eased him to the ground. Dismayed, he touched his uncle gently. His skin was grey, lifeless and dry, as if a fever had burned off any sweat. His lip was split, and there was a long scrape on his cheekbone, but that was not the worst. Deep, ragged burns covered most of his body. They were chalky white and oozed clear liquid. A cloying, sickening smell hung over him, the odour of rotting fruit. His breath came in short jerks, each one sounding like a death rattle. Murderers, hissed Sephira. Don't say that. He can still be saved. We have to get him to Gertrude. I can't carry him to Carvajal, though. Sevira presented an image of Garrow hanging under her while she flew. Can you lift, both of us? I must. Aragon dug through the rubble until he found a board and leather thongs. 
He had Sephira pierce a hole with a claw at each of the board's corners, then he looped a piece of leather through each hole and tied them to her forelegs. After checking to make sure the knots were secure, he rolled Garrow onto the board and lashed him down. As he did, a scrap of black cloth fell from his uncle's hand. It matched the stranger's clothing. He angrily stuffed it in a pocket, mounted Sephira, and closed his eyes as his body settled into a steady throb of pain. Now! She leapt up, hind legs digging into the ground. Her wings clawed at the air as she slowly climbed. Tendons strained and popped as she battled gravity. For a long, painful second, nothing happened. But then she lunged forward powerfully and they rose higher. Once they were over the forest, Aragon told her, Follow the road. It'll give you enough room if you have to land. I might be seen. It doesn't matter anymore. She argued no further as she veered to the road and headed for Carvajal. Garrow swung wildly underneath them. Only the slender leather cords kept him from falling. The extra weight slowed Safira. Before long, her head sagged and there was froth at her mouth. She struggled to continue, yet they were almost a league from Carvajal when she locked her wings and sank toward the road. Her hind feet touched with a shower of snow. Aragon tumbled off her, landing heavily on his side to avoid hurting his legs. He struggled to his feet and worked to untie the leather from Safira's legs. Her thick panting filled the air. Find a safe place to rest, he said. I don't know how long I'll be gone, so you're going to have to take care of yourself for a while. I'll wait, she said. He gritted his teeth and began to drag Garrow down the road. The first few steps sent an explosion of agony through him. I can't do this, he howled at the sky, then took a few more steps. His mouth locked into a snarl. He stared at the ground between his feet as he forced himself to hold a steady pace. It was a fight against his unruly body, a fight he refused to lose. The minutes dragged by at an excruciating rate. Each yard he covered seemed many times that. With desperation he wondered if Carvajal still existed or if the strangers had burned it down too. After a time, through a haze of pain, he heard shouting and looked up. Brom was running toward him, eyes large, hair awry, and one side of his head caked with dried blood. He waved his arms wildly before dropping his staff and grabbing Aragon's shoulders, saying something in a loud voice. Aragon blinked uncomprehendingly. Without warning, the ground rushed up to meet him. He tasted blood, then blacked out. Death Watch Dreams roiled in Aragon's mind, breeding and living by their own laws. He watched as a group of people on proud horses approached a lonely river. Many had silver hair and carried tall lances. A strange, fair ship waited for them, shining under a bright moon. The figures slowly boarded the vessel. Two of them, taller than the rest, walked arm in arm. Their faces were obscured by cowls, but he could tell that one was a woman. They stood on the deck of the ship and faced the shore. A man stood alone on the pebble beach, the only one who had not boarded the ship. He threw back his head and let out a long, aching cry. As it faded, the ship glided down the river without a breeze or oars, out into the flat, empty land. The vision clouded, but just before it disappeared, Aragon glimpsed two dragons in the sky. Aragon was first aware of the creaking, back and forth, back and forth. 
The persistent sound made him open his eyes and stare at the underside of a thatched roof. A rough blanket was draped over him, concealing his nakedness. Someone had bandaged his legs and tied a clean rag around his knuckles. He was in a single-room hut. A mortar and pestle sat on a table with bowls and plants. Rows of dried herbs hung from the walls and suffused the air with strong, earthy aromas. Flames writhed inside a fireplace, before which sat a rotund woman in a wicker rocking chair. The town healer, Gertrude. Her head lolled, eyes closed. A pair of knitting needles and a ball of wool thread rested in her lap. Though Aragon felt drained of willpower, he made himself sit up. That helped to clear his mind. He sifted through his memories of the last two days. His first thought was of Garrow, and his second was of Sephira. I hope she's in a safe place. He tried to contact her but could not. Wherever she was, it was far from Carvajal. At least Brom got me to Carvajal. I wonder what happened to him. There was all that blood. Gertrude stirred and opened her sparkling eyes. Oh, she said. You're awake. Good. Her voice was rich and warm. How do you feel? Well enough. Where's Garrow? Gertrude dragged the chair close to the bed. Over at Horst's, there wasn't enough room to keep both of you here. And let me tell you, it's kept me on my toes having to run back and forth, checking to see if the two of you were all right. Aragon swallowed his worries and asked, How is he? There was a long delay as she examined her hands. Not good. He has a fever that refuses to break and his injuries aren't healing. I have to see him. He tried to get up. Not until you eat, she said sharply, pushing him down. I didn't spend all this time sitting by your side so you can get back up and hurt yourself. Half the skin on your legs was torn off and your fever broke only last night. Don't worry yourself about Garrow. He'll be fine. He's a tough man. Gertrude hung a kettle over the fire, then began chopping parsnips for soup. How long have I been here? Two full days. Two days? That meant his last meal had been four mornings ago. Just thinking about it made Aragon feel weak. Sephira's been on her own this entire time. I hope she's all right. The whole town wants to know what happened. They sent men down to your farm and found it destroyed. Aragon nodded. He had expected that. Your barn was burned down. Is that how Garrow was injured? I... I don't know, said Aragon. I wasn't there when it happened. Well, no matter. I'm sure it'll all get untangled. Gertrude resumed knitting while the soup cooked. That's quite a scar on your palm. He reflexively clenched his hand. Yes. How did you get it? Several possible answers came to mind. He chose the simplest one. I've had it ever since I can remember. I never asked Garrow where it came from. Hmm. The silence remained unbroken until the soup reached a rolling boil. Gertrude poured it in a bowl and handed it to Aragon with a spoon. He accepted it gratefully and took a cautious sip. It was delicious. When he finished, he asked, Can I visit Garrow now? Gertrude sighed. You're a determined one, aren't you? Well, if you really want to, I won't stop you. Put on your clothes and we'll go. She turned her back as he struggled into his pants, wincing as they dragged over the bandages, and then slipped on his shirt. Gertrude helped him stand. His legs were weak, 
but they did not pain him like before. Take a few steps, she commanded, then dryly observed, At least you won't have to crawl there. Outside, a blustery wind blew smoke from the adjacent buildings into their faces. Storm clouds hid the spine and covered the valley, while a curtain of snow advanced toward the village, obscuring the foothills. Aragon leaned heavily on Gertrude as they made their way through Carver Hall. Horst had built his two-story house on a hill so he could enjoy a view of the mountains. He had lavished all of his skill on it. The shale roof shadowed a railed balcony that extended from a tall window on the second floor. Each waterspout was a snarling gargoyle, and every window and door was framed by carvings of serpents, hearts, ravens, and knotted vines. The door was opened by Elaine, Horst's wife, a small, willowy woman with refined features and silky blonde hair pinned into a bun. Her dress was demure and neat, and her movements graceful. "'Please, come in,' she said softly. They stepped over the threshold into a large, well-lit room. A staircase with a polished balustrade curbed down to the floor. The walls were the colour of honey. Elaine gave Aragon a sad smile, but addressed Gertrude. I was just about to send for you. He isn't doing well. You should see him right away. Elaine, you'll have to help Aragon up the stairs, Gertrude said, then hurried up them two at a time. It's okay. I can do it myself. Are you sure? asked Elaine. He nodded, but she looked doubtful. Well, as soon as you're done, come visit me in the kitchen. I have a fresh-baked pie you might enjoy. As soon as she left, he sagged against the wall, welcoming the support. Then he started up the stairs, one painful step at a time. When he reached the top, he looked down a long hallway dotted with doors. The last one was open slightly. Taking a breath, he lurched toward it. Katrina stood by a fireplace, boiling rags. She looked up, murmured a condolence, and then returned to her work. Gertrude stood beside her, grinding herbs for a poultice. A bucket by her feet held snow melting into ice water. Garrow lay on a bed, piled high with blankets. Sweat covered his brow, and his eyeballs flickered blindly under their lids. The skin on his face was shrunken like a cadaver's. He was still, save for subtle tremors from his shallow breathing. Aragon touched his uncle's forehead with a feeling of unreality. It burned against his hand. He apprehensively lifted the edge of the blankets and saw that Garrow's many wounds were bound with strips of cloth. Where the bandages were being changed, the burns were exposed to the air. They had not begun to heal. Aragon looked at Gertrude with hopeless eyes. Can't you do anything about these? She pressed a rag into the bucket of ice water, then draped the cool cloth over Garrow's head. I've tried everything. Salves, poultices, tinctures, but nothing works. If the wounds closed, he would have a better chance. Still, things may turn for the better. He's hardy and strong. Aragon moved to a corner and sank to the floor. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Silence swallowed his thoughts. He stared blankly at the bed. After a while, he noticed Katrina kneeling beside him. She put an arm around him. When he did not respond, she diffidently left. Sometime later, the door opened and Horst came in. He talked to Gertrude in a low voice, then approached Aragon. Come on. You need to get out of here. Before Aragon could protest, Horst dragged him to his feet and shepherded him out the door. I want to stay, he complained. You need a break and fresh air. 
Don't worry, you can go back soon enough, consoled Horst. Aragon grudgingly let the smith help him downstairs into the kitchen. Heady smells from half a dozen dishes rich with spices and herbs filled the air. Albrake and Baldor were there, talking with their mother, Elaine, as she needed bread. The brothers fell silent as they saw Aragon, but he had heard enough to know that they were discussing Garrow. Here, sit down, said Horst, offering a chair. Aragon sank into it gratefully. Thank you. His hands were shaking slightly, so he clasped them in his lap. A plate piled high with food was set before him. You don't have to eat, said Elaine, but it's there if you want. She returned to her cooking as he picked up a fork. He could barely swallow a few bites. How do you feel? asked Horst. Terrible. The smith waited a moment. I know this isn't the best time, but we need to know what happened. I don't really remember. Aragon, said Horst, leaning forward. I was one of the people who went out to your farm. Your house didn't just fall apart. Something tore it to pieces. Surrounding it were tracks of a gigantic beast I've never seen or heard of before. Others saw them too. Now if there's a shade or a monster roaming around, we have to know. You're the only one who can tell us. Aragon knew he had to lie. When I left Carvajal, he counted up the time. Four days ago, there were strangers in town asking about a stone like the one I found. He gestured at Horst. You talked to me about them, and because of that I hurried home. All eyes were upon him. He licked his lips. Nothing, nothing happened that night. The next morning I finished my chores and went walking in the forest. Before long I heard an explosion and saw smoke above the trees. I rushed back as fast as I could, but whoever did it was already gone. I dug through the wreckage and found Garrow. So then you put him on the plank and dragged him back? asked Albrecht. Yes, said Aragon. But before I left, I looked at the path to the road. There were two pairs of tracks on it, both of them men. He dug in his pocket and pulled out the scrap of black fabric. This was clenched in Garrow's hand. I think it matches what those strangers were wearing. He set it on the table. It does, said Horst. He looked both thoughtful and angry. And what of your legs? How were they injured? I'm not sure, said Aragon, shaking his head. I think it happened when I dug Garrow out, but I don't know. It wasn't until the blood started dripping down my legs that I noticed it. That's horrible, exclaimed Elaine. We should pursue those men, stated Albrecht hotly. They can't get away with this. With a pair of horses we could catch them tomorrow and bring them back here. Put that foolishness out of your head, said Horst. They could probably pick you up like a baby and throw you in a tree. Remember what happened to the house? We don't want to get in the way of those people. Besides, they have what they want now. He looked at Aragon. They did take the stone, didn't they? It wasn't in the house. Then there's no reason for them to return now that they have it. He gave Aragon a piercing look. You didn't mention anything about those strange tracks. Do you know where they came from? Aragon shook his head. I didn't see them. Baldor abruptly spoke. I don't like this. Too much of this rings of wizardry. Who are those men? Are they shades? Why did they want the stone? And how could they have destroyed the house except with dark powers? You may be right, father. The stone might be all they wanted. But I think we will see them again. Silence followed his words. 
Something had been overlooked, though Aragon was not sure what. Then it struck him. With a sinking heart, he voiced his suspicion. Roran doesn't know, does he? How could I have forgotten him? Horst shook his head. He and Dempton left a little while after you. Unless they ran into some difficulty on the road, they've been in Therensford for a couple of days now. We were going to send a message, but the weather was too cold yesterday and the day before. Balder and I were about to leave when you woke up, offered Ulbrick. Horst ran a hand through his beard. Go on, both of you. I'll help you saddle the horses. Baldor turned to Aragon. I'll break it to him gently, he promised, then followed Horst and Albrecht out of the kitchen. Aragon remained at the table, his eyes focused on a knot in the wood. Every excruciating detail was clear to him, the twisting grain, an asymmetrical bump, three little ridges with a fleck of colour. The knot was filled with endless detail. The closer he looked, the more he saw. He searched for answers in it, but if there were any, they eluded him. A faint call broke through his pounding thoughts. It sounded like yelling from outside. He ignored it. Let someone else deal with it. Several minutes later, he heard it again, louder than before. Angrily, he blocked it out. Why can't they be quiet? Garrow's resting. He glanced at Elaine, but she did not seem to be bothered by the noise. Heragon! The roar was so strong, he almost fell out of the chair. He peered around in alarm, but nothing had changed. He suddenly realized that the shouts had been inside his head. Safira? he asked anxiously. There was a pause. Yes, Stony is. Relief seeped into him. Where are you? She sent him an image of a small clump of trees. I tried to contact you many times, but you were beyond reach. I was sick, but I'm better now. Why couldn't I sense you earlier? After two nights of waiting, hunger bested me. I had to hunt. Did you catch anything? A young buck. He was wise enough to guard against the predators of land, but not those of sky. When I first caught him in my jaws, he kicked vigorously and tried to escape. I was stronger, though, and when defeat became unavoidable, he gave up and died. Does Garrow also fight the inevitable? I don't know. He told her the particulars, then said, It'll be a long time, if ever, before we can go home. I won't be able to see you for at least a couple of days. You might as well make yourself comfortable. Unhappily, she said, I will do as you say. But do not take too long. They parted reluctantly. He looked out a window and was surprised to see that the sun had set. Feeling very tired, he limped to Elaine, who was wrapping meat pies with oilcloth. I'm going back to Gertrude's house to sleep, he said. She finished with the packages and asked, Why don't you stay with us? You'll be closer to your uncle, and Gertrude can have her bed back. Do you have enough room? he asked, wavering. Of course, she wiped her hands. Come with me, I'll get everything ready. She escorted him upstairs to an empty room. He sat on the edge of the bed. Do you need anything else? she asked. He shook his head. In that case, I'll be downstairs. Call me if you need help. He listened as she descended the stairs. Then he opened the door and slipped down the hallway to Garrow's room.
Gertrude gave him a small smile over her darting knitting needles. How is he? whispered Aragon. Her voice rasped with fatigue. He's weak, but the fever's gone down a little and some of the burns look better. We'll have to wait and see. But this could mean he'll recover. That lightened Aragon's mood, and he returned to his room. The darkness seemed unfriendly as he huddled under the blankets. Eventually, he fell asleep, healing the wounds his body and soul had suffered. The Madness of Life It was dark when Aragon jolted upright in bed, breathing hard. The room was chilly, goosebumps formed on his arms and shoulders. It was a few hours before dawn, the time when nothing moves and life waits for the first warm touches of sunlight. His heart pounded as a terrible premonition gripped him. It felt like a shroud lay over the world, and its darkest corner was over his room. He quietly got out of bed and dressed. With apprehension, he hurried down the hallway. Alarm shot through him when he saw the door to Garrow's room open and people clustered inside. Garrow lay peacefully on the bed. He was dressed in clean clothes. His hair had been combed back and his face was calm. He might have been sleeping if not for the silver amulet clasped around his neck and the sprig of dried hemlock on his chest, the last gifts from the living to the dead. Katrina stood next to the bed, face pale and eyes downcast. He heard her whisper, I had hoped to call him father one day. Call him father, he thought bitterly. A right even I don't have. He felt like a ghost, drained of all vitality. Everything was insubstantial except for Garrow's face. Tears flooded Aragon's cheeks. He stood there, shoulders shaking, but did not cry out. Mother, aunt, uncle, he had lost them all. The weight of his grief was crushing. A monstrous force that left him tottering. Someone led him back to his room, uttering consolations. He fell on the bed wrapped his arms around his head and sobbed convulsively. He felt Sephira contact him, but he pushed her aside and let himself be swept away by sorrow. He could not accept that Garrow was gone. If he did, what was left to believe in? Only a merciless, uncaring world that snuffed lives like candles before a wind. Frustrated and terrified, he turned his tear-dampened face toward the heavens and shouted, What God would do this? Show yourself! He heard people running to his room, but no answer came from above. He didn't deserve this! Comforting hands touched him, and he was aware of Elaine sitting next to him. She held him as he cried, and eventually, exhausted, he slipped unwillingly into sleep. A Rider's Blade Anguish enveloped Aragon as he awoke. Though he kept his eyes closed, they could not stop a fresh flow of tears. He searched for some idea or hope to help him keep his sanity. I can't live with this, he moaned. Then don't. Sephira's words reverberated in his head. How? Carrow is gone forever, and in time I must meet the same fate. Love, family, accomplishments, they are all torn away, leaving nothing. What is the worth of anything we do? The worth is in the act. Your worth halts when you surrender the will to change and experience life. But options are before you, 
Choose one and dedicate yourself to it. The deeds will give you new hope and purpose. But what can I do? The only true guide is your heart. Nothing less than its supreme desire can help you. She left him to ponder her statements. Aragon examined his emotions. It surprised him that more than grief he found a searing anger. What do you want me to do? Pursue the strangers? Yes. Her frank answer confused him. He took a deep, trembling breath. Why? Remember what you said in the spine? How you reminded me of my duty as dragon, and I returned with you despite the urging of my instinct? So too must you control yourself. I thought long and deep the past few days, and I realized what it means to be dragon and rider. It is our destiny to attempt the impossible, to accomplish great deeds regardless of fear. It is our responsibility to the future. I don't care what you say. Those aren't reasons to leave, cried Aragon. Then here are others. My tracks have been seen, and people are alert to my presence. Eventually I will be exposed. Besides, there is nothing here for you. No farm, no family, and... Roran's not dead, he said vehemently. But if you stay, you'll have to explain what really happened. He has a right to know how and why his father died. What might he do once he knows of me? Sephira's arguments whirled around in Aragon's head, but he shrank from the idea of forsaking Palancar Valley. It was his home, yet the thought of enacting vengeance on the strangers was fiercely comforting. Am I strong enough for this? You have me. Doubt besieged him. It would be such a wild, desperate thing to do. Contempt for his indecision rose, and a harsh smile danced on his lips. Sephira was right. Nothing mattered any more except the act itself. The doing is the thing. And what would give him more satisfaction than hunting down the strangers? A terrible energy and strength began to grow in him. It grabbed his emotions and forged them into a solid bar of anger, with one word stamped on it. Revenge. His head pounded as he said with conviction, I will do it. He severed the contact with Sephira and rolled out of bed, his body tensed like a coiled spring. It was still early morning. He had only slept a few hours. Nothing is more dangerous than an enemy with nothing to lose, he thought, which is what I have become. Yesterday he had had difficulty walking upright, but now he moved confidently, held in place by his iron will. The pain his body sent him was defied and ignored. As he crept out of the house, he heard the murmur of two people talking. Curious, he stopped and listened. Elaine was saying in her gentle voice, Place to stay. We have room. Horst answered inaudibly in his bass rumble. Yes, the poor boy, replied Elaine. This time Aragon could hear Horst's response. Maybe. There was a long pause. I've been thinking about what Aragon said, and I'm not sure he told us everything. What do you mean? asked Elaine. There was concern in her voice. When we started for their farm, the road was scraped smooth by the board he dragged Garrow on. 
Then we reached a place where the snow was all trampled and churned up. His footprints and signs of the board stopped there, but we also saw the same giant tracks from the farm. And what about his legs? I can't believe he didn't notice losing that much skin. I didn't want to push him for answers earlier, but now I think I will. Maybe what he saw scared him so much that he doesn't want to talk about it, suggested Elaine. You saw how distraught he was. That still doesn't explain how he managed to get Garrow nearly all the way here without leaving any tracks. Sephira was right, thought Aragon. It's time to leave. Too many questions from too many people. Sooner or later they'll find the answers. He continued through the house, tensing whenever the floor creaked. The streets were clear. Few people were up at this time of day. He stopped for a minute and forced himself to focus. I don't need a horse. Safira will be my steed, but she needs a saddle. She can hunt for both of us, so I don't have to worry about food, though I should get some anyway. Whatever else I need, I can find buried in our house. He went to Gedrick's tanning vats on the outskirts of Carvajal. The vile smell made him cringe, but he kept moving, heading for a shack set into the side of a hill where the cured hides were stored. He cut down three large ox hides from the rows of skins hanging from the ceiling. The thievery made him feel guilty, but he reasoned, It's not really stealing. I'll pay Gedrick back some day, along with Horst. He rolled up the thick leather and took it to a stand of trees away from the village. He wedged the hides between the branches of a tree, then returned to Carvajal. Now for food. He went to the tavern, intending to get it there, but then smiled tightly and reversed direction. If he was going to steal, it might as well be from Sloane. He sneaked up to the butcher's house. The front door was barred whenever Sloane was not there, but the side door was secured with only a thin chain, which he broke easily. The rooms inside were dark. He fumbled blindly until his hands came upon hard piles of meat wrapped in cloth. He stuffed as many of them as he could under his shirt, then hurried back to the street and furtively closed the door. A woman shouted his name nearby. He clasped the bottom of his shirt to keep the meat from falling out and ducked behind a corner. He shivered as Horst walked between two houses, not ten feet away. Aragon ran as soon as Horst was out of sight. His legs burned as he pounded down an alley and back to the trees. He slipped between the tree trunks, then turned to see if he was being pursued. No one was there. Relieved, he let out his breath and reached into the tree for the leather. It was gone. Going somewhere? Aragon whirled around. Brom scowled angrily at him, an ugly wound on the side of his head. A short sword hung at his belt in a brown sheath. The hides were in his hands. Aragon's eyes narrowed in irritation. How had the old man managed to sneak up on him? Everything had been so quiet. He would have sworn that no one was around. Give them back, he snapped. Why, so you can run off before Garrow is even buried? The accusation was sharp. It's none of your business, he barked, temper flashing. Why did you follow me? I didn't, grunted Brom. I've been waiting for you here. Now where are you going? Nowhere. Aragon lunged for the skins and grabbed them from Brom's hands. Brom did nothing to stop him. I hope you have enough meat to feed your dragon. Aragon froze. What are you talking about? Brom crossed his arms. Don't fool with me. I know where that mark on your hand, the Gedway Ignazia, the Shining Palm, comes from. You have touched a dragon, Hatchling. I know why you came to me with those questions, and I know that once more the riders live. Aragon dropped the leather and meat. It's finally happened. I have to get away. I can't run faster than him with my injured legs, but if... Safira!
he called. For a few agonizing seconds she did not answer, but then— Yes. We've been discovered. I need you. He sent her a picture of where he was, and she took off immediately. Now he just had to stall Brom. How did you find out? he asked in a hollow voice. Brom stared into the distance and moved his lips soundlessly as if he were talking to someone else. Then he said, There were clues and hints everywhere. I had only to pay attention. Anyone with the right knowledge could have done the same. Tell me, how is your dragon? She, said Aragon, is fine. We weren't at the farm when the strangers came. Ah, your legs. You were flying? How had Brom figured that out? What if the strangers coerced him into doing this? Maybe they want him to discover where I'm going so they can ambush us. And where is Sephira? He reached out with his mind and found her circling far overhead. Come. No, I will watch for a time. Why? Because of the slaughter at Doru Ariba. What? Brom leaned against a tree with a slight smile. I have talked with her, and she has agreed to stay above us until we settle our differences. As you can see, you really don't have any choice but to answer my questions. Now tell me, where are you going? Bewildered, Aragon put a hand to his temple. How could Brom speak to Sephira? The back of his head throbbed and ideas whirled through his mind, but he kept reaching the same conclusion. He had to tell the old man something. He said, I was going to find a safe place to stay while I heal. And after that? The question could not be ignored. The throbbing in his head grew worse. It was impossible to think. Nothing seemed clear anymore. All he wanted to do was tell someone about the events of the past few months. It tore at him that his secret had caused Garrow's death. He gave up and said tremulously, I was going to hunt down the strangers and kill them. A mighty task for one so young, Brom said in a normal tone, as if Aragon had proposed the most obvious and suitable thing to do. Certainly a worthy endeavour, and one you are fit to carry out, yet it strikes me that help would not be unwelcome. He reached behind a bush and pulled out a large pack. His tone became gruff. Anyway, I'm not going to stay behind while some stripling gets to run around with a dragon. Is he really offering help, or is it a trap? Aragon was afraid of what his mysterious enemies could do. But Brom convinced Sephira to trust him, and they've talked through the mind touch. If she isn't worried... He decided to put his suspicions aside for the present. I don't need help, said Aragon. Then grudgingly added, But you can come. Then we had best be going, said Brom. His face blanked for a moment. I think you'll find that your dragon will listen to you again. Sephira? asked Aragon. Yes. He resisted the urge to question her. Will you meet us at the farm? Yes. So you reached an agreement? I guess so. She broke contact and soared away. He glanced at Carvajal and saw people running from house to house. I think they're looking for me. Brom raised an eyebrow. Probably. Shall we go? Aragon hesitated. I'd like to leave a message for Roran. It doesn't seem right to run off without telling him why. It's been taken care of, assured Brom. I left a letter for him with Gertrude, explaining a few things. I also cautioned him to be on guard for certain dangers. Is that satisfactory? Aragon nodded. 
He wrapped the leather around the meat and started off. They were careful to stay out of sight until they reached the road, then quickened their pace, eager to distance themselves from Carvajal. Aragon plowed ahead determinedly, his legs burning. The mindless rhythm of walking freed his mind to think. Once we get home, I won't travel any farther with Brom until I get some answers, he told himself firmly. I hope that he can tell me more about the riders and whom I'm fighting. As the wreckage of the farm came into view, Brom's eyebrows beetled with anger. Aragon was dismayed to see how swiftly nature was reclaiming the farm. Snow and dirt were already piled inside the house, concealing the violence of the stranger's attack. All that remained of the barn was a rapidly eroding rectangle of soot. Brom's head snapped up as the sound of Sephira's wings drifted over the trees. She dived past them from behind, almost brushing their heads. They staggered as a wall of air buffeted them. Sephira's scales glittered as she wheeled over the farm and landed gracefully. Brom stepped forward with an expression both solemn and joyous. His eyes were shining and a tear shone on his cheek before it disappeared into his beard. He stood there for a long while, breathing heavily as he watched Sephira and she him. Aragon heard him muttering and edged closer to listen. So it starts again, but how and where will it end? My sight is veiled. I cannot tell if this be tragedy or farce, for the elements of both are here. However it may be, my station is unchanged, and I... Whatever else he might have said faded away as Sephira proudly approached them. Aragon passed Brom, pretended he had heard nothing, and greeted her. There was something different between them now, as if they knew each other even more intimately, yet were still strangers. He rubbed her neck, and his palm tingled as their minds touched. A strong curiosity came from her. I've seen no humans except you and Garrow, and he was badly injured, she said. You viewed people through my eyes? It's not the same. She came closer and turned her long head so that she could inspect Brom with one large blue eye. You really are queer creatures, she said critically and continued to stare at him. Brom held still as she sniffed the air, and then he extended a hand to her. Sephira slowly bowed her head and allowed him to touch her on the brow. With a snort, she jerked back and retreated behind Aragon. Her tail flicked over the ground. What is it? he asked. She did not answer. Brom turned to him and asked in an undertone, What's her name? Sephira. A peculiar expression crossed Brom's face. He ground the butt of his staff into the earth with such force his knuckles turned white. Of all the names you gave me, it was the only one she liked. I think it fits, Aragon added quickly. Fit it does, said Brom. There was something in his voice Aragon could not identify. Was it loss, wonder, fear, envy? He was not sure. It could have been none of them or all. Brom raised his voice and said, Greetings, Sephira. I am honoured to meet you. He twisted his hand in a strange gesture and bowed. I like him, said Sephira quietly. Of course you do. Everyone enjoys flattery. Aragon touched her on the shoulder and went to the ruined house. Sephira trailed behind with Brom. The old man looked vibrant and alive. Aragon climbed into the house and crawled under a door into what was left of his room. He barely recognized it under the piles of shattered wood. 
Guided by memory, he searched where the inside wall had been and found his empty pack. Part of the frame was broken, but the damage could be easily repaired. He kept rummaging and eventually uncovered the end of his bow, which was still in its buckskin tube. Though the leather was scratched and scuffed, he was pleased to see that the oiled wood was unharmed. Finally, some luck. He strung the bow and pulled on the sinew experimentally. It bent smoothly, without any snaps or creaks. Satisfied, he hunted for his quiver, which he found buried nearby. Many of the arrows were broken. He unstrung the bow and handed it and the quiver to Brom, who said, It takes a strong arm to pull that. Aragon took the compliment silently. He picked through the rest of the house for other useful items and dumped the collection next to Brom. It was a meagre pile. What now? asked Brom. His eyes were sharp and inquisitive. Aragon looked away. We find a place to hide. Do you have somewhere in mind? Yes. He wrapped all the supplies except for his bow into a tight bundle and tied it shut. Hefting it onto his back, he said, This way, and headed into the forest. Sephira, follow us in the air. Your footprints are too easily found and tracked. Very well. She took off behind them. Their destination was nearby, but Aragon took a circuitous route in an effort to baffle any pursuers. It was well over an hour before he finally stopped in a well-concealed bramble. The irregular clearing in the centre was just large enough for a fire, two people and a dragon. Red squirrels scampered into the trees, chattering in protest at their intrusion. Brom extricated himself from a vine and looked around with interest. Does anyone else know of this? he asked. No. I found it when we first moved here. It took me a week to dig into the centre and another week to clear out all the dead wood. Sephira landed beside them and folded her wings, careful to avoid the thorns. She curled up, snapping twigs with her hard scales, and rested her head on the ground. Her unreadable eyes followed them closely. Brom leaned against his staff and fixed his gaze on her. His scrutiny made Aragon nervous. Aragon watched them until hunger forced him to action. He built a fire, filled a pot with snow, and then set it over the flames to melt. When the water was hot, he tore off chunks of meat and dropped them into the pot with a lump of salt. Not much of a meal, he thought grimly, but it'll do. I'll probably be eating this for some time to come, so I might as well get used to it. The stew simmered quietly, spreading a rich aroma through the clearing. The tip of Sephira's tongue snaked out and tasted the air. When the meat was tender, Brom came over and Aragon served the food. They ate silently, avoiding each other's eyes. Afterward, Brom pulled out his pipe and lit it leisurely. Why do you want to travel with me? asked Aragon. A cloud of smoke left Brom's lips and spiralled up through the trees until it disappeared. I have a vested interest in keeping you alive, he said. What do you mean? demanded Aragon. To put it bluntly, I'm a storyteller, and I happen to think that you will make a fine story. You're the first rider to exist outside of the king's control for over a hundred years. What will happen? Will you perish as a martyr? Will you join the Varden, or will you kill King Galbatorix? All fascinating questions, and I will be there to see every bit of it, no matter what I have to do. A knot formed in Aragon's stomach. He could not see himself doing any of those things, least of all becoming a martyr. I want my vengeance, but for the rest I have no ambition. That may be, but tell me, how can you talk with Sephira? Brom took his time putting more tobacco in his pipe. Once it was relit and firmly in his mouth, he said, 
Very well, if it's answers you want, it's answers you'll get. But they may not be to your liking. He got up, brought his pack over to the fire and pulled out a long object wrapped in cloth. It was about five feet long and from the way he handled it rather heavy. He peeled away the cloth, strip by strip, like a mummy being unswathed. Aragon gazed, transfixed, as a sword was revealed. The gold pommel was teardrop-shaped, with the sides cut away to reveal a ruby the size of a small egg. The hilt was wrapped in silver wire, burnished until it gleamed like starlight. The sheath was wine-red and smooth as glass, adorned solely by a strange black symbol etched into it. Next to the sword was a leather belt with a heavy buckle. The last strip fell away, and Brom passed the weapon to Aragon. The handle fit Aragon's hand as if it had been made for him. He slowly drew the sword. It slid soundlessly from the sheath. The flat blade was iridescent red and shimmered in the firelight. The keen edges curved gracefully to a sharp point. A duplicate of the black symbol was inscribed on the metal. The balance of the sword was perfect. It felt like an extension of his arm, unlike the rude farm tools he was used to. An air of power lay over it, as if an unstoppable force resided in its core. It had been created for the violent convolutions of battle, to end men's lives. Yet it held a terrible beauty. This was once a rider's blade, said Brom gravely. When a rider finished his training, the elves would present him with a sword. Their methods of forging have always remained secret. However, their swords are eternally sharp and will never stain. The custom was to have the blade's color match that of the rider's dragon, but I think we can make an exception in this case. This sword is named Zarak. I don't know what it means, probably something personal to the rider who owned it. He watched Aragon swing the sword. Where did you get it? asked Aragon. He reluctantly slipped the blade back into the sheath and attempted to hand the sword back, but Brom made no move to take it. It doesn't matter, said Brom. I will only say that it took me a series of nasty and dangerous adventures to attain it. Consider it yours. You have more of a claim to it than I do, and before all is done, I think you will need it. The offer caught Aragon off guard. It is a princely gift. Thank you. Unsure of what else to say, he slid his hand down the sheath. What is this symbol? he asked. That was the rider's personal crest. Aragon tried to interrupt, but Brom glared at him until he was quiet. Now, if you must know, anyone can learn how to speak to a dragon if they have the proper training. And, he raised a finger for emphasis, it doesn't mean anything if they can. I know more about the dragons and their abilities than almost anyone else alive. On your own, it might take years to learn what I can teach you. I'm offering my knowledge as a shortcut. As for how I know so much, I will keep that to myself. Sephira pulled herself up as he finished speaking and prowled over to Aragon. He pulled out the blade and showed her the sword. It has power, she said, touching the point with her nose. The metal's iridescent color rippled like water as it met her scales. She lifted her head with a satisfied snort, and the sword resumed its normal appearance. Aragon sheathed it, troubled. Brom raised an eyebrow. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Dragons will constantly amaze you. Things happen around them. Mysterious things that are impossible anywhere else. 
Even though the riders worked with dragons for centuries, they never completely understood their abilities. Some say that even the dragons don't know the full extent of their own powers. They are linked with this land in a way that lets them overcome great obstacles. What Sephira just did illustrates my earlier point. There is much you don't know. There was a long pause. That may be, said Aragon, but I can learn. And the strangers are the most important thing I need to know about right now. Do you have any idea who they are? Brom took a deep breath. They are called the Razak. No one knows if that's the name of their race or what they have chosen to call themselves. Either way, if they have individual names, they keep them hidden. The Razak were never seen before Galbatorix came to power. He must have found them during his travels and enlisted them in his service. Little or nothing is known about them. However, I can tell you this. They aren't human. When I glimpsed one's head, it appeared to have something resembling a beak and black eyes as large as my fist, though how they manage our speech is a mystery to me. Doubtless the rest of their bodies are just as twisted. That is why they cover themselves with cloaks at all times, regardless of the weather. As for their powers, they are stronger than any man and can jump incredible heights, but they cannot use magic. Be thankful for that, because if they could, you would already be in their grasp. I also know that they have a strong aversion to sunlight, though it won't stop them if they're determined. Don't make the mistake of underestimating a Razak, for they are cunning and full of guile. How many of them are there? asked Aragon, wondering how Brom could possibly know so much. As far as I know, only the two you saw. There might be more, but I've never heard of them. Perhaps they're the last of a dying race. You see, they are the king's personal dragon hunters. Whenever rumors reach Galbatorix of a dragon in the land, he sends the Razak to investigate. A trail of death often follows them. Brom blew a series of smoke rings and watched them float up between the brambles. Aragon ignored the rings until he noticed that they were changing color and darting around. Brom winked slyly. Aragon was sure that no one had seen Zephira, so how could Galbatorix have heard about her? When he voiced his objections, Brom said, You're right. It seems unlikely that anyone from Carvajal could have informed the king. Why don't you tell me where you got the egg and how you raised Zephira? That might clarify the issue. Aragon hesitated, then recounted all the events since he had found the egg in the spine. It felt wonderful to finally confide in someone. Brom asked a few questions, but most of the time he listened intently. The sun was about to set when Aragon finished his tale. Both of them were quiet as the clouds turned a soft pink. Aragon eventually broke the silence. I just wish I knew where she came from, and Sephira doesn't remember. Brom cocked his head. I don't know. You've made many things clear to me. I am sure that no one besides us has seen Sephira. The Razak must have had a source of information outside of this valley, one who is probably dead by now. You have had a hard time and done much. I'm impressed. Aragon stared blankly into the distance, then asked, What happened to your head? It looks like you were hit with a rock. No, but that's a good guess. He took a deep pull on the pipe. I was sneaking around the Razak's camp after dark, trying to learn what I could when they surprised me in the shadows. It was a good trap, but they underestimated me, and I managed to drive them away. Not, however, he said wryly, 
without this token of my stupidity. Stunned, I fell to the ground and didn't regain consciousness until the next day. By then they had already arrived at your farm. It was too late to stop them, but I set out after them anyway. That's when we met on the road. Who is he to think that he could take on the Razak alone? They ambushed him in the dark and he was only stunned? Unsettled, Aragon asked hotly, When you saw the mark, the Gedway Ignazia on my palm, why didn't you tell me who the Razak were? I would have warned Garrow instead of going to Sephira first, and the three of us could have fled. Brom sighed. I was unsure of what to do at the time. I thought I could keep the Razak away from you, and once they had left, confront you about Sephira. But they outsmarted me. It's a mistake that I deeply regret, and one that has cost you dearly. Who are you? demanded Aragon, suddenly bitter. How come a mere village storyteller happens to have a rider's sword? How do you know about the Razak? Brom tapped his pipe. I thought I made it clear I wasn't going to talk about that. My uncle is dead because of this, dead, exclaimed Aragon, slashing a hand through the air. I've trusted you this far because Sephira respects you, but no more. You're not the person I've known in Carvajal for all of these years. Explain yourself. For a long time, Brom stared at the smoke swirling between them, deep lines creasing his forehead. When he stirred, it was only to take another puff. Finally, he said, You've probably never thought about it, but most of my life has been spent outside of Palankar Valley. It was only in Carvajal that I took up the mantle of storyteller. I have played many roles to different people. I've a complicated past. It was partly through a desire to escape it that I came here. So no, I'm not the man you think I am. Ha! snorted Aragon. Then who are you? Brom smiled gently. I am one who is here to help you. Do not scorn those words. They are the truest I have ever spoken. But I'm not going to answer your questions. At this point you don't need to hear my history, nor have you yet earned that right. Yes, I have knowledge Brom the storyteller wouldn't, but I'm more than he. You'll have to learn to live with that fact, and the fact that I don't hand out descriptions of my life to anyone who asks. Aragon glared at him sullenly. I'm going to sleep, he said, leaving the fire. Brom did not seem surprised, but there was sorrow in his eyes. He spread his bedroll next to the fire as Aragon lay beside Sephira. An icy silence fell over the camp. Saddle-making When Aragon's eyes opened, the memory of Garrow's death crashed down on him. He pulled the blankets over his head and cried quietly under their warm darkness. It felt good just to lie there, to hide from the world outside. Eventually the tears stopped. He cursed Brom, then he reluctantly wiped his cheeks and got up. Brom was making breakfast. Good morning, he said. Aragon grunted in reply. He jammed his cold fingers in his armpits and crouched by the fire until the food was ready. They ate quickly, trying to consume the food before it lost its warmth. When he finished, Aragon washed his bowl with snow, then spread the stolen leather on the ground. What are you going to do with that? asked Brom. We can't carry it with us. I'm going to make a saddle for Sephira. Hmm, said Brom, moving forward. Well, dragons used to have two kinds of saddles. The first was hard and molded like a horse's saddle, but those take time and tools to make, neither of which we have. 
The other was thin and lightly padded, nothing more than an extra layer between the rider and the dragon. Those saddles were used whenever speed and flexibility were important, though they weren't nearly as comfortable as the molded ones. Do you know what they look like? asked Aragon. Better, I can make one. Then please do, said Aragon, standing aside. Very well, but pay attention. Some day you may have to do this for yourself. With Saphira's permission, Brom measured her neck and chest. Then he cut five bands out of the leather and outlined a dozen or so shapes on the hides. Once the pieces had been sliced out, he cut what remained of the hides into long cords. Brom used the cords to sew everything together, but for each stitch, two holes had to be bored through the leather. Aragon helped with that. Intricate knots were rigged in place of buckles, and every strap was made extra long so the saddle would still fit Sephira in the coming months. The main part of the saddle was assembled from three identical sections sewn together with padding between them. Attached to the front was a thick loop that would fit snugly around one of Sephira's neck spikes, while wide bands sewn on either side would wrap around her belly and tie underneath. Taking the place of stirrups were a series of loops running down both bands. Tightened, they would hold Aragon's legs in place. A long strap was constructed to pass between Sephira's front legs, split in two, and then come up behind her front legs to rejoin with the saddle. While Brom worked, Aragon repaired his pack and organized their supplies. The day was spent by the time their tasks were completed. Weary from his labor, Brom put the saddle on Sephira and checked to see that the straps fit. He made a few small adjustments, then took it off, satisfied. You did a good job, Aragon acknowledged grudgingly. Brom inclined his head. One tries his best. It should serve you well. The leather's sturdy enough. Aren't you going to try it out? asked Sephira. Maybe tomorrow, said Aragon, storing the saddle with his blankets. It's too late now. In truth, he was not eager to fly again, not after the disastrous outcome of his last attempt. Dinner was made quickly. It tasted good, even though it was simple. While they ate, Brom looked over the fire at Aragon and asked, Will we leave tomorrow? There isn't any reason to stay. I suppose not. He shifted. Aragon, I must apologize about how events have turned out. I never wished for this to happen. Your family did not deserve such a tragedy. If there were anything I could do to reverse it, I would. This is a terrible situation for all of us. Aragon sat in silence, avoiding Brom's gaze. Then Brom said, We're going to need horses. Maybe you do, but I have Sephira. Brom shook his head. There isn't a horse alive that can outrun a flying dragon, and Sephira is too young to carry us both. Besides, it'll be safer if we stay together, and riding is faster than walking. But that'll make it harder to catch the Razak, protested Aragon. On Sephira, I could probably find them within a day or two. On horses, it'll take much longer, if it's even possible to overtake their lead on the ground. Brom said slowly, That's a chance you'll have to take if I'm to accompany you. Aragon thought it over. All right, he grumbled. We'll get horses, but you have to buy them. I don't have any money and I don't want to steal again. It's wrong. That depends on your point of view, corrected Brom with a slight smile. Before you set out on this venture, remember that your enemies, the Razak, are the king's servants. They will be protected wherever they go. Laws do not stop them. 
In cities, they'll have access to abundant resources and willing servants. Also, keep in mind that nothing is more important to Galbatorix than recruiting or killing you. Though word of your existence probably hasn't reached him yet. The longer you evade the Razak, the more desperate he'll become. He'll know that every day you'll be growing stronger and that each passing moment will give you another chance to join his enemies. You must be very careful, as you may easily turn from the hunter into the hunted. Aragon was subdued by the strong words. Pensive, he rolled a twig between his fingers. Enough talk, said Brom. It's late, and my bones ache. We can say more tomorrow. Aragon nodded and banked the fire. Theronsford Dawn was grey and overcast, with a cutting wind. The forest was quiet. After a light breakfast, Brom and Aragon doused the fire and shouldered their packs, preparing to leave. Aragon hung his bow and quiver on the side of his pack, where he could easily reach them. Sephira wore the saddle. She would have to carry it until they got horses. Aragon carefully tied Zarok onto her back, too, as he did not want the extra weight. Besides, in his hands, the sword would be no better than a club. Aragon had felt safe inside the bramble, but outside, weariness crept into his movements. Sephira took off and circled overhead. The trees thinned as they returned to the farm. I will see this place again, Aragon insisted to himself, looking at the ruined buildings. This cannot, will not be a permanent exile. Some day, when it's safe, I'll return. Throwing back his shoulders, he faced south and the strange, barbaric lands that lay there. As they walked, Sephira veered west toward the mountains and out of sight. Aragon felt uncomfortable as he watched her go. Even now, with no one around, they could not spend their days together. She had to stay hidden in case they met a fellow traveller. The Razak's footprints were faint on the eroding snow, but Aragon was unconcerned. It was unlikely that they had forsaken the road, which was the easiest way out of the valley, for the wilderness. Outside the valley, however, the road divided in several places. It would be difficult to ascertain which branch the Razak had taken. They travelled in silence, concentrating on speed. Aragon's legs continued to bleed where the scabs had cracked. To take his mind off the discomfort, he asked, So what exactly can dragons do? You said that you knew something of their abilities. Brom laughed, his sapphire ring flashing in the air as he gestured, Unfortunately, it's a pitiful amount compared to what I would like to know. Your question is one people have been trying to answer for centuries, so understand that what I tell you is by its very nature incomplete. Dragons have always been mysterious, though maybe not on purpose. Before I can truly answer your question, you need a basic education on the subject of dragons. It's hopelessly confusing to start in the middle of such a complex topic without understanding the foundation on which it stands. I'll begin with the life cycle of dragons, and if that doesn't wear you out, we can continue to another topic. Brom explained how dragons mate and what it took for their eggs to hatch. You see, he said, when a dragon lays an egg, the infant inside is ready to hatch. But it waits, sometimes for years, for the right circumstances. When dragons lived in the wild, those circumstances were usually dictated by the availability of food. However... Once they formed an alliance with the elves, a certain number of their eggs, usually no more than one or two, were given to the riders each year. These eggs, or rather the infants inside, wouldn't hatch until the person destined to be its rider came into their presence, though how they sensed that isn't known. 
People used to line up to touch the eggs, hoping that one of them might be picked. Do you mean that Sephira might not have hatched for me? asked Aragon. Quite possibly, if she hadn't liked you. He felt honoured that of all the people in Alagazia she had chosen him. He wondered how long she had been waiting, then shuddered at the thought of being cramped inside an egg, surrounded by darkness. Brom continued his lecture. He explained what and when dragons ate. A fully grown sedentary dragon could go for months without food, but in mating season they had to eat every week. Some plants could heal their sicknesses, while others would make them ill. There were various ways to care for their claws and clean their scales. He explained the techniques to use when attacking from a dragon, and what to do if you were fighting one, whether on foot, horseback, or with another dragon. Their bellies were armoured, their armpits were not. Aragon constantly interrupted to ask questions, and Brom seemed pleased by the inquiries. Hours passed unheeded as they talked. When evening came, they were near Therensford. As the sky darkened and they searched for a place to camp, Aragon asked, Who was the rider that owned Zarok? A mighty warrior, said Brom, who was much feared in his time and held great power. What was his name? I'll not say. Aragon protested, but Brom was firm. I don't want to keep you ignorant, far from it, but certain knowledge would only prove dangerous and distracting for you right now. There isn't any reason for me to trouble you with such things until you have the time and the power to deal with them. I only wish to protect you from those who would use you for evil. Aragon glared at him. You know what? I think you just enjoy speaking in riddles. I've half a mind to leave you so I don't have to be bothered with them. If you're going to say something, then say it instead of dancing around with vague phrases. Peace. All will be told in time, Brom said gently. Aragon grunted, unconvinced. They found a comfortable place to spend the night and set up camp. Sephira joined them as dinner was being set on the fire. Did you have time to hunt for food? asked Aragon. She snorted with amusement. If the two of you were any slower, I would have time to fly across the sea and back without falling behind. You don't have to be insulting. Besides, we'll go faster once we have horses. She let out a puff of smoke. Maybe, but will it be enough to catch the Razak? They have a lead of several days and many leagues, and I'm afraid they may suspect we're following them. Why else would they have destroyed the farm in such a spectacular manner, unless they wished to provoke you into chasing them? I don't know, said Aragon, disturbed. Sephira curled up beside him, and he leaned against her belly, welcoming the warmth. Brom sat on the other side of the fire, whittling two long sticks. He suddenly threw one at Aragon, who grabbed it out of reflex as it whirled over the crackling flames. Defend yourself, barked Brom, standing. Aragon looked at the stick in his hand and saw that it was shaped in the crude likeness of a sword. Brom wanted to fight him? What chance did the old man stand? If he wants to play this game, so be it. But if he thinks to beat me, he's in for a surprise. He rose as Brom circled the fire. They faced each other for a moment. Then Brom charged, swinging his stick. Aragon tried to block the attack, but was too slow. He yelped as Brom struck him on the ribs and stumbled backward. Without thinking, he lunged forward, but Brom easily parried the blow. Aragon whipped the stick toward Brom's head, twisted it at the last moment, and then tried to hit his side. The solid smack of wood striking wood resounded through the camp. Improvisation! Good! 
exclaimed Brom, eyes gleaming. His arm moved in a blur, and there was an explosion of pain on the side of Aragon's head. He collapsed like an empty sack, dazed. A splash of cold water roused him to alertness, and he sat up, sputtering. His head was ringing, and there was dried blood on his face. Brom stood over him with a pan of melted snow water. You didn't have to do that, said Aragon angrily, pushing himself up. He felt dizzy and unsteady. Brom arched an eyebrow. Oh, a real enemy wouldn't soften his blows, and neither will I. Should I pander to your incompetence so you'll feel better? I don't think so. He picked up the stick that Aragon had dropped and held it out. Now defend yourself. Aragon stared blankly at the piece of wood, then shook his head. Forget it, I've had enough. He turned away and stumbled as he was whacked loudly across the back. He spun around, growling. Never turn your back to the enemy, snapped Brom, then tossed the stick at him and attacked. Aragon retreated around the fire beneath the onslaught. Pull your arms in, keep your knees bent, shouted Brom. He continued to give instructions, then paused to show Aragon exactly how to execute a certain move. Do it again, but this time slowly. They slid through the forms with exaggerated motions before returning to their furious battle. Aragon learned quickly, but no matter what he tried, he could not hold Brom off for more than a few blows. When they finished, Aragon flopped on his blankets and groaned. He hurt everywhere. Brom had not been gentle with his stick. Sephira let out a long, coughing growl and curled her lip until a formidable row of teeth showed. What's wrong with you? he demanded irritably. Nothing, she replied. It's funny to see a hatchling like you beaten by the old one. She made the sound again, and Aragon turned red as he realized that she was laughing. Trying to preserve some dignity, he rolled onto his side and fell asleep. He felt even worse the next day. Bruises covered his arms, and he was almost too sore to move. Brom looked up from the mush he was serving and grinned. How do you feel? Aragon grunted and bolted down the breakfast. Once on the road, they travelled swiftly so as to reach Therensford before noon. After a league, the road widened and they saw smoke in the distance. You'd better tell Sephira to fly ahead and wait for us on the other side of Therensford, said Brom. She has to be careful here, otherwise people are bound to notice her. Why don't you tell her yourself? challenged Aragon. It's considered bad manners to interfere with another's dragon. You didn't have a problem with it in Carvajal? Brom's lips twitched with a smile. I did what I had to. Aragon eyed him darkly, then relayed the instructions. Sephira warned, Be careful. The Empire's servants could be hiding anywhere. As the ruts in the road deepened, Aragon noticed more footprints. Farms signaled their approach to Therensford. The village was larger than Carvajal, but it had been constructed haphazardly, the houses aligned in no particular order. What a mess, said Aragon. He could not see Dempton's mill. Baldor and Albrecht have surely fetched Roran by now. Either way, Aragon had no wish to face his cousin. It's ugly, if nothing else, agreed Brom. The Enora River flowed between them and the town, spanned by a stout bridge. As they approached it, a greasy man stepped from behind a bush and barred their way. His shirt was too short, and his dirty stomach spilled over a rope belt. Behind his cracked lips, his teeth looked like crumbling tombstones.
You can stop right there. This is my bridge. Got a pate get over. How much? asked Brom in a resigned voice. He pulled out a pouch, and the bridgekeeper brightened. Five crowns, he said, pulling his lips into a broad smile. Aragon's temper flared at the exorbitant price, and he started to complain hotly, but Brom silenced him with a quick look. The coins were wordlessly handed over. The man put them into a sack hanging from his belt. Thank ye much, he said in a mocking tone, and stood out of the way. As Brom stepped forward, he stumbled and caught the bridgekeeper's arm to support himself. Watch your step, snarled the grimy man, sidling away. Sorry, apologized Brom, and continued over the bridge with Aragon. Why didn't you haggle? He skinned you alive, exclaimed Aragon when they were out of earshot. He probably doesn't even own the bridge. We could have pushed right past him. Probably, agreed Brom. Then why pay him? Because you can't argue with all of the fools in the world. It's easier to let them have their way than trick them when they're not paying attention. Brom opened his hand, and a pile of coins glinted in the light. You cut his purse, said Aragon incredulously. Brom pocketed the money with a wink, and it held a surprising amount. He should know better than to keep all these coins in one place. There was a sudden howl of anguish from the other side of the river. I'd say our friend has just discovered his loss. If you see any watchmen, tell me. He grabbed the shoulder of a young boy running between the houses and asked, Do you know where we can buy horses? The child stared at them with solemn eyes, then pointed to a large barn near the edge of Therensford. Thank you, said Brom, tossing him a small coin. The barn's large double doors were open, revealing two long rows of stalls. The far wall was covered with saddles, harnesses, and other paraphernalia. A man with muscular arms stood at the end, brushing a white stallion. He raised a hand and beckoned for them to come over. As they approached, Brom said, That's a beautiful animal. Yes, indeed. His name's Snowfire. Mine's Haberth. Haberth offered a rough palm and shook hands vigorously with Aragon and Brom. There was a polite pause as he waited for their names in return. When they were not forthcoming, he asked, Can I help you? Brom nodded. We need two horses and a full set of tack for both. The horses have to be fast and tough. We'll be doing a lot of travelling. Haberth was thoughtful for a moment. I don't have many animals like that, and the ones I do aren't cheap. The stallion moved restlessly. He calmed it with a few strokes of his fingers. Price is no object. I'll take the best you have, said Brom. Haberth nodded and silently tied the stallion to a stall. He went to the wall and started pulling down saddles and other items. Soon he had two identical piles. Next he walked up the line of stalls and brought out two horses. One was a light bay, the other a roan. The bay tugged against his rope. He's a little spirited, but with a firm hand you won't have any problems, said Haberth, handing the bay's rope to Brom. Brom let the horse smell his hand. It allowed him to rub its neck. We'll take him, he said, then eyed the roan. The other one, however, I'm not so sure of. There are some good legs on him. Hmm. What will you take for Snowfire? Haberth looked fondly at the stallion. I'd rather not sell him. He's the finest I've ever bred. I'm hoping to sire a whole line from him. If you were willing to part with him, how much would all of this cost me? asked Brom. Aragon tried to put his hand on the bay like Brom had, but it shied away. 
He automatically reached out with his mind to reassure the horse, stiffening with surprise as he touched the animal's consciousness. The contact was not clear or sharp like it was with Zephira, but he could communicate with the bay to a limited degree. Tentatively, he made it understand that he was a friend. The horse calmed and looked at him with liquid brown eyes. Haberth used his fingers to add up the price of the purchase. Two hundred crowns and no less,' he said with a smile, clearly confident that no one would pay that much. Brom silently opened his pouch and counted out the money. "'Will this do?' he asked. There was a long silence as Haberth glanced between Snowfire and the coins. A sigh, then, "'He is yours, though I go against my heart.' I will treat him as if he had been sired by Gildentor, the greatest steed of legend, said Brom. Your words gladden me, answered Haberth, bowing his head slightly. He helped them saddle the horses. When they were ready to leave, he said, Farewell, then. For the sake of Snowfire, I hope that misfortune does not befall you. Do not fear. I will guard him well, promised Brom as they departed. Here, he said, handing Snowfire's reins to Aragon. Go to the far side of Therensford and wait there. Why? asked Aragon, but Brom had already slipped away. Annoyed, he exited Therensford with the two horses and stationed himself beside the road. To the south he saw the hazy outline of Utgard, sitting like a giant monolith at the end of the valley. Its peak pierced the clouds and rose out of sight, towering over the lesser mountains that surrounded it. Its dark, ominous look made Aragon's scalp tingle. Brom returned shortly and gestured for Aragon to follow. They walked until Therensford was hidden by trees. Then Brom said, The Razak definitely passed this way. Apparently they stopped here to pick up horses as we did. I was able to find a man who saw them. He described them with many shudders and said that they galloped out of Therensford like demons fleeing a holy man. They left quite an impression. Quite. Aragon patted the horses. When we were in the barn... I touched the bay's mind by accident. I didn't know it was possible to do that. Brom frowned. It's unusual for one as young as you to have the ability. Most riders had to train for years before they were strong enough to contact anything other than their dragon. His face was very thoughtful as he inspected Snowfire. Then he said, Take everything from your pack, put it into the saddlebags and tie the pack on top. Aragon did so, while Brom mounted Snowfire. Aragon gazed doubtfully at the bay. It was so much smaller than Sephira that for an absurd moment he wondered if it could bear his weight. With a sigh, he awkwardly got into the saddle. He had only ridden horses bareback and never for any distance. Is this going to do the same thing to my legs as riding Sephira? he asked. How do they feel now? Not too bad, but I think any hard riding will open them up again. We'll take it easy, promised Brom. He gave Aragon a few pointers, then they started off at a gentle pace. Before long the countryside began to change, as cultivated fields yielded to wilder land. Brambles and tangled weeds lined the road, along with huge rose bushes that clung to their clothes. Tall rocks slanted out of the ground, grey witnesses to their presence. There was an unfriendly feel in the air, an animosity that resisted intruders. Above them, growing larger with every step, loomed Utgard its craggy precipices deeply furrowed with snowy canyons. The black rock of the mountain absorbed light like a sponge and dimmed the surrounding area. 
Between Utgard and the line of mountains that formed the east side of Palankar Valley was a deep cleft. It was the only practical way out of the valley. The road led toward it. The horse's hooves clacked sharply over gravel, and the road dwindled to a skinny trail as it skirted the base of Utgard. Aragon glanced up at the peak looming over them, and was startled to see a steepled tower perched upon it. The turret was crumbling and in disrepair, but it was still a stern sentinel over the valley. What is that? he asked, pointing. Brom did not look up, but said sadly and with bitterness, An outpost of the riders, one that has lasted since their founding. That was where Vrail took refuge, and where, through treachery, he was found and defeated by Galbatorix. When Vrail fell, this area was tainted. Edoxil, unconquerable, was the name of this bastion, for the mountain is so steep none may reach the top unless they can fly. After Vrail's death, the commoners called it Utgard, but it has another name, Ristvakbein, the place of sorrow. It was known as such to the last riders before they were killed by the king. Aragon stared with awe. Here was a tangible remnant of the riders' glory, tarnished though it was by the relentless pull of time. It struck him then just how old the riders were. A legacy of tradition and heroism that stretched back to antiquity had fallen upon him. They travelled for long hours around Utgard. It formed a solid wall to their right as they entered the breach that divided the mountain range. Aragon stood in his stirrups. He was impatient to see what lay outside of Palankar, but it was still too far away. For a while they were in a sloped pass, winding over hill and gully following the Anora River. Then, with the sun low behind their backs, they mounted a rise and saw over the trees. Aragon gasped. On either side were mountains, but below them stretched a huge plain that extended to the distant horizon and fused into the sky. The plain was a uniform tan, like the colour of dead grass. Long, wispy clouds swept by overhead, shaped by fierce winds. He understood now why Brom had insisted on horses. It would have taken them weeks or months to cover that vast distance on foot. Far above, he saw Sephira circling high enough to be mistaken for a bird. We'll wait until tomorrow to make the descent, said Brom. It's going to take most of the day, so we should camp now. How far across is the plain? Aragon asked, still amazed. Two or three days to over a fortnight, depending on which direction we go. Aside from the nomad tribes that roam this section of the plains, it's almost as uninhabited as the Hadarak Desert to the east, so we aren't going to find many villages. However, to the south, the plains are less arid and more heavily populated. They left the trail and dismounted by the Enora River. As they unsaddled the horses, Brom gestured at the bay. You should name him. Aragon considered it as he picketed the bay. Well, I don't have anything as noble as Snowfire, but maybe this will do. He placed his hand on the bay and said, I name you Cadoc. It was my grandfather's name, so bear it well. Brom nodded in approval, but Aragon felt slightly foolish. When Sephira landed, he asked, How do the plains look? Dull. There's nothing but rabbits and scrub in every direction. After dinner, Brom stood and barked, Catch! Aragon barely had time to raise his arm and grab the piece of wood before it hit him on the head. He groaned as he saw another makeshift sword. Not again, he complained.
Brom just smiled and beckoned with one hand. Aragon reluctantly got to his feet. They whirled around in a flurry of smacking wood and he backed away with a stinging arm. The training session was shorter than the first, but it was still long enough for Aragon to amass a new collection of bruises. When they finished sparring, he threw down the stick in disgust and stalked away from the fire to nurse his injuries. Thunder roar and lightning crackle. The next morning, Aragon avoided bringing to mind any of the recent events. They were too painful for him to consider. Instead, he focused his energies on figuring out how to find and kill the Razak. I'll do it with my bow, he decided, imagining how the cloaked figures would look with arrows sticking out of them. He had difficulty even standing up. His muscles cramped with the slightest movement and one of his fingers was hot and swollen. When they were ready to leave, he mounted Cadoc and said acidly, If this keeps up, you're going to batter me to pieces. I wouldn't push you so hard if I didn't think you were strong enough. For once, I wouldn't mind being thought less of, muttered Aragon. Cadoc pranced nervously as Sephira approached. Sephira eyed the horse with something close to disgust and said, There's nowhere to hide on the plains, so I'm not going to bother trying to stay out of sight. I'll just fly above you from now on. She took off, and they began the steep descent. In many places, the trail all but disappeared, leaving them to find their own way down. At times they had to dismount and lead the horses on foot, holding onto trees to keep from falling down the slope. The ground was scattered with loose rocks which made the footing treacherous. The ordeal left them hot and irritable despite the cold. They stopped to rest when they reached the bottom near midday. The Honora River veered to their left and flowed northward. A biting wind scoured the land, whipping them unmercifully. The soil was parched and dirt flew into their eyes. It unnerved Aragon how flat everything was. The plains were unbroken by hummocks or mounds. He had lived his entire life surrounded by mountains and hills. Without them he felt exposed and vulnerable, like a mouse under an eagle's keen eye. The trail split in three once it reached the plains. The first branch turned north towards Siunon, one of the greatest northern cities. The second one led straight across the plains, and the last went south. They examined all three for traces of the Razak and eventually found their tracks, heading directly into the grasslands. It seems they've gone to Yazwak, said Brom with a perplexed air. Where's that? Due east and four days away, if all goes well. It's a small village situated by the Ninor River. He gestured at the Honora, which streamed away from them to the north. Our only supply of water is here. We'll have to replenish our water skins before attempting to cross the plains. There isn't another pool or stream between here and Yazuak. The excitement of the hunt began to rise within Aragon. In a few days, maybe less than a week, he would use his arrows to avenge Garrow's death. And then... He refused to think about what might happen afterward. They filled the waterskins, watered the horses, and drank as much as they could from the river. Sephira joined them and took several gulps of water. Fortified, they turned eastward and started across the plains. Aragon decided that it would be the wind that drove him crazy first. Everything that made him miserable, his chapped lips, parched tongue, and burning eyes stemmed from it. The ceaseless gusting followed them throughout the day. Evening only strengthened the wind instead of subduing it. Since there was no shelter, they were forced to camp in the open. 
Aragon found some scrub brush, a short, tough plant that thrived on harsh conditions, and pulled it up. He made a careful pile and tried to light it, but the woody stems only smoked and gave off a pungent smell. Frustrated, he tossed the tinderbox to Brom. I can't make it burn, especially with this blasted wind. See if you can get it going, otherwise dinner will be cold. Brom knelt by the brush and looked at it critically. He rearranged a couple of branches, then struck the tinderbox, sending a cascade of sparks onto the plants. There was smoke, but nothing else. Brom scowled and tried again, but his luck was no better than Aragon's. Brissinger, he swore angrily, striking the flint again. Flames suddenly appeared, and he stepped back with a pleased expression. There we go. It must have been smouldering inside. They sparred with mock swords while the food cooked. Fatigue made it hard on both of them, so they kept the session short. After they had eaten, they lay next to Sephira and slept, grateful for her shelter. The same cold wind greeted them in the morning, sweeping over the dreadful flatness. Aragon's lips had cracked during the night. Every time he smiled or talked, beads of blood covered them. Licking them only made it worse. It was the same for Brom. They let the horses drink sparingly from their supply of water before mounting them. The day was a monotonous trek of endless plodding. On the third day, Aragon woke well-rested. That, coupled with the fact that the wind had stopped, put him in a cheery humour. His high spirits were dampened, however, when he saw the sky ahead of them was dark with thunderheads. Brom looked at the clouds and grimaced. Normally I wouldn't go into a storm like that, but we're in for a battering no matter what we do, so we might as well get some distance covered. It was still calm when they reached the storm front. As they entered its shadow, Aragon looked up. The thundercloud had an exotic structure, forming a natural cathedral with massive arched roof. With some imagination he could see pillars, windows, soaring tears and snarling gargoyles. It was a wild beauty. As Aragon lowered his gaze, a giant ripple raced toward them through the grass, flattening it. It took him a second to realize that the wave was a tremendous blast of wind. Brom saw it too, and they hunched their shoulders, preparing for the storm. The gale was almost upon them when Aragon had a horrible thought and twisted in his saddle, yelling both with his voice and mind, Sephira, land! Brom's face grew pale. Overhead they saw her dive toward the ground. She's not going to make it. Sephira angled back the way they had come to gain time. As they watched, the tempest's wrath struck them like a hammer blow. Aragon gasped for breath and clenched the saddle as a frenzied howling filled his ears. Caddock swayed and dug his hoofs into the ground, mane snapping in the air. The wind tore at their clothes with invisible fingers, while the air darkened with billowing clouds of dust. Aragon squinted, searching for Sephira. He saw her land heavily and then crouch, clenching the ground with her talons. The wind reached her just as she started to fold her wings. With an angry yank, it unfurled them and dragged her into the air. For a moment, she hung there, suspended by the storm's force. Then it slammed her down on her back. With a savage wrench, Aragon yanked Caddock around and galloped back up the trail, goading the horse with both heels and mind. Sephira, he shouted. Try to stay on the ground. I'm coming. He felt a grim acknowledgement from her. As they neared Sephira, Caddock balked, so Aragon leapt down and ran toward her. His bow banged against his head. A strong gust pushed him off balance and he flew forward, landing on his chest. He skidded, then got back up with a snarl, ignoring the deep scrapes in his skin. 
Safira was only three yards away, but he could get no closer because of her flailing wings. She struggled to fold them against the overpowering gale. He rushed at her right wing, intending to hold it down, but the wind caught her, and she somersaulted over him. The spines on her back missed his head by inches. Safira clawed at the ground, trying to stay down. Her wings began to lift again, but before they could flip her, Aragon threw himself at the left one. The wing crumpled in at the joints, and Safira tucked it firmly against her body. Aragon vaulted over her back and tumbled onto the other wing. Without warning, it was blown upward, sending him sliding to the ground. He broke his fall with the roll, then jumped up and grabbed the wing again. Safira started to fold it, and he pushed with all of his strength. The wind battled with them for a second, but with one last surge, they overcame it. Aragon leaned against Safira, panting. Are you all right? He could feel her trembling. She took a moment to answer. I... I think so. She sounded shaken. Nothing's broken. I couldn't do anything. The wind wouldn't let me go. I was helpless. With a shudder, she fell silent. He looked at her, concerned. Don't worry, you're safe now. He spotted Cadoc a ways off, standing with his back to the wind. With his mind, Aragon instructed the horse to return to Brom. He then got on to Sephira. She crept up the road, fighting the gale, while he clung to her back and kept his head down. When they reached Brom, he shouted over the storm, Is she hurt? Aragon shook his head and dismounted. Cadoc trotted over to him, nickering. As he stroked the horse's long cheek, Brom pointed at a dark curtain of rain, sweeping toward them in rippling grey sheets. What else? cried Aragon, pulling his clothes tighter. He winced as the torrent reached them. The stinging rain was cold as ice. Before long they were drenched and shivering. Lightning lanced through the sky, flickering in and out of existence. Mile-high blue bolts streaked across the horizon, followed by peals of thunder that shook the ground below. It was beautiful, but dangerously so. Here and there, grass fires were ignited by strikes, only to be extinguished by the rain. The wild elements were slow to abate, but as the day passed, they wandered elsewhere. Once again, the sky was revealed and the setting sun glowed with brilliance. As beams of light tinted the clouds with blazing colours, everything gained a sharp contrast, brightly lit on one side, deeply shadowed on the other. Objects had a unique sense of mass. Grass stalks seemed sturdy as marble pillars. Ordinary things took on an unearthly beauty. Aragon felt as if he was sitting inside a painting. The rejuvenated earth smelled fresh, clearing their minds and raising their spirits. Sephira stretched, craning her neck, and roared happily. The horses skittered away from her, but Aragon and Brom smiled at her exuberance. Before the light faded, they stopped for the night in a shallow depression. Too exhausted to spar, they went straight to sleep. Revelation at Yazwak Although they had managed to partially refill the waterskins during the storm, they drank the last of their water that morning. I hope we're going in the right direction, said Aragon, crunching up the empty water bag, because we'll be in trouble if we don't reach Yazwak today. Brom did not seem disturbed. I've travelled this way before. Yazwak will be in sight before dusk. Aragon thought doubtfully. Perhaps you see something I don't. How can you know that when everything looks exactly the same for leagues around? Because I am guided not by the land, but by the stars and sun. They will not lead us astray. 
Come, let us be off. It is foolish to conjure up woe where none exists. Yazuak will be there. His words proved true. Sephira spotted the village first, but it was not until later in the day that the rest of them saw it as a dark bump on the horizon. Yazuak was still very far away. It was only visible because of the plain's uniform flatness. As they rode closer, a dark winding line appeared on either side of the town and disappeared in the distance. The Ninor River, said Brom, pointing at it. Aragon pulled Caddock to a stop. Safira will be seen if she stays with us much longer. Should she hide while we go into Yazuak? Brom scratched his chin and looked at the town. See that bend in the river? Have her wait there. It's far enough from Yazuak so no one should find her, but close enough that she won't be left behind. We'll go through the town, get what we need, and then meet her. I don't like it, said Safira, when Aragon had explained the plan. This is irritating, having to hide all the time like a criminal. You know what would happen if we were revealed? She grumbled, but gave in, and flew away low to the ground. They kept a swift pace in anticipation of the food and drink they would soon enjoy. As they approached the small houses, they could see smoke from a dozen chimneys, but there was no one in the streets. An abnormal silence enveloped the village. By unspoken consent, they stopped before the first house. Aragon abruptly said, There aren't any dogs barking. No. Doesn't mean anything, though. No. Aragon paused. Someone should have seen us by now. Yes. Then why hasn't anyone come out? Brom squinted at the sun. Could be afraid. Could be, said Aragon. He was quiet for a moment. And if it's a trap, the Razak might be waiting for us. We need provisions and water. There's the Ninor. Still need provisions. True. Aragon looked around. So we go in? Brom flicked his reins. Yes, but not like fools. This is the main entrance to Yazuak. If there's an ambush, it'll be along here. No one will expect us to arrive from a different direction. Around to the side, then? asked Aragon. Brom nodded and pulled out his sword, resting the bare blade across his saddle. Aragon strung his bow and knocked an arrow. They trotted quietly around the town and entered it cautiously. The streets were empty except for a small fox that darted away as they came near. The houses were dark and foreboding, with shattered windows. Many of the doors swung on broken hinges. The horses rolled their eyes nervously. Aragon's palm tingled, but he resisted the urge to scratch it. As they rode into the centre of town, he gripped his bow tighter, blanching. God's above, he whispered. A mountain of bodies rose above them, the corpses stiff and grimacing. Their clothes were soaked in blood and the churned ground was stained with it. Slaughtered men lay over the women they had tried to protect, mothers still clasped their children, and lovers who had tried to shield each other rested in death's cold embrace. Black arrows stuck out of them all. Neither young nor old had been spared, but worst of all was the barbed spear that rose out of the peak of the pile, impaling the white body of a baby. Tears blurred Aragon's vision and he tried to look away, but the dead faces held his attention. He stared at their open eyes and wondered how life could have left them so easily. What does our existence mean when it can end like this? A wave of hopelessness overwhelmed him. 
A crow dipped out of the sky like a black shadow and perched on the spear. It cocked its head and greedily scrutinized the infant's corpse. Oh, no, you don't, snarled Aragon as he pulled back the bowstring and released it with a twang. With a puff of feathers, the crow fell over backward, the arrow protruding from its chest. Aragon fit another arrow to the string, but nausea rose from his stomach, and he threw up over Caddock's side. Brom patted him on the back. When Aragon was done, Brom asked gently, Do you want to wait for me outside, Yazak? No, I'll stay, said Aragon shakily, wiping his mouth. He avoided looking at the gruesome sight before them. Who could have done? He could not force out the words. Brom bowed his head. Those who love the pain and suffering of others. They wear many faces and go by many disguises, but there is only one name for them. Evil. There is no understanding it. All we can do is pity and honor the victims. He dismounted Snowfire and walked around, inspecting the trampled ground carefully. The Razak passed this way, he said slowly. But this wasn't their doing. This is Urgal work. The spear is of their make. A company of them came through here, perhaps as many as a hundred. It's odd. I know of only a few instances when they have gathered in such... He knelt and examined a footprint intently. With a curse, he ran back to Snowfire and leapt onto him. Ride, he hissed tightly, spurring Snowfire forward. There are still Urgals here. Aragon jammed his heels into Caddock. The horse jumped forward and raced after Snowfire. They dashed past the houses and were almost to the edge of Yazwak when Aragon's palm tingled again. He saw a flicker of movement to his right, then a giant fist smashed him out of the saddle. He flew back over Caddock and crashed into a wall, holding onto his bow only by instinct. Gasping and stunned, he staggered upright, hugging his side. An urgle stood over him, face set in a gross leer. The monster was tall, thick, and broader than a doorway, with grey skin and yellow, piggish eyes. Muscles bulged on his arms and chest, which was covered by a too small breastplate. An iron cap rested over the pair of ram's horns curling from his temples, and a round shield was bound to one arm. His powerful hand held a short, wicked sword. Behind him, Aragon saw Brom rein in Snowfire and start back, only to be stopped by the appearance of a second Urgle, this one with an axe. Run, you fool! Brom cried to Aragon, cleaving at his enemy. The Urgle in front of Aragon roared and swung his sword mightily. Aragon jerked back with a startled yelp as the weapon whistled past his cheek. He spun around and fled toward the center of Yazwak, heart pounding wildly. The Urgle pursued him, heavy boots thudding. Aragon sent a desperate cry for help to Sephira, then forced himself to go even faster. The Urgle rapidly gained ground despite Aragon's efforts, large fangs separated in a soundless bellow. With the Urgle almost upon him, Aragon strung an arrow, spun to a stop, took aim, and released. The Urgle snapped up his arm and caught the quivering bolt on his shield. The monster collided with Aragon before he could shoot again, and they fell to the ground in a confused tangle. Aragon sprang to his feet and rushed back to Brom, who was trading fierce blows with his opponent from Snowfire's back. Where are the rest of the Urgles? wondered Aragon frantically. Are these two the only ones in Yazwak? There was a loud smack and Snowfire reared, whinnying. Brom doubled over in his saddle, blood streaming down his arm. The Urgle beside him howled in triumph and raised his axe for the death blow. 
A deafening scream tore out of Aragon as he charged the Urgul head first. The Urgul paused in astonishment, then faced him contemptuously, swinging his axe. Aragon ducked under the two-handed blow and clawed the Urgul's side, leaving bloody furrows. The Urgul's face twisted with rage. He slashed again but missed as Aragon dived to the side and scrambled down an alley. Aragon concentrated on leading the Urgulls away from Brom. He slipped into a narrow passageway between two houses, saw it was a dead end and slid to a stop. He tried to back out, but the Urgulls had already blocked the entrance. They advanced, cursing him in their gravelly voices. Aragon swung his head from side to side, searching for a way out, but there was none. As he faced the Urgulls, images flashed in his mind. Dead villagers piled around the spear, and an innocent baby who would never grow to adulthood. At the thought of their fate, a burning, fiery power gathered from every part of his body. It was more than a desire for justice. It was his entire being rebelling against the fact of death, that he would cease to exist. The power grew stronger and stronger until he felt ready to burst from the contained force. He stood tall and straight, all fear gone. He raised his bow smoothly. The Urgles laughed and lifted their shields. Aragon sighted down the shaft as he had done hundreds of times and aligned the arrowhead with his target. The energy inside him burned at an unbearable level. He had to release it or it would consume him. A word suddenly leapt unbidden to his lips. He shot, yelling, Brissinger! The arrow hissed through the air, glowing with a crackling blue light. It struck the lead Urgle on the forehead and the air resounded with an explosion. A blue shockwave blasted out of the monster's head, killing the other Urgle instantly. It reached Aragon before he had time to react, and it passed through him without harm, dissipating against the houses. Aragon stood panting, then looked at his icy palm. The Gedway Ignazia was glowing like white-hot metal, yet even as he watched, it faded back to normal. He clenched his fist, then a wave of exhaustion washed over him. He felt strange and feeble, as if he had not eaten for days. His knees buckled, and he sagged against a wall. Admonishments Once a modicum of strength returned to him, Aragon staggered out of the alley, skirting the dead monsters. He did not get far before Caddock trotted to his side. Good, you weren't hurt, mumbled Aragon. He noticed, without particularly caring, that his hands were shaking violently and his movements were jerky. He felt detached, as if everything he saw were happening to someone else. Aragon found Snowfire, nostrils flared and ears flat against his head, prancing by the corner of a house, ready to bolt. Brom was still slumped motionless in the saddle. Aragon reached out with his mind and soothed the horse. Once Snowfire relaxed, Aragon went to Brom. There was a long, blood-soaked cut on the old man's right arm. The wound bled profusely, but it was neither deep nor wide. Still, Aragon knew it had to be bound before Brom lost too much blood. He stroked Snowfire for a moment, then slid Brom out of the saddle. The weight proved too much for him, and Brom dropped heavily to the ground. Aragon was shocked by his own weakness. A scream of rage filled his head. Sephira dived out of the sky and landed fiercely in front of him, keeping her wings half-raised. She hissed angrily, eyes burning, her tail lashed, and Aragon winced as it snapped overhead.
Are you hurt? she asked, rage boiling in her voice. No, he assured her as he laid Brom on his back. She growled and exclaimed, Where are the ones who did this? I will tear them apart. He wearily pointed in the direction of the alley. It'll do no good. They're already dead. You killed them? Sephira sounded surprised. He nodded. Somehow. With a few terse words, he told her what had happened while he searched his saddlebags for the rags in which Zarok had been wrapped. Sephira said gravely, You have grown. Aragon grunted. He found a long rag and carefully rolled back Brom's sleeve. With a few deft strokes, he cleaned the cut and bandaged it tightly. I wish we were still in Palankar Valley, he said to Sephira. There at least I knew what plants were good for healing. Here I don't have any idea what will help him. He retrieved Brom's sword from the ground, wiped it, then returned it to the sheath on Brom's belt. We should leave, said Sephira. There may be more ogles lurking about. Can you carry Brom? Your saddle will hold him in place and you can protect him. Yes, but I'm not leaving you alone. Fine, fly next to me, but let's get out of here. He tied the saddle onto Sephira, then put his arms around Brom and tried to lift him. But again his diminished strength failed him. Sephira, help! She snaked her head past him and caught the back of Brom's robe between her teeth. Arching her neck, she lifted the old man off the ground like a cat would a kitten and deposited him onto her back. Then Aragon slipped Brom's legs through the saddle straps and tightened them. He looked up when the old man moaned and shifted. Brom blinked blearily, putting a hand to his head. He gazed down at Aragon with concern. Did Sephira get here in time? Aragon shook his head. I'll explain it later. Your arm is injured. I bandaged it as best I could, but you need a safe place to rest. Yes, said Brom, gingerly touching his arm. Do you know where my sword... Ah, I see you found it. Aragon finished tightening the straps. Sephira's going to take you and follow me by air. Are you sure you want me to ride her? asked Brom. I can ride Snowfire. Not with that arm. This way, even if you faint, you won't fall off. Brom nodded. I'm honoured. He wrapped his good arm around Sephira's neck and she took off in a flurry, springing high into the sky. Aragon backed away, buffeted by the eddies from her wings, and returned to the horses. He tied Snowfire behind Kadok, then left Yazwak, returning to the trail and following it southward. It led through a rocky area, veered left, and continued along the bank of the Ninor River. Ferns, mosses, and small bushes dotted the sides of the path. It was refreshingly cool under the trees, but Aragon did not let the soothing air lull him into a sense of security. He stopped briefly to fill the waterskins and let the horses drink. Glancing down, he saw the Razak spore. At least we're going in the right direction. Sephira circled overhead, keeping a keen eye on him. It disturbed him that they had seen only two Urgles. The villagers had been killed and Yazwak ransacked by a large horde, yet where was it? Perhaps the ones we encountered were a rearguard or a trap left for anyone who was following the main force. His thoughts turned to how he had killed the Urgles. An idea, a revelation, slowly wormed its way through his mind. He, Aragon, farm boy of Palankar Valley, had used magic.
Magic! It was the only word for what had happened. It seemed impossible, but he could not deny what he had seen. Somehow I'd become a sorcerer or wizard. But he did not know how to use this new power again or what its limits and dangers might be. How can I have this ability? Was it common among the riders? And if Brom knew of it, why didn't he tell me? He shook his head in wonder and bewilderment. He conversed with Zephira to check on Brom's condition and to share his thoughts. She was just as puzzled as he was about the magic. Zephira, can you find us a place to stay? I can't see very far down here. While she searched, he continued along the Ninor. The summons reached him just as the light was fading. Come. Sephira sent him an image of a secluded clearing in the trees by the river. Aragon turned the horses in the new direction and nudged them into a trot. With Sephira's help it was easy to find, but it was so well hidden that he doubted anyone else would notice it. A small, smokeless fire was already burning when he entered the clearing. Brom sat next to it, tending his arm, which he held at an awkward angle. Sephira was crouched behind him, her body tense. She looked intently at Aragon and asked, Are you sure you aren't hurt? Not on the outside, but I'm not sure about the rest of me. I should have been there sooner. Don't feel bad. We all made mistakes today. Mine was not staying closer to you. Her gratitude for that remark washed over him. He looked at Brom. How are you? The old man glanced at his arm. It's a large scratch and hurts terribly, but it should heal quickly enough. I need a fresh bandage. This one didn't last as long as I'd hoped. They boiled water to wash Brom's wound. Then Brom tied a fresh rag to his arm and said, I must eat, and you look hungry as well. Let's have dinner first, then talk. When their bellies were full and warm, Brom lit his pipe. Now, I think it's time for you to tell me what transpired while I was unconscious. I am most curious. His face reflected the flickering firelight, and his bushy eyebrows stuck out fiercely. Aragon nervously clasped his hands and told the story without embellishment. Brom remained silent throughout it, his face inscrutable. When Aragon finished, Brom looked down at the ground. For a long time the only sound was the snapping fire. Brom finally stirred. Have you used this power before? No. Do you know anything about it? A little. Brom's face was thoughtful. It seems I owe you a debt for saving my life. I hope I can return the favour some day. You should be proud. Few escape unscathed from slaying their first Urgle. But the manner in which you did it was very dangerous. You could have destroyed yourself and the whole town. It wasn't as if I had a choice, said Aragon defensively. The Urgles were almost upon me. If I had waited, they would have chopped me into pieces. Brom stamped his teeth vigorously on the pipe stem. You didn't have any idea what you were doing. Then tell me, challenged Aragon. I've been searching for answers to this mystery, but I can't make sense of it. What happened? How could I have possibly used magic? No one has ever instructed me in it or taught me spells. Brom's eyes flashed. This isn't something you should be taught, much less use. Well, I have used it, and I may need it to fight again. But I won't be able to if you don't help me. What's wrong? Is there some secret I'm not supposed to learn until I'm old and wise? Or maybe you don't know anything about magic. Boy, roared Brom. You demand answers with an insolence rarely seen. 
If you knew what you asked for, you would not be so quick to inquire. Do not try me. He paused, then relaxed into a kinder countenance. The knowledge you ask for is more complex than you understand. Aragon rose hotly in protest. I feel as though I've been thrust into a world with strange rules that no one will explain. I understand, said Brom. He fiddled with a piece of grass. It's late, and we should sleep, but I will tell you a few things now to stop your badgering. This magic, for it is magic, has rules like the rest of the world. If you break the rules, the penalty is death, without exception. Your deeds are limited by your strength, the words you know, and your imagination. What do you mean by words? asked Aragon. More questions, cried Brom. For a moment I had hoped you were empty of them, but you are quite right in asking. When you shot the Urgles, didn't you say something? Yes, Brissinger. The fire flared and a shiver ran through Aragon. Something about the word made him feel incredibly alive. I thought so. Brissinger is from an ancient language that all living things used to speak. However, it was forgotten over time and went unspoken for eons in Alagasia until the elves brought it back over the sea. They taught it to the other races, who used it for making and doing powerful things. The language has a name for everything, if you can find it. But what does that have to do with magic? interrupted Aragon. Everything. It is the basis for all power. The language describes the true nature of things, not the superficial aspects that everyone sees. For example, fire is called Brissinger. Not only is that a name for fire, it is the name for fire. If you are strong enough, you can use Brissinger to direct fire to do whatever you will. And that is what happened today. Aragon thought about it for a moment. Why was the fire blue? How come it did exactly what I wanted if all I said was fire? The colour varies from person to person. It depends on who says the word. As to why the fire did what you wanted, that's a matter of practice. Most beginners have to spell out exactly what they want to happen. As they gain more experience, it isn't as necessary. A true master could just say water and create something totally unrelated like a gemstone. You wouldn't be able to understand how he had done it but the master would have seen the connection between water and the gem and would have used that as the focal point for his power. The practice is more of an art than anything else. What you did was extremely difficult. Sephira interrupted Aragon's thoughts. Brom is a magician. That's how he was able to light the fire on the plains. He doesn't just know about magic, he can use it himself. Aragon's eyes widened. You're right. Ask him about this power, but be careful of what you say. It is unwise to trifle with those who have such abilities. If he is a wizard or sorcerer, who knows what his motives might have been for settling in Carver Hall? Aragon kept that in mind as he said carefully, Sephira and I just realized something. You can use this magic, can't you? That's how you started the fire our first day on the plains. Brom inclined his head slightly. I am proficient to some degree. Then why didn't you fight the Urgles with it? 
In fact, I can think of many times when it would have been useful. You could have shielded us from the storm and kept the dirt out of our eyes. After refilling his pipe, Brom said, Some simple reasons, really. I am not a rider, which means that even at your weakest moment you are stronger than I, and I have outlived my youth. I am not as strong as I used to be. Every time I reach for magic, it gets a little harder. Aragon dropped his eyes abashed. I'm sorry. Don't be, said Brom as he shifted his arm. It happens to everyone. Where did you learn to use magic? That is one fact I'll keep to myself. Suffice it to say it was in a remote area and from a very good teacher. I can at the very least pass on his lessons. Brom snuffed his pipe with a small rock. I know that you have more questions, and I will answer them, but they must wait until morning. He leaned forward, eyes gleaming. Until then, I will say this to discourage any experiments. Magic takes just as much energy as if you used your arms and back. That is why you felt tired after destroying the Urgles, and that is why I was angry. It was a dreadful risk on your part. If the magic had used more energy than was in your body, it would have killed you. You should use magic only for tasks that can't be accomplished the mundane way. How do you know if a spell will use all your energy? asked Aragon, frightened. Brom raised his hands. Most of the time you don't. That's why magicians have to know their limits well, and even then they are cautious. Once you commit to a task and release the magic, you can't pull it back, even if it's going to kill you. I mean this as a warning. Don't try anything until you've learned more. Now, enough of this for tonight. As they spread out their blankets, Sephira commented with satisfaction, We are becoming more powerful, Aragorn, both of us. Soon no one will be able to stand in our way. Yes. But which way shall we choose? Whichever one we want, she said smugly, settling down for the night. Magic is the simplest thing. Why do you think those two Urgals were still in Yazwak? asked Aragon, after they'd been on the trail for a while. There doesn't seem to be any reason for them to have stayed behind. I suspect they deserted the main group to loot the town. What makes it odd is that as far as I know, Urgles have gathered in force only two or three times in history. It's unsettling that they're doing it now. Do you think the Rozak caused the attack? I don't know. The best thing we can do is continue away from Yazwak at the fastest pace we can muster. Besides, this is the direction the Rozak went, south. Aragon agreed. We still need provisions, however. Is there another town nearby? Brom shook his head. No, but Sephira can hunt for us if we must survive on meat alone. This swath of trees may look small to you, but there are plenty of animals in it. The river is the only source of water for many miles around, so most of the plains animals come here to drink. We won't starve. Aragon remained quiet, satisfied with Brom's answer. As they rode, loud birds darted around them, and the river rushed by peacefully. It was a noisy place, full of life and energy. Aragon asked, How did that Urgol get you? Things were happening so fast I didn't see. Bad luck, really, grumbled Brom. I was more than a match for him, so he kicked Snowfire. The idiot of a horse reared and threw me off balance. 
That was all the Urgle needed to give me this gash. He scratched his chin. I suppose you're still wondering about this magic. The fact that you've discovered it presents a thorny problem. Few know it, but every rider could use magic, though with differing strengths. They kept the ability secret, even at the height of their power, because it gave them an advantage over their enemies. Had everyone known about it, dealing with common people would have been difficult. Many think the king's magical powers come from the fact that he is a wizard or sorcerer. That's not true. It's because he is a rider. What's the difference? Doesn't the fact that I used magic make me a sorcerer? Not at all. A sorcerer, like a shade, uses spirits to accomplish his will. That is totally different from your power. Nor does that make you a magician whose powers come without the aid of spirits or a dragon. And you're certainly not a witch or wizard who get their powers from various potions and spells. Which brings me back to my original point, the problem you've presented. Young riders like yourself were put through a strict regimen designed to strengthen their bodies and increase their mental control. This regimen continued for many months, occasionally years, until the riders were deemed responsible enough to handle magic. Up until then, not one student was told of his potential powers. If one of them discovered magic by accident, he or she was immediately taken away for private tutoring. It was rare for anyone to discover magic on his own. He inclined his head toward Aragon, though they were never put under the same pressure you were. Then how were they finally trained to use magic? asked Aragon. I don't see how you could teach it to anyone. If you had tried to explain it to me two days ago, it wouldn't have made any sense. The students were presented with a series of pointless exercises designed to frustrate them. For example, they were instructed to move piles of stones using only their feet, fill lever-draining tubs full of water and other impossibilities. After a time, they would get infuriated enough to use magic. Most of the time, it succeeded. What this means, Brom continued, is that you will be disadvantaged if you ever meet an enemy who has received this training. There are still some alive who are that old, the king for one, not to mention the elves. Any one of those could tear you apart with ease. What can I do, then? There isn't time for formal instruction, but we can do much while we travel, said Brom. I know many techniques you can practice that will give you strength and control, but you cannot gain the discipline the riders had overnight. You, he looked at Aragon humorously, will have to amass it on the run. It will be hard in the beginning, but the rewards will be great. It may please you to know that no rider your age ever used magic the way you did yesterday with those two Urgles. Aragon smiled at the praise. Thank you. Does this language have a name? Brom laughed. Yes, but no one knows it. It would be a word of incredible power, something by which you could control the entire language and those who use it. People have long searched for it, but no one has ever found it. I still don't understand how this magic works, said Aragon. Exactly how do I use it? Brom looked astonished. I haven't made that clear? No. Brom took a deep breath and said, To work with magic, you must have a certain innate power, which is very rare among people nowadays. You also have to be able to summon this power at will. Once it is called upon, you have to use it or let it fade away. Understood? 
Now, if you wish to employ the power, you must utter the word or phrase of the ancient language that describes your intent. For example, if you hadn't said Brissinger yesterday, nothing would have happened. So I'm limited by my knowledge of this language. Exactly, crowed Brom. Also, while speaking it, it's impossible to practice deceit. Aragon shook his head. That can't be. People always lie. The sounds of the ancient words can't stop them from doing that. Brom cocked an eyebrow and said, Featherblaka, eka weonata niet henaono. Blaka, iom yet lam. A bird suddenly flitted from a branch and landed on his hand. It trilled lightly and looked at them with beady eyes. After a moment he said, Ether, and it fluttered away. How did you do that? asked Aragon in wonder. I promised not to harm him. He may not have known exactly what I meant, but in the language of power the meaning of my words was evident. The bird trusted me, because he knows what all animals do, that those who speak in that tongue are bound by their word. And the elves speak this language? Yes. So they never lie? Not quite, admitted Brom. They maintain that they don't, and in a way it's true. But they have perfected the art of saying one thing and meaning another. You never know exactly what their intent is, or if you have fathomed it correctly. Many times they only reveal part of the truth and withhold the rest. It takes a refined and subtle mind to deal with their culture. Aragon considered that. What do personal names mean in this language? Do they give power over people? Brom's eyes brightened with approval. Yes, they do. Those who speak the language have two names. The first is for everyday use and has little authority, but the second is their true name and is shared with only a few trusted people. There was a time when no one concealed his true name, but this age isn't as kind. Whoever knows your true name gains enormous power over you. It's like putting your life into another person's hands. Everyone has a hidden name, but few know what it is. How do you find your true name? asked Aragon. Elves instinctively know theirs. No one else has that gift. The human riders usually went on quests to discover it, or found an elf who would tell them, which was rare, for elves don't distribute that knowledge freely, replied Brom. I'd like to know mine. Aragon said wistfully. Brom's brow darkened. Be careful. It can be a terrible knowledge. To know who you are without any delusions or sympathy is a moment of revelation that no one experiences unscathed. Some have been driven to madness by that stark reality. Most try to forget it. But as much as the name will give others power, so you may gain power over yourself— if the truth doesn't break you. And I'm sure that it would not, stated Sephira. I still wish to know, said Aragon, determined. You are not easily dissuaded. That is good, for only the resolute find their identity. But I cannot help you with this. It is a search that you will have to undertake on your own. Brom moved his injured arm and grimaced uncomfortably. Why can't you or I heal that with magic? asked Aragon. Brom blinked. No reason. I just never considered it because it's beyond my strength. You could probably do it with the right word, but I don't want you to exhaust yourself. I could save you a lot of trouble and pain, 
protested Aragon. I'll live with it, said Brom flatly. Using magic to heal a wound takes just as much energy as it would to mend on its own. I don't want you tired for the next few days. You shouldn't attempt such a difficult task yet. Still, if it's possible to fix your arm, could I bring someone back from the dead? The question surprised Brom, but he answered quickly, Remember what I said about projects that will kill you? That is one of them. Riders were forbidden to try to resurrect the dead for their own safety. There is an abyss beyond life where magic means nothing. If you reach into it, your strength will flee and your soul will fade into darkness. Wizards, sorcerers, and riders all have failed and died on that threshold. Stick with what's possible. Cuts, bruises, maybe some broken bones, but definitely not dead people. Aragon frowned. This is a lot more complex than I thought. Exactly, said Brom. And if you don't understand what you're doing, you'll try something too big and die. He twisted in his saddle and swooped down, grabbing a handful of pebbles from the ground. With effort, he righted himself, then discarded all but one of the rocks. See this pebble? Yes. Take it. Aragon did and stared at the unremarkable lump. It was dull black, smooth, and as large as the end of his thumb. There were countless stones like it on the trail. This is your training. Aragon looked back at him, confused. I don't understand. Of course you don't, Brom said impatiently. That's why I'm teaching you and not the other way around. Now stop talking or we'll never get anywhere. What I want you to do is lift the rock off your palm and hold it in the air for as long as you can. The words you're going to use are stenarisa. Say them. Stenarisa. Good. Go ahead and try. Aragon focused sourly on the pebble, searching his mind for any hint of the energy that had burned in him the day before. The stone remained motionless as he stared at it, sweating and frustrated. How am I supposed to do this? Finally, he crossed his arms and snapped, This is impossible! No, said Brom gruffly. I'll say when it's impossible or not. Fight for it. Don't give in this easily. Try again. Frowning, Aragon closed his eyes, setting aside all distracting thoughts. He took a deep breath and reached into the farthest corners of his consciousness, trying to find where his power resided. Searching, he found only thoughts and memories, until he felt something different. A small bump that was a part of him, yet not of him. Excited, he dug into it, seeking what it hid. He felt resistance a barrier in his mind, but knew that the power lay on the other side. He tried to breach it, but it held firm before his efforts. Growing angry, Aragon drove into the barrier, ramming against it with all of his might, until it shattered like a thin pane of glass, flooding his mind with a river of light. Stenarissa, he gasped. The pebble wobbled into the air over his faintly glowing palm. He struggled to keep it floating, but the power slipped away and faded back behind the barrier. The pebble dropped to his hand with a soft plop, and his palm returned to normal. He felt a little tired, but grinned from his success. Not bad for your first time, said Brom. Why does my hand do that? It's like a little lantern. No one's sure, Brom admitted. The riders always preferred to channel their power through whichever hand bore the Gedway Ignazia. You can use your other palm, but it isn't as easy. He looked at Aragon for a minute. 
I'll buy you some gloves at the next town, if it isn't gutted. You hide the mark pretty well on your own, but we don't want anyone to see it by accident. Besides, there may be times when you won't want the glow to alert an enemy. Do you have a mark of your own? No, only riders have them, said Brom. Also, you should know that magic is affected by distance, just like an arrow or a spear. If you try to lift or move something a mile away, it'll take more energy than if you were closer. So if you see enemies racing after you from a league away, let them approach before using magic. Now back to work. Try to lift the pebble again. Again? asked Aragon weakly, thinking of the effort it had taken to do it just once. Yes, and this time be quicker about it. They continued with the exercises throughout most of the day. When Aragon finally stopped, he was tired and ill-tempered. In those hours he had come to hate the pebble and everything about it. He started to throw it away, but Brom said, Don't. Keep it. Aragon glared at him, then reluctantly tucked the stone into a pocket. We're not done yet, warned Brom, so don't get comfortable. He pointed at a small plant. This is called Delois. From there on, he instructed Aragon in the ancient language, giving him words to memorize from Vonder, a thin straight stick, to the morning star, Aedale. That evening they sparred around the fire. Though Brom fought with his left hand, his skill was undiminished. The days followed the same pattern. First, Aragon struggled to learn the ancient words and to manipulate the pebble. Then in the evening he trained against Brom with the fake swords. Aragon was in constant discomfort, but he gradually began to change, almost without noticing. Soon the pebble no longer wobbled when he lifted it. He mastered the first exercises Brom gave him and undertook harder ones, and his knowledge of the ancient language grew. In their sparring, Aragon gained confidence and speed, striking like a snake. His blows became heavier, and his arm no longer trembled when he warded off attacks. The clashes lasted longer as he learned how to fend off Brom. Now, when they went to sleep, Aragon was not the only one with bruises. Sephira continued to grow as well, but more slowly than before. Her extended flights, along with periodic hunts, kept her fit and healthy. She was taller than the horses now and much longer. Because of her size and the way her scales sparkled, she was altogether too visible. Brom and Aragon worried about it, but they could not convince her to allow dirt to obscure her scintillating hide. They continued south, tracking the Razak. It frustrated Aragon that no matter how fast they went, the Razak always stayed a few days ahead of them. At times he was ready to give up, but then they would find some mark or print that would renew his hope. There were no signs of habitation along the Ninor or in the plains, leaving the three companions undisturbed as the days slipped by. Finally, they neared Darat, the first village since Yazwak. The night before they reached the village, Aragon's dreams were especially vivid. He saw Garrow and Roran at home, sitting in the destroyed kitchen. They asked him for help rebuilding the farm, but he only shook his head with a pang of longing in his heart. I'm tracking your killers, he whispered to his uncle. Garrow looked at him askance and demanded, Do I look dead to you? I can't help you, said Aragon softly, feeling tears in his eyes. There was a sudden roar, and Garrow transformed into the Razak. Then die! they hissed and leapt at Aragon. 
he woke up feeling ill and watched the stars slowly turn in the sky. All will be well, little one, said Sephira gently. Darrett Darrett was on the banks of the Nenor River, as it had to be to survive. The village was small and wild-looking, without any signs of inhabitants. Aragon and Brom approached it with great caution. Sephira hid close to the town this time. If trouble arose, she would be at their sides within seconds. They rode into Darrett, striving to be silent. Brom gripped his sword with his good hand, eyes flashing everywhere. Aragon kept his bow partially drawn as they passed between the silent houses, glancing at each other with apprehension. This doesn't look good, commented Aragon to Sephira. She did not answer, but he felt her prepared to rush after them. He looked at the ground and was reassured to see the fresh footprints of children. But where are they? Brom stiffened as they entered the centre of Darrett and found it empty. Wind blew through the desolate town, and dust devils swirled sporadically. Brom wheeled Snowfire about. Let's get out of here. I don't like the feel of this. He spurred Snowfire into a gallop. Aragon followed him, urging Caddock onward. They advanced only a few strides before wagons toppled out from behind the houses and blocked their way. Caddock snorted and dug his hooves in, sliding to a stop next to Snowfire. A swarthy man hopped over the wagon and planted himself before them, a broadsword slung at his side and a drawn bow in his hands. Aragon swung his own bow up and pointed it at the stranger, who commanded, Halt! Put your weapons down! You're surrounded by sixty archers! They'll shoot if you move! As if on cue, a row of men stood up on the roofs of the surrounding houses. Stay away, Sephira! cried Aragon. There are too many! If you come, they'll shoot you out of the sky! Stay away! She heard, but he was unsure if she would obey. He prepared to use magic. I'll have to stop the arrows before they hit me or Brom. What do you want? asked Brom calmly. Why have you come here? demanded the man. To buy supplies and hear the news. Nothing more. We're on the way to my cousin's house in Drasleona. You're armed pretty heavily. So are you, said Brom. These are dangerous times. True. The man looked at them carefully. I don't think you mean us ill, but we've had too many encounters with urgles and bandits for me to trust you only on your word. If it doesn't matter what we say, what happens now? countered Brom. The men on top of the houses had not moved. By their very stillness, Aragon was sure that they were either highly disciplined or frightened for their lives. He hoped it was the latter. You say you only want supplies. Would you agree to stay here while we bring what you need? Then pay us and leave immediately? Yes. All right, said the man, lowering his bow, though he kept it ready. He waved at one of the archers who slid to the ground and ran over. Tell him what you want. Brom recited a short list and then added, Also, if you have a pair of gloves that would fit my nephew, I'd like to buy those too. The archer nodded and ran off. The name's Trevor, said the man, standing in front of them. Normally I shake your hand, but under the circumstances I think I'll keep my distance. Tell me, where are you from? North, said Brom. But we haven't lived in any place long enough to call it home. Have Urgles forced you to take these measures? Yes, said Trevor. And worse fiends. Do you have any news from other towns? We receive word from them rarely, but there have been reports that they are also beleaguered. 
Brom turned grave. I wish it wasn't our lot to bring you these tidings. Nearly a fortnight ago we passed through Yazuak and found it pillaged. The villagers had been slaughtered and piled together. We would have tried to give them a decent burial, but two urgles attacked us. Shocked, Trevor stepped back and looked down with tears in his eyes. Alas, this is indeed a dark day. Still, I don't see how two urgles could have defeated all of Yazuak. The people there were good fighters. Some were my friends. There were signs that a band of urgles had ravaged the town, stated Brom. I think the ones we encountered were deserters. How large was the company? Brom fiddled with his saddlebags for a minute. Large enough to wipe out Yazwak, but small enough to go unnoticed in the countryside. No more than a hundred, and no less than fifty. If I'm not mistaken, either number would prove fatal to you. Trevor wearily agreed. You should consider leaving, Brom continued. This area has become far too perilous for anyone to live in peace. I know, but the people here refuse to consider moving. This is their home, as well as mine, though I have only been here a couple of years, and they place its worth above their own lives. Trevor looked at him seriously. We have repulsed individual urgles, and that has given the townspeople a confidence far beyond their abilities. I fear that we will all wake up one morning without throats slashed. The archer hurried out of a house with a pile of goods in his arms. He set them next to the horses, and Brom paid him. As the man left, Brom asked, Why did they choose you to defend Darrett? Trevor shrugged. I was in the king's army for some years. Brom dug through the items, handed Aragon the pair of gloves, and packed the rest of the supplies into their saddlebags. Aragon pulled the gloves on, being careful to keep his palm facing down, and flexed his hands. The leather felt good and strong, though it was scarred from use. Well, said Brom, as I promised, we will go now. Trevor nodded. When you enter Drasleona, would you do us this favor? Alert the Empire to our plight and that of the other towns. If word of this hasn't reached the king by now, it's cause for worry. And if it has, but he has chosen to do nothing, that too is cause for worry. We will carry your message. May your sword stay sharp, said Brom. And yours. The wagons were pulled out of their way, and they rode from Darrett into the trees along the Ninor River. Eragon sent his thoughts to Sephira. We're on our way back. Everything turned out all right. Her only response was simmering anger. Brom pulled at his beard. The Empire is in worse condition than I had imagined. When the traders visited Carver Hall, they brought reports of unrest, but I never believed that it was this widespread. With all these urgles around, it seems that the Empire itself is under attack, yet no troops or soldiers have been sent out. It's as if the king doesn't care to defend his domain. It is strange, agreed Aragon. Brom ducked under a low-hanging branch. Did you use any of your powers while we were in Darrett? There was no reason to. Wrong, corrected Brom. You could have sensed Trevor's intentions. Even with my limited abilities, I was able to do that. If the villagers had been bent on killing us, I wouldn't have just sat there. However, I felt there was a reasonable chance of talking our way out of there, which is what I did. How could I know what Trevor was thinking? asked Aragon. Am I supposed to be able to see into people's minds? Come now, chided Brom. You should know the answer to that. You could have discovered Trevor's purpose in the same way that you communicate with Cadoc or Sephira. 
the minds of men are not so different from a dragon's or horse's. It's a simple thing to do, but it's a power you must use sparingly and with great caution. A person's mind is his last sanctuary. You must never violate it unless circumstances force you to. The riders had very strict rules regarding this. If they were broken without due cause, the punishment was severe. And you can do this, even though you aren't a rider? asked Aragon. As I said before, with the right instruction, anyone can talk with their minds, but with differing amounts of success. Whether it's magic, though, is hard to tell. Magical abilities will certainly trigger the talent, or becoming linked with a dragon, but I've known plenty who learned it on their own. Think about it. You can communicate with any sentient being, though the contact may not be very clear. You could spend the entire day listening to a bird's thoughts or understanding how an earthworm feels during a rainstorm. But I have never found birds very interesting. I suggest starting with a cat. They have unusual personalities. Aragon twisted Caddock's reins in his hands, considering the implications of what Brom had said. But if I can get into someone's head, doesn't that mean that others can do the same to me? How do I know if someone's prying in my mind? Is there a way to stop that? How do I know if Brom can tell what I'm thinking right now? Why, yes. Hasn't Sephira ever blocked you from her mind? Occasionally, admitted Aragon. When she took me into the spine, I couldn't talk to her at all. It wasn't that she was ignoring me. I don't think she could even hear me. There were walls around her mind that I couldn't get through. Brom worked on his bandage for a moment, shifting it higher on his arm. Only a few people can tell if someone is in their mind and of those only a handful could stop you from entering. It's a matter of training and of how you think. Because of your magical power, you'll always know if someone is in your mind. Once you do, blocking them is a simple matter of concentrating on one thing to the exclusion of all else. For instance, if you only think about a brick wall, that's all the enemy will find in your mind. However, it takes a huge amount of energy and discipline to block someone for any length of time. If you're distracted by even the slightest thing, your wall will waver and your opponent will slip in through the weakness. How can I learn to do this? asked Aragon. There is only one thing for it. Practice, practice, and yet more practice. Picture something in your mind and hold it there to the exclusion of all else for as long as you can. It's a very advanced ability. Only a handful ever master it, said Brom. I don't need perfection, just safety. If I can get into someone's mind, can I change how he thinks? Every time I learn something new about magic, I grow more wary of it. When they reached Sephira, she startled them by thrusting her head at them. The horses backstepped nervously. Sephira looked Aragon over carefully and gave a low hiss. Her eyes were flinty. Aragon threw a concerned look at Brom. He had never seen Sephira this angry. Then asked, What's wrong? You, she growled. You are the problem. Aragon frowned and got off Caddock. As soon as his feet touched the ground, Sephira swept his legs out from under him with her tail and pinned him with her talons. What are you doing? he yelled, struggling to get up, but she was too strong for him. Brom watched attentively from Snowfire. Sephira swung her head over Aragon until they were eye to eye. He squirmed under her unwavering glare. You! Every time you leave my sight, you get into trouble. You're like a new hatchling, sticking your nose into everything. 
And what happens when you stick it into something that bites back? How will you survive then? I cannot help you when I'm miles away. I've stayed hidden so that no one would see me, but no longer. Not when it may cost you your life. I can understand why you're upset, said Aragon. But I'm much older than you and can take care of myself. If anything, you're the one who needs to be protected. She snarled and snapped her teeth by his ear. Do you really believe that? she asked. Tomorrow you will ride me, not that pitiful deer animal you call a horse, or else I will carry you in my claws. Are you a dragon rider or not? Don't you care for me? The question burned in Aragon, and he dropped his gaze. He knew she was right, but he was scared of riding her. Their flights had been the most painful ordeal he had ever endured. Well, demanded Brom. She wants me to ride her tomorrow, said Aragon lamely. Brom considered it with twinkling eyes. Well, you have the saddle. I suppose that if the two of you stay out of sight, it won't be a problem. Sephira switched her gaze to him, then returned it to Aragon. But what if you're attacked or there's an accident? I won't be able to get there in time, and... Sephira pressed harder on his chest, stopping his words. Exactly my point, little one. Brom seemed to hide a smile. It's worth the risk. You need to learn how to ride her anyway. Think about it this way. With you flying ahead and looking at the ground, you'll be able to spot any traps, ambushes, or other unwelcome surprises. Aragon looked back at Sephira and said, Okay, I'll do it, but let me up. Give me your word. Is that really necessary? he demanded. She blinked. Very well. I give you my word that I will fly with you tomorrow. Satisfied? I am content. Sephira let him up, and with a push of her legs took off. A small shiver ran through Aragon as he watched her twist through the air. Grumbling, he returned to Caddock and followed Brom. It was nearly sundown when they made camp. As usual, Aragon dueled with Brom before dinner. In the midst of the fight, Aragon delivered such a powerful blow that he snapped both of their sticks like twigs. The pieces whistled into the darkness in a cloud of splintered fragments. Brom tossed what remained of his stick into the fire and said, We're done with these. Throw yours in as well. You have learned well, but we've gone as far as we can with branches. There is nothing more you can gain from them. It is time for you to use the blade. He removed Zarok from Aragon's bag and gave it to him. We'll cut each other to ribbons, protested Aragon. Not so. Again, you forget magic, said Brom. He held up his sword and turned it so that firelight glinted off the edge. He put a finger on either side of the blade and focused intensely, deepening the lines on his forehead. For a moment nothing happened. Then he uttered, Geuloth du Nifer, and a small red spark jumped between his fingers. As it flickered back and forth, he ran his fingers down the length of the sword. Then he twirled it and did the same thing on the other side. The spark vanished the moment his fingers left the metal. Brom held his hand out, palm up, and slashed it with the sword. Aragon jumped forward, but was too slow to stop him. He was astonished when Brom raised his unharmed hand with a smile. What did you do? asked Aragon. Feel the edge, said Brom. 
Aragon touched it and felt an invisible surface under his fingers. The barrier was about a quarter inch wide and very slippery. Now do the same on Zarok, instructed Brom. Your block will be a bit different than mine, but it should accomplish the same thing. He told Aragon how to pronounce the words and coached him through the process. It took Aragon a few tries, but he soon had Zarok's edge protected. Confident, he took his fighting stance. Before they started, Brom admonished, These swords won't cut us, but they can still break bones. I would prefer to avoid that, so don't flail around like you normally do. A blow to the neck could prove fatal. Aragon nodded, then struck without warning. Sparks flew off his blade and the clash of metal filled their campsite as Brom parried. The sword felt slow and heavy to Aragon after fighting with sticks for so long. Unable to move Zarok fast enough, he received a sharp rap on his knee. They both had large welts when they stopped, Aragon more so than Brom. He marveled that Zarok had not been scratched or dented by the vigorous pounding it had received. Through a Dragon's Eye The next morning Aragon woke with stiff limbs and purple bruises. He saw Brom carry the saddle to Sephira and tried to quell his uneasiness. By the time breakfast was ready, Brom had strapped the saddle onto Sephira and hung Aragon's bags from it. When his bowl was empty, Aragon silently picked up his bow and went to Sephira. Brom said, Now remember, grip with your knees, guide her with your thoughts and stay as flat as you can on her back. Nothing will go wrong if you don't panic. Aragon nodded, sliding his unstrung bow into its leather tube, and Brom boosted him into the saddle. Sephira waited impatiently while Aragon tightened the bands around his legs. Are you ready? she asked. He sucked in the fresh morning air. No, but let's do it. She agreed enthusiastically. He braced himself as she crouched. Her powerful legs surged and the air whipped past him, snatching his breath away. With three smooth strokes of her wings, she was in the sky, climbing rapidly. The last time Aragon had ridden Sephira, every flap of her wings had been strained. Now she flew steadily and effortlessly. He clenched his arms around her neck as she turned on edge, banking. The river shrank to a wispy grey line beneath them. Clouds floated around them. When they levelled off, high above the plains, the trees below were no more than specks. The air was thin, chilly, and perfectly clear. This is wonderful! His words were lost as Sephira tilted and rolled completely around. The ground spun in a dizzying circle and vertigo clutched Aragon. Don't do that, he cried. I feel like I'm going to fall off. You must become accustomed to it. If I'm attacked in the air, that's one of the simplest maneuvers I will do, she replied. He could think of no rebuttal, so he concentrated on controlling his stomach. Sephira angled into a shallow dive and slowly approached the ground. Although Aragon's stomach lurched with every wobble, he began to enjoy himself. He relaxed his arms a bit and stretched his neck back, taking in the scenery. Sephira let him enjoy the sights a while, then said, Let me show you what flying is really like. How? he asked. Relax and do not be afraid, she said. Her mind tugged at his, pulling him away from his body. Aragon fought for a moment, then surrendered control. 
His vision blurred, and he found himself looking through Sephira's eyes. Everything was distorted. Colors had weird, exotic tints. Blues were more prominent now, while greens and reds were subdued. Eragon tried to turn his head and body, but could not. He felt like a ghost who had slipped out of the ether. Pure joy radiated from Sephira as she climbed into the sky. She loved this freedom to go anywhere. When they were high above the ground, she looked back at Eragon. He saw himself as she did, hanging onto her with a blank look. He could feel her body strain against the air, using updrafts to rise. All her muscles were like his own. He felt her tail swinging through the air like a giant rudder to correct her course. It surprised him how much she depended on it. Their connection grew stronger until there was no distinction between their identities. They clasped their wings together and dived straight down like a spear thrown from on high. No terror of falling touched Aragon, engulfed as he was in Sephira's exhilaration. The air rushed past their face, their tail whipped in the air, and their joined minds reveled in the experience. Even as they plummeted toward the ground, there was no fear of collision. They snapped open their wings at just the right moment, pulling out of the dive with their combined strength. Slanting toward the sky, they shot up and continued back over into a giant loop. As they leveled out, their minds began to diverge, becoming distinct personalities again. For a split second, Aragon felt both his body and Sephira's. Then his vision blurred and he again sat on her back. He gasped and collapsed on the saddle. It was minutes before his heart stopped hammering and his breathing calmed. Once he had recovered, he exclaimed, That was incredible! How can you bear to land when you enjoy flying so much? I must eat, she said with some amusement. But I'm glad that you took pleasure in it. Those are spare words for such an experience. I'm sorry I haven't flown with you more. I never thought it could be like that. Do you always see so much blue? It is the way I am. We will fly together more often now? Yes, every chance we get. Good, she replied in a contented tone. They exchanged many thoughts as she flew, talking as they had not for weeks. Sephira showed Aragon how she used hills and trees to hide, and how she could conceal herself in the shadow of a cloud. They scouted the trail for Brom, which proved to be more arduous than Aragon expected. They could not see the path unless Sephira flew very close to it, in which case she risked being detected. Near midday, an annoying buzz filled Aragon's ears, and he became aware of a strange pressure on his mind. He shook his head, trying to get rid of it, but the tension only grew stronger. Brom's words about how people could break into others' minds flashed through Aragon's head, and he frantically tried to clear his thoughts. He concentrated on one of Sephira's scales and forced himself to ignore everything else. The pressure faded for a moment, and then returned, greater than ever. A sudden gust rocked Sephira, and Aragon's concentration slipped. Before he could marshal any defences, the force broke through. But instead of the invasive presence of another mind, there were only the words. What do you think you're doing? Get down here. I found something important. Brom? queried Aragon. Yes, the old man said irritably. Now get that oversized lizard of yours to land. I'm here. He sent a picture of his location. Aragon quickly told Sephira where to go, and she banked toward the river below. Meanwhile, he strung his bow and drew several arrows.
If there's trouble, I'll be ready for it. As will I, said Sephira. When they reached Brom, Aragon saw him standing in a clearing, waving his arms. Sephira landed, and Aragon jumped off her and looked for danger. The horses were tied to a tree on the edge of the clearing, but otherwise Brom was alone. Aragon trotted over and asked, What's wrong? Brom scratched his chin and muttered a string of curses. Don't ever block me out like that again. It's hard enough for me to reach you without having to fight to make myself heard. Sorry. He snorted. I was farther down the river when I noticed that the Razak's tracks had ceased. I backtracked until I found where they had disappeared. Look at the ground and tell me what you see. Aragon knelt and examined the dirt and found a confusion of impressions that were difficult to decipher. Numerous Razak footprints overlapped each other. Aragon guessed that the tracks were only a few days old. Superimposed over them were long, thick gouges torn into the ground. They looked familiar, but Aragon could not say why. He stood, shaking his head. I don't have any idea what... Then his eyes fell on Sephira, and he realized what had made the gouges. Every time she took off, her back claws dug into the ground and ripped it in the same manner. This doesn't make any sense, but the only thing I can think of is that the Razak flew off on dragons, or else they got onto giant birds and disappeared into the heavens. Tell me you have a better explanation. Brom shrugged. I've heard reports of the Razak moving from place to place with incredible speed, but this is the first evidence I've had of it. It will be almost impossible to find them if they have flying steeds. They aren't dragons, I know that much. A dragon would never consent to bear a Razak. What do we do? Sephira can't track them through the sky. Even if she could, we would leave you far behind. There's no easy solution to this riddle, said Brom. Let's have lunch while we think on it. Perhaps inspiration will strike us while we eat. Aragon glumly went to his bags for food. They ate in silence, staring at the empty sky. Once again, Aragon thought of home, and wondered what Roran was doing. A vision of the burnt farm appeared before him, and grief threatened to overwhelm him. What will I do if we can't find the Razak? What is my purpose then? I could return to Carvajal. He plucked a twig from the ground and snapped it between two fingers, or just travel with Brom and continue my training. Aragon stared out at the plains, hoping to quiet his thoughts. When Brom finished eating, he stood and threw back his hood. I have considered every trick I know, every word of power within my grasp, and all the skills we have, but I still don't see how we can find the Razak. Aragon slumped against Sephira in despair. Sephira could show herself at some town. That would draw the Razak like flies to honey, but it would be an extremely risky thing to attempt. The Razak would bring soldiers with them, and the king might be interested enough to come himself, which would spell certain death for you and me. So what now? asked Aragon, throwing his hands up. Do you have any ideas, Sephira? No. That's up to you, said Brom. This is your crusade. Aragon ground his teeth angrily and stalked away from Brom and Zephira. Just as he was about to enter the trees, his foot struck something hard. Lying on the ground was a metal flask with a leather strap just long enough to hang off someone's shoulder. A silver insignia Aragon recognized as the Razak symbol was wrought into it. 
Excited, he picked up the flask and unscrewed its cap. A cloying smell filled the air, the same one he had noticed when he found Garrow in the wreckage of their house. He tilted the flask, and a drop of clear, shiny liquid fell on his finger. Instantly, Aragon's finger burned as if it were on fire. He yelped and scrubbed his hand on the ground. After a moment, the pain subsided to a dull throbbing. A patch of skin had been eaten away. Grimacing, he jogged back to Brom. Look what I found! Brom took the flask and examined it, then poured a bit of the liquid into the cap. Aragon started to warn him. Watch out, it'll burn! My skin, I know, said Brom. And I suppose you went ahead and poured it all over your hand, your finger. Well, at least you showed sense enough not to drink it. Only a puddle would have been left of you. What is it? asked Aragon. Oil from the petals of the cether plant, which grows on a small island in the frigid northern seas. In its natural state, the oil is used for preserving pearls. It makes them lustrous and strong. But when specific words are spoken over the oil, along with a blood sacrifice, it gains the property to eat any flesh. That alone wouldn't make it special. There are plenty of acids that can dissolve sinew and bone, except for the fact that it leaves everything else untouched. You can dip anything into the oil and pull it out unharmed, unless it was once part of an animal or human. This has made it a weapon of choice for torture and assassination. It can be stored in wood, slathered on the point of a spear, or dripped onto sheets so that the next person to touch them will be burned. There are myriad uses for it, limited only by your ingenuity. Any injury caused by it is always slow to heal. It's rather rare and expensive, especially this converted form. Aragon remembered the terrible burns that had covered Garrow. That's what they used on him, he realized with horror. I wonder why the Razak left it behind, if it's so valuable. It must have slipped off when they flew away. But why didn't they come back for it? I doubt that the king will be pleased that they lost it. No, he won't, said Brom. But he would be even more displeased if they delayed bringing him news of you. In fact, if the Razak have reached him by now, you can be sure that the king has learned your name. And that means we will have to be much more careful when we go into towns. There will be notices and alerts about you posted throughout the empire. Aragon paused to think. This oil, how rare is it exactly? Like diamonds in a pig trough, said Brom. He amended himself after a second. Actually, the normal oil is used by jewellers, but only those who can afford it. So there are people who trade in it? Perhaps one, maybe two. Good, said Aragon. Now, do the cities along the coast keep shipping records? Brom's eyes brightened. Of course they do. If we could get to those records, they would tell us who brought the oil south and where it went from there. And the record of the Empire's purchase will tell us where the Razak live, concluded Aragon. I don't know how many people can afford this oil, but it shouldn't be hard to figure out which ones aren't working for the Empire. Genius, exclaimed Brom, smiling. I wish I had thought of this years ago. It would have saved me many headaches. The coast is dotted with numerous cities and towns where ships can land. I suppose that Tirm would be the place to start, as it controls most of the trade. Brom paused. The last I heard, my old friend Jode lives there. We haven't seen each other for many years, but he might be willing to help us. And because he's a merchant, it's possible that he has access to those records. How do we get to Tirm? 
We'll have to go southwest until we reach a high pass in the spine. Once on the other side, we can head up the coast to Tiam, said Brom. A gentle wind pulled at his hair. Can we reach the pass within a week? Easily. If we angle away from the Ninor and to our right, we might be able to see the mountains by tomorrow. Aragon went to Sephira and mounted her. I'll see you at dinner then. When they were at a good height, he said, I'm going to ride Caddock tomorrow. Before you protest, know that I am only doing it because I want to talk with Brom. You should ride with him every other day. That way you can still receive your instruction, and I will have time to hunt. You won't be troubled by it? It is necessary. When they landed for the day, he was pleased to discover that his legs did not hurt. The saddle had protected him well from Sephira's scales. Aragon and Brom had their nightly fight, but it lacked energy as both were preoccupied with the day's events. By the time they finished, Aragon's arms burned from Zarok's unaccustomed weight. A Song for the Road The next day, while they were riding, Aragon asked Brom, What is the sea like? You must have heard it described before, said Brom. Yes, but what is it really like? Brom's eyes grew hazy as if he looked upon some hidden scene. The sea is emotion incarnate. It loves, hates, and weeps. It defies all attempts to capture it with words and rejects all shackles. No matter what you say about it, there is always that which you can't. Do you remember what I told you about how the elves came over the sea? Yes. Though they live far from the coast, they retain a great fascination and passion for the ocean. The sound of crashing waves, the smell of salt air, it affects them deeply and has inspired many of their loveliest songs. There is one that tells of this love, if you want to hear it. I would, said Aragon, interested. Brom cleared his throat and said, I will translate it from the ancient language as best I can. It won't be perfect, but perhaps it will give you an idea of how the original sounds. He pulled Snowfire to a stop and closed his eyes. He was silent for a moment then chanted softly, O liquid temptress neat the azure sky, your gilded expanse calls me, calls me. For I would sail ever on, were it not for the elven maid who calls me, calls me. She binds my heart with a lily-white tie, never to be broken save by the sea, ever to be torn twixt the trees and the waves. The words echoed hauntingly in Aragon's head. There is much more to that song, the Dusilbena Datia. I have only recited one of its verses. It tells the sad tale of two lovers, Akalam and Nuwada, who were separated by longing for the sea. The elves find great meaning in the story. It's beautiful, said Aragon simply. The spine was a faint outline on the horizon when they halted that evening. When they arrived at the spine's foothills, they turned and followed the mountains south. Aragon was glad to be near the mountains again. They placed comforting boundaries on the world. Three days later, they came to a wide road rutted by wagon wheels. This is the main road between the capital Urubain and Tirm, said Brom. It's widely used and a favorite route for merchants. We have to be more cautious. This isn't the busiest time of year, but a few people are bound to be using the road. 
Days passed quickly as they continued to trek along the spine, searching for the mountain pass. Aragon could not complain of boredom. When not learning the elven language, he was either learning how to care for Sephira or practicing magic. Aragon also learned how to kill game with magic, which saved them time hunting. He would hold a small rock on his hand and shoot it at his prey. It was impossible to miss. The results of his efforts roasted over the fire each night, and after dinner, Brom and Aragon would spar with swords and occasionally fists. The long days and strenuous work stripped Aragon's body of excess fat. His arms became corded, and his tanned skin rippled with lean muscles. Everything about me is turning hard, he thought dryly. When they finally reached the pass, Aragon saw that a river rushed out of it and cut across the road. This is the Torque, explained Brom. We'll follow it all the way to the sea. How can we? laughed Aragon. If it flows out of the spine in this direction, it won't end up in the ocean unless it doubles back on itself. Brom twisted the ring on his finger, because in the middle of the mountains rests the Wodark Lake. A river flows from each end of it, and both are called the Tork. We see the eastward one now. It runs to the south and winds through the brush until it joins Leona Lake. The other one goes to the sea. After two days in the spine, they came upon a rock ledge from which they could see clearly out of the mountains. Aragon noticed how the land flattened in the distance, and he groaned at the leagues they still had to traverse. Brom pointed. Down there and to the north lies Tirm. It is an old city. Some say it is where the elves first landed in Alagazia. Its citadel has never fallen, nor have its warriors ever been defeated. He spurred Snowfire forward and left the ledge. It took them until noon the next day to descend through the foothills and arrive at the other side of the spine, where the forested land quickly leveled out. Without the mountains to hide behind, Sephira flew close to the ground, using every hollow and dip in the land to conceal herself. Beyond the forest, they noticed a change. The countryside was covered with soft turf and heather that their feet sank into. Moss clung to every stone and branch and lined the streams that laced the ground. Pools of mud pocked the road where horses had trampled the dirt. Before long, both Brom and Aragon were splattered with grime. Why is everything green? asked Aragon. Don't they have winter here? Yes, but the season is mild. Mist and fog roll in from the sea and keep everything alive. Some find it to their liking, but to me it's dreary and depressing. When evening fell, they set up camp in the driest spot they could find. As they ate, Brom commented, "You should continue to ride Caddick until we reach Tirm. It's likely that we'll meet other travellers now that we're out of the spine, and it will be better if you're with me. An old man travelling alone will raise suspicion. With you at my side, no one will ask questions." Besides, I don't want to show up at the city and have someone who saw me on the trail wondering where you suddenly came from. Will we use our own names? Asked Aragon. Brom thought about it. We won't be able to deceive Jode. He already knows my name, and I think I trust him with yours. But to everyone else, I will be Neil, and you will be my nephew, Evan. If our tongues slip and give us away, it probably won't make a difference. But I don't want our names in anyone's heads. People have an annoying habit of remembering things they shouldn't. A taste of Tirm. After two days of travelling north toward the ocean, Sephira sighted Tirm. 
A heavy fog clung to the ground, obscuring Brom's and Aragon's sight, until a breeze from the west blew the mist away. Aragon gaped as Tyrum was suddenly revealed before them, nestled by the edge of the shimmering sea, where proud ships were docked with furled sails. The surf's dull thunder could be heard in the distance. The city was contained behind a white wall, a hundred feet tall and thirty feet thick, with rows of rectangular arrow slits lining it, and a walkway on top for soldiers and watchmen. The wall's smooth surface was broken by two iron portcullises, one facing the western sea, the other opening south to the road. Above the wall, and set against its northeast section, rose a huge citadel built of giant stones and turrets. In the highest tower, a lighthouse lantern gleamed brilliantly. The castle was the only thing visible over the fortifications. Soldiers guarded the southern gate, but held their pikes carelessly. This is our first test, said Brom. Let's hope they haven't received reports of us from the Empire and won't detain us. Whatever happens, don't panic or act suspiciously. Aragon told Zephira, You should land somewhere now and hide. We're going in. Sticking your nose where it doesn't belong? Again? She said sourly. I know, but Brom and I do have some advantages most people don't. We'll be all right. If anything happens, I'm going to pin you to my back and never let you off. I love you too. Then I will bind you all the tighter. Aragon and Brom rode toward the gate, trying to appear casual. A yellow pennant bearing the outline of a roaring lion and an arm holding a lily blossom waved over the entrance. As they neared the wall, Aragon asked in amazement, How big is this place? Larger than any city you have ever seen, said Brom. At the entrance to Tirm, the guards stood straighter and blocked the gates with their pikes. What's your name? asked one of them in a bored tone. I'm called Neil, said Brom in a wheezy voice, slouching to one side, an expression of happy idiocy on his face. And who's the other one? asked the guard. Well, I was getting to that. This would be my nephew, Evan. He's my sister's boy, not it. The guard nodded impatiently. Yeah, yeah. And your business here? He's visiting an old friend, supplied Aragon, dropping his voice into a thick accent. I'm along to make sure he don't get lost, if you get my meaning. He ain't as young as he used to be. Had a bit too much sun when he was younger. Touch of the brain fever, you know. Brom bobbed his head pleasantly. Right, go on through said the guard, waving his hand and dropping the pike. Just make sure he doesn't cause any trouble. Oh, he won't, promised Aragon. He urged Caddock forward, and they rode into Tirm. The cobblestone street clacked under the horse's hooves. Once they were away from the guards, Brom sat up and growled, Touch of brain fever, eh? I couldn't let you have all the fun, teased Aragon. Brom harumphed and looked away. The houses were grim and foreboding. Small, deep windows let in only sparse rays of light. Narrow doors were recessed into the buildings. The tops of the roofs were flat, except for metal railings, and all were covered with slate shingles. Aragon noticed that the houses closest to Tirum's outer wall were no more than one story, but the buildings got progressively higher as they went in. Those next to the citadel were tallest of all, though insignificant compared to the fortress. This place looks ready for war, said Aragon. Brom nodded. 
Tyrm has a history of being attacked by pirates, urgles, and other enemies. It has long been a centre of commerce. There will always be conflict where riches gather in such abundance. The people here have been forced to take extraordinary measures to keep themselves from being overrun. It also helps that Galbatorix gives them soldiers to defend their city. Why are some houses higher than others? Look at the citadel, said Brom, pointing. It has an unobstructed view of Tyrm. If the outer wall were breached, archers would be posted on all the roofs. Because the houses in the front by the outer wall are lower, the men further back could shoot over them without fear of hitting their comrades. Also, if the enemy were to capture those houses and put their own archers on them, it would be an easy matter to shoot them down. I've never seen a city planned like this, said Aragon in wonder. Yes, but it was only done after Tyrn was nearly burned down by a pirate raid, commented Brom. As they continued up the street, people gave them searching looks, but there was not an undue amount of interest. Compared to our reception at Darrett, we've been welcomed with open arms. Perhaps Tyrm has escaped notice by the Urgals, thought Aragon. He changed his opinion when a large man shouldered past them, a sword hanging from his waist. There were other, subtler signs of adverse times. No children played in the streets, people bore hard expressions, and many houses were deserted, with weeds growing from cracks in their stone-covered yards. It looks like they've had trouble, said Aragon. The same as everywhere else, said Brom grimly. We have to find Jode. They led their horses across the street to a tavern and tied them to the hitching post. The green chestnut. Wonderful, muttered Brom, looking at the battered sign above them as he and Aragon entered the building. The dingy room felt unsafe. A fire smouldered in the fireplace, yet no one bothered to throw more wood on it. A few lonely people in the corners nursed their drinks with sullen expressions. A man missing two fingers sat at a far table, eyeing his twitching stumps. The bartender had a cynical twist to his lips and held a glass in his hand that he kept polishing even though it was broken. Brom leaned against the bar and asked, Do you know where we can find a man called Jode? Aragon stood at his side, fiddling with the tip of his bow by his waist. It was slung across his back, but right then he wished that it were in his hands. The bartender said in an overly loud voice, Now why would I know something like that? Do you think I keep track of the mangy louts in this forsaken place? Aragon winced as all eyes turned toward them. Brom kept talking smoothly. Could you be enticed to remember? He slid some coins onto the bar. The man brightened and put his glass down. Could be, he replied, lowering his voice. But my memory takes a great deal of prodding. Brom's face soured but he slid more coins onto the bar. The bartender sucked on one side of his cheek undecidedly. All right, he finally said, and reached for the coins. Before he touched them, the man missing two fingers called out from his table, Gareth, what in the blazes do you think you're doing? Anyone on the street could tell them where Jode lives. What are you charging them for? Brom swept the coins back into his purse. Gareth shot a venomous look at the man at the table then turned his back on them and picked up the glass again. Brom went to the stranger and said, Thanks. The name's Neil. This is Evan. The man raised his mug to them. Martin. And of course you met Gareth. His voice was deep and rough. Martin gestured at some empty chairs. Go ahead and sit down. I don't mind. 
Aragon took a chair and arranged it so his back was to the wall and he faced the door. Martin raised an eyebrow, but made no comment. You just saved me a few crowns, said Brom. My pleasure. Can't blame Gareth, though. Business hasn't been doing so well lately. Martin scratched his chin. Jode lives on the west side of town, right next to Angela, the herbalist. Do you have business with him? Of a sort, said Brom. Well, he won't be interested in buying anything. He just lost another ship a few days ago. Brom latched onto the news with interest. What happened? It wasn't Urgles, was it? No, said Martin. They've left the area. No one's seen them in almost a year. It seems they've all gone south and east. But they aren't the problem. See, most of our business is through sea trade, as I'm sure you know. Well, he stopped to drink from his mug. Starting several months ago, someone's been attacking our ships. It's not the usual piracy, because only ships that carry the goods of certain merchants are attacked. Jode's one of them. It's gotten so bad that no captain will accept those merchants' goods, which makes life difficult around here, especially because some of them run the largest shipping businesses in the Empire. They're being forced to send goods by land. It's driven costs painfully high, and their caravans don't always make it. Do you have any idea who's responsible? There must be witnesses, said Brom. Martin shook his head. No one survives the attacks. Ships go out, then disappear. They're never seen again. He leaned toward them and said in a confidential tone, The sailors are saying that it's magic. He nodded and winked an eye, then leaned back. Brom seemed worried by his words. What do you think? Martin shrugged carelessly. I don't know. And I don't think I will unless I'm unfortunate enough to be on one of those captured ships. Are you a sailor? asked Aragon. No, snorted Martin. Do I look like one? The captains hire me to defend their ships against pirates, and those thieving scum haven't been very active lately. Still, it's a good job. But a dangerous one, said Brom. Martin shrugged again and downed the last of his beer. Brom and Aragon took their leave and headed to the west side of the city, a nicer section of Tirm. The houses were clean, ornate and large. The people in the streets wore expensive finery and walked with authority. Aragon felt conspicuous and out of place. An Old Friend The herbalist's shop had a cheery sign and was easy to find. A short, curly-haired woman sat by the door. She was holding a frog in one hand and writing with the other. Aragon assumed that she was Angela, the herbalist. On either side of the store was a house. Which one do you think is his? he asked. Brom deliberated, then said, Let's find out. He approached the woman and asked politely, Could you tell us which house Jode lives in? I could, she continued writing. Will you tell us? Yes. She fell silent, but her pen scribbled faster than ever. The frog in her hand croaked and looked at them with baleful eyes. Brom and Aragon waited uncomfortably, but she said no more. Aragon was about to blurt something out when Angela looked up. Of course, I'll tell you. All you have to do is ask. 
Your first question was whether or not I could tell you, and the second was if I would tell you. But you never actually put the question to me. Then let me ask properly, said Brom with a smile. Which house is Jode's, and why are you holding a frog? Now we're getting somewhere, she bantered. Jode is on the right, and as for the frog, he's actually a toad. I'm trying to prove that toads don't exist, that there are only frogs. How can toads not exist if you have one in your hand right now? interrupted Aragon. Besides, what good will it do proving that there are only frogs? The woman shook her head vigorously, dark curls bouncing. No, no, you don't understand. If I prove toads don't exist, then this is a frog and never was a toad. Therefore, the toad you see now doesn't exist. And, she raised a small finger, if I can prove there are only frogs, then toads won't be able to do anything bad, like make teeth fall out, cause warts and poison or kill people. Also, witches won't be able to use any of their evil spells, because, of course, there won't be any toads around. I see, said Brom delicately. It sounds interesting, and I would like to hear more, but we have to meet Jode. Of course, she said, waving her hand and returning to her writing. Once they were out of the herbalist's hearing, Aragon said, She's crazy. It's possible, said Brom, but you never know. She might discover something useful, so don't criticize. Who knows, toads might really be frogs. And my shoes are made of gold, retorted Aragon. They stopped before a door with a wrought iron knocker and marble doorstep. Brom banged three times. No one answered. Aragon felt slightly foolish. Maybe this is the wrong house. Let's try the other one, he said. Brom ignored him and knocked again, pounding loudly. Again, no one answered. Aragon turned away in exasperation, then heard someone run to the door. A young woman with a pale complexion and light blonde hair cracked it open. Her eyes were puffy, it looked like she'd been crying, but her voice was perfectly steady. Yes, what do you want? Does Jode live here? asked Brom kindly. The woman dipped her head a little. Yes, he is my husband. Is he expecting you? She opened the door no further. No. But we need to talk with him, said Brom. He is very busy. We have travelled far. It's very important that we see him. Her face hardened. He is busy. Brom bristled, but his voice stayed pleasant. Since he is unavailable, would you please give him a message? Her mouth twitched, but she consented. Tell him that a friend from Gilead is waiting outside. The woman seemed suspicious, but said, Very well. She closed the door abruptly. Aragon heard her footsteps recede. That wasn't very polite, he commented. Keep your opinions to yourself, snapped Brom, and don't say anything. Let me do the talking. He crossed his arms and tapped his fingers. Aragon clamped his mouth shut and looked away. The door suddenly flew open and a tall man burst out of the house. His expensive clothes were rumpled, his grey hair wispy, and he had a mournful face with short eyebrows, a long scar stretched across his scalp to his temple. At the sight of them, his eyes grew wide, and he sagged against the doorframe, speechless. His mouth opened and closed several times like a gasping fish. He asked softly, in an incredulous voice, Brom? Brom put a finger to his lips and reached forward, clasping the man's arm. 
It's good to see you, Jode. I'm glad that memory has not failed you, but don't use that name. It would be unfortunate if anyone knew I was here. Jode looked around wildly, shock plain on his face. I thought you were dead, he whispered. What happened? Why haven't you contacted me before? All things will be explained. Do you have a place where we can talk safely? Jode hesitated, swinging his gaze between Aragon and Brom, face unreadable. Finally, he said, We can't talk here, but if you wait a moment, I'll take you somewhere we can. Fine, said Brom. Jode nodded and vanished behind the door. I hope I can learn something of Brom's past, thought Aragon. There was a rapier at Jode's side when he reappeared. An embroidered jacket hung loosely on his shoulders, matched by a plumed hat. Brom cast a critical eye at the finery, and Jode shrugged self-consciously. He took them through Tirm, toward the citadel. Aragon led the horses behind the two men. Jode gestured at their destination. Ristart, the lord of Tirm, has decreed that all the business owners must have their headquarters in his castle. Even though most of us conduct our business elsewhere, we still have to rent rooms there. It's nonsense, but we abide by it anyway to keep him calm. We'll be free of eavesdroppers in there. The walls are thick. They went through the fortress's main gate and into the keep. Jode strode to a side door and pointed to an iron ring. You can tie the horses there. No one will bother them. When Snowfire and Caddock were safely tethered, he opened the door with an iron key and let them inside. Within was a long, empty hallway lit by torches set into the walls. Aragon was surprised by how cold and damp it was. When he touched the wall, his fingers slid over a layer of slime. He shivered. Jode snatched a torch from its bracket and led them down the hall. They stopped before a heavy wooden door. He unlocked it and ushered them into a room dominated by a bearskin rug laden with stuffed chairs. Bookshelves stacked with leather-bound tomes covered the walls. Jode piled wood in the fireplace, then thrust the torch under it. The fire quickly roared. You, old man, have some explaining to do. Brom's face crinkled with a smile. Who are you calling an old man? The last time I saw you, there was no grey in your hair. Now it looks like it's in the final stages of decomposition. And you look the same as you did nearly twenty years ago. Time seems to have preserved you as a crotchety old man just to inflict wisdom upon each new generation. Enough of this. Get on with the story. That's always what you were good at, said Jode impatiently. Aragon's ears pricked up, and he waited eagerly to hear what Brom would say. Brom relaxed into a chair and pulled out his pipe. He slowly blew a smoke ring that turned green, darted into the fireplace, then flew up the chimney. Do you remember what we were doing in Gilead? Yes, of course, said Jode. That sort of thing is hard to forget. An understatement, but true, nevertheless, said Brom dryly. When we were separated, I couldn't find you. In the midst of the turmoil, I stumbled into a small room. There wasn't anything extraordinary in it, just crates and boxes, but out of curiosity I rummaged around anyway. Fortune smiled on me that hour, for I found what we had been searching for. An expression of shock ran over Jode's face. Once it was in my hands, I couldn't wait for you. At any second I might have been discovered and all lost. Disguising myself as best I could, I fled the city and ran to the— Brom hesitated and glanced at Aragon, then said— ran to our friends. They stored it in a vault for safekeeping and made me promise to care for whomever received it. 
Until the day when my skills would be needed, I had to disappear. No one could know that I was alive, not even you, though it grieved me to pain you unnecessarily. So I went north and hid in Carvajal. Aragon clenched his jaw, infuriated that Brom was deliberately keeping him in the dark. Jode frowned and asked, Then our friends knew that you were alive all along? Yes. He sighed. I suppose the ruse was unavoidable, though I wish they had told me. Isn't Carvajal farther north, on the other side of the spine? Brom inclined his head. For the first time, Jode inspected Aragon. His grey eyes took in every detail. He raised his eyebrows and said, I assume, then, that you are fulfilling your duty. Brom shook his head. No, it's not that simple. It was stolen a while ago. At least that's what I presume, for I haven't received word from our friends, and I suspect their messengers were waylaid. So I decided to find out what I could. Aragon happened to be travelling in the same direction. We have stayed together for a time now. Jode looked puzzled. But if they haven't sent any messages, how could you know that it was— Brom overrode him quickly, saying, Aragon's uncle was brutally killed by the Razak. They burned his home and nearly caught him in the process. He deserves revenge. But they have left us without a trail to follow, and we need help finding them. Jode's face cleared. I see, but why have you come here? I don't know where the Razak might be hiding, and anyone who does won't tell you. Standing, Brom reached into his robe and pulled out the Razak's flask. He tossed it to Jode. There's cether oil in there, the dangerous kind. The Razak were carrying it. They lost it by the trail, and we happened to find it. We need to see Tirm's shipping records so we can trace the Empire's purchases of the oil. That should tell us where the Razak's lair is. Lines appeared on Jode's face as he thought. He pointed at the books on the shelves. Do you see those? They are all records from my business. One business. You have gotten yourself into a project that could take months. There is another greater problem. The records you seek are held in this castle, but only Brand, Ristart's administrator of trade, sees them on a regular basis. Traders such as myself aren't allowed to handle them. They fear that we will falsify the results, thus cheating the Empire of its precious taxes. I can deal with that when the time comes, said Brom, but we need a few days of rest before we can think about proceeding. Jode smiled. It seems that it is my turn to help you. My house is yours, of course. Do you have another name while you are here? Yes, said Brom. I'm Neil, and the boy is Evan. Aragon, said Jode thoughtfully. You have a unique name. Few have ever been named after the first rider. In my life I've read about only three people who were called such. Aragon was startled that Jode knew the origin of his name. Brom looked at Aragon. Could you go check on the horses and make sure they're all right? I don't think I tied Snowfire to the ring tightly enough. They're trying to hide something from me. The moment I leave, they're going to talk about it. Aragon shoved himself out of the chair and left the room, slamming the door shut. Snowfire had not moved. The knot that held him was fine. Scratching the horses' necks, Aragon leaned sullenly against the castle wall. It's not fair, he complained to himself. If only I could hear what they are saying. He jolted upright, electrified. Brom had once taught him some words that would enhance his hearing. Keen ears aren't exactly what I want, but I should be able to make the words work. After all, look what I could do with Brissinger. 
he concentrated intensely and reached for his power. Once it was within his grasp, he said, Thver stener un atra eka hörna, and imbued the words with his will. As the power rushed out of him, he heard a faint whisper in his ears, but nothing more. Disappointed, he sank back, then started as Jode said, And I've been doing that for almost eight years now. Eragon looked around. No one was there except for a few guards standing against the far wall of the keep. Grinning, he sat on the courtyard and closed his eyes. I never expected you to become a merchant, said Brom, after all the time you spent in books, and finding the passageway in that manner. What made you take up trading instead of remaining a scholar? After Gilead, I didn't have much taste for sitting in musty rooms and reading scrolls. I decided to help Arjihad as best I could, but I'm no warrior. My father was a merchant as well, you may remember that. He helped me get started. However, the bulk of my business is nothing more than a front to get goods into Serda. But I take it that things have been going badly, said Brom. Yes, none of the shipments have gotten through lately, and Trunchim is running low on supplies. Somehow the Empire, at least I think it's them, has discovered those of us who have been lending support to Trunchim. But I'm still not convinced that it's the Empire. No one sees any soldiers. I don't understand it. Perhaps Galbatorix hired mercenaries to harass us. I heard that you lost a ship recently. The last one I owned, answered Jode bitterly. Every man on it was loyal and brave. I doubt I'll ever see them again. The only option I have left is to send caravans to Serda or Gilead, which I know won't get there, no matter how many guards I hire, or charter someone else's ship to carry the goods. But no one will take them now. How many merchants have been helping you? asked Brom. Oh, a good number up and down the seaboard. All of them have been plagued by the same troubles. I know what you are thinking. I pondered it many a night myself, but I cannot bear the thought of a traitor with that much knowledge and power. If there is one, we're all in jeopardy. You should return to Trunjim. And take Eragon there? interrupted Brom. They'd tear him apart. It's the worst place he could be right now. Maybe in a few months, or even better, a year. Can you imagine how the dwarfs will react? Everyone will be trying to influence him, especially Islanzadi. He and Sephira won't be safe in Trunjim until I at least get them through to Arthur du Orothrim. Dwarfs, thought Aragon excitedly. Where is this Trunjim? And why did he tell Jode about Sephira? He shouldn't have done that without asking me. Still, I have a feeling that they are in need of your power and wisdom. Wisdom, snorted Brom. I'm just what you said earlier, a crotchety old man. Many would disagree. Let them. I've no need to explain myself. No, Arjahad will have to get along without me. What I'm doing now is much more important. But the prospect of a traitor raises troubling questions. I wonder if that's how the Empire knew where to be. His voice trailed off. And I wonder why I haven't been contacted about this, said Jode. Maybe they tried. But if there's a traitor... Brom paused. I have to send word to Ajahad. Do you have a messenger you can trust? I think so, said Jode. It depends on where he would have to go. I don't know, said Brom. I've been isolated so long my contacts have probably died or forgotten me. Could you send him to whoever receives your shipments? Yes, but it'll be risky. What isn't these days? How soon can he leave? He can go in the morning. I'll send him to Gilead. It will be faster said Jode.
What can he take to convince Ajahad the message comes from you? Here, give your man my ring, and tell him that if he loses it, I'll personally tear his liver out. It was given to me by the queen. Aren't you cheery? commented Jode. Brom grunted. After a long silence, he said, We'd better go out and join Aragon. I get worried when he's alone. That boy has an unnatural propensity for being wherever there's trouble. Are you surprised? Not really. Aragon heard chairs being pushed back. He quickly pulled his mind away and opened his eyes. What's going on? he muttered to himself. Jode and other traders are in trouble for helping people the Empire doesn't favor. Brom found something in Gilead and went to Carvajal to hide. What could be so important that he would let his own friend think he was dead for nearly twenty years? He mentioned a queen. When there aren't any queens in the known kingdoms, and dwarves who, as he himself told me, disappeared underground long ago. He wanted answers, but he would not confront Brom now and risk jeopardizing their mission. No, he would wait until they left Tirm, and then he would persist until the old man explained his secrets. Aragon's thoughts were still whirling when the door opened. Were the horses all right? asked Brom. Fine, said Aragon. They untied the horses and left the castle. As they re-entered the main body of Tirm, Brom said, So, Jode, you finally got married, and, he winked slyly, to a lovely young woman. Congratulations. Jode did not seem happy with the compliment. He hunched his shoulders and stared down at the street. Whether congratulations are in order is debatable right now. Helen isn't very happy. Why, what does she want? asked Brom. The usual said Jode, with a resigned shrug. A good home, happy children, food on the table, and pleasant company. The problem is that she comes from a wealthy family. Her father has invested heavily in my business. If I keep suffering these losses, there won't be enough money for her to live the way she's used to. Jode continued, But please, my troubles are not your troubles. The host should never bother his guests with his own concerns. While you are in my house, I will let nothing more than an overfull stomach disturb you. Thank you, said Brom. We appreciate the hospitality. Our travels have long been without comforts of any kind. Do you happen to know where we could find an inexpensive shop? All this riding has worn out our clothes. Of course, that's my job, said Jode, lightening up. He talked eagerly about prices and stores until his house was in sight. Then he asked, Would you mind if we went somewhere else to eat? It might be awkward if you came in right now. Whatever makes you feel comfortable, said Brom. Jode looked relieved. Thanks. Let's leave your horses in my stable. They did as he suggested, then followed him to a large tavern. Unlike the green chestnut, this one was loud, clean, and full of boisterous people. When the main course arrived, a stuffed suckling pig, Aragon eagerly dug into the meat, but he especially savoured the potatoes, carrots, turnips, and sweet apples that accompanied it. It had been a long time since he had eaten much more than wild game. They lingered over the meal for hours as Brom and Jode swapped stories. Aragon did not mind. He was warm, a lively tune jangled in the background, and there was more than enough food. The spirited tavern babble fell pleasantly on his ears. When they finally exited the tavern, the sun was nearing the horizon. You two go ahead. I have to check on something, Aragon said. He wanted to see Sephira and make sure that she was safely hidden. Brom agreed absently. Be careful. Don't take too long.
Wait, said Jode. Are you going outside of Tiam? Aragon hesitated, then reluctantly nodded. Make sure you're inside the walls before dark. The gates close then, and the guards won't let you back in until morning. I won't be late, promised Aragon. He turned around and loped down a side street towards Tiam's outer wall. Once out of the city, he breathed deeply, enjoying the fresh air. Safira, he called. Where are you? She guided him off the road to the base of a mossy cliff surrounded by maples. He saw her head poke out of the trees on the top and waved. How am I supposed to get up there? If you find a clearing, I'll come down and get you. No, he said, eyeing the cliff. That won't be necessary. I'll just climb up. It's too dangerous. And you worry too much. Let me have some fun. Aragon pulled off his gloves and started climbing. He relished the physical challenge. There were plenty of handholds, so the ascent was easy. He was soon high above the trees. Halfway up, he stopped on a ledge to catch his breath. Once his strength returned, he stretched up for the next handhold, but his arm was not long enough. Stymied, he searched for another crevice or ridge to grasp. There was none. He tried backing down, but his legs could not reach his last foothold. Safira watched with unblinking eyes. He gave up and said, I could use some help. This is your own fault. Yes, I know. Are you going to get me down or not? If I weren't around, you would be in a very bad situation. Aragon rolled his eyes. You don't have to tell me. You're right. After all, how can a mere dragon expect to tell a man like yourself what to do? In fact, everyone should stand in awe of your brilliance of finding the only dead end. Why, if you had started a few feet in either direction, the path to the top would have been clear. She cocked her head at him, eyes bright. All right, I made a mistake. Now can you please get me out of here? He pleaded. She pulled her head back from the edge of the cliff. After a moment, he called, Safira? Above him were only swaying trees. Safira, come back, he roared. With a loud crash, Safira barreled off the top of the cliff, flipping around in mid-air. She floated down to Eragon like a huge bat and grabbed his shirt with her claws, scratching his back. He let go of the rocks as she yanked him up in the air. After a brief flight, she set him down gently on the top of the cliff and tugged her claws out of his shirt. Foolishness, said Safira gently. Eragon looked away, studying the landscape. The cliff provided a wonderful view of their surroundings, especially the foaming sea, as well as protection against unwelcome eyes. Only birds would see Safira here. It was an ideal location. Is Brom's friend trustworthy? she asked. I don't know. Eragon proceeded to recount the day's events. There are forces circling us that we aren't aware of. Sometimes I wonder if we can ever understand the true motives of the people around us. They all seem to have secrets. It is the way of the world. Ignore all the schemes and trust in the nature of each person. Brom is good. He means us no harm. We don't have to fear his plans. I hope so, he said, looking down at his hands. This finding of the Razak through writing is a strange way of tracking, she remarked. 
Would there be a way to use magic to see the records without being inside the room? I'm not sure. You would have to combine the word for seeing with distance, or maybe light and distance. Either way, it seems rather difficult. I'll ask Brom. That would be wise. They lapsed into tranquil silence. You know, we may have to stay here a while. Sephira's answer held a hard edge. And as always, I will be left to wait outside. That is not how I want it. Soon enough, we will travel together again. May that day come quickly. Aragon smiled and hugged her. He noticed then how rapidly the light was fading. I have to go now, before I'm locked out of Tirm. Hunt tomorrow, and I will see you in the evening. She spread her wings. Come, I will take you down. He got onto her scaly back and held on tightly as she launched off the cliff, glided over the trees, then landed on a knoll. Eragon thanked her and ran back to Tirm. He came into sight of the portcullis just as it was beginning to lower. Calling for them to wait, he put on a burst of speed and slipped inside seconds before the gateway slammed closed. You cut that a little close, observed one of the guards. It won't happen again, assured Aragon, bending over to catch his breath. He wound his way through the darkened city to Jode's house. A lantern hung outside like a beacon. A plump butler answered his knock and ushered him inside without a word. Tapestries covered the stone walls. Elaborate rugs dotted the polished wood floor, which glowed with the light from three golden candelabra hanging from the ceiling. Smoke drifted through the air and collected above. This way, sir. Your friend is in the study. They passed scores of doorways, until the butler opened one to reveal a study. Books covered the room's walls, but unlike those in Jode's office, these came in every size and shape. A fireplace filled with blazing logs warmed the room. Brom and Jode stood before an oval writing desk, talking amiably. Brom raised his pipe and said in a jovial voice, Ah, here you are. We were getting worried about you. How was your walk? I wonder what put him in such a good mood. Why doesn't he just come out and ask how Sephira is? Pleasant, but the guards almost locked me outside the city. And Tirm is big. I had trouble finding this house. Jode chuckled. When you have seen Dras Leona, Gilead, or even Kuasta, you won't be so easily impressed by this small ocean city. I like it here, though. When it's not raining, Tirm is really quite beautiful. Aragon turned to Brom. Do you have any idea how long we'll be here? Brom spread his palms upward. That's hard to tell. It depends on whether we can get to the records and how long it will take us to find what we need. We'll have to have help. It will be a huge job. I'll talk with Brand tomorrow and see if he'll let us examine the records. I don't think I'll be able to help, Aragon said, shifting uneasily. Why not? said Brom. There will be plenty of work for you. Aragon lowered his head. I can't read. Brom straightened with disbelief. You mean Garrow never taught you? He knew how to read? asked Aragon, puzzled. Jode watched them with interest. Of course he did, snorted Brom. The proud fool. What was he thinking? I should have realized that he wouldn't have taught you. He probably considered it an unnecessary luxury. Brom scowled and pulled at his beard angrily. This sets my plans back, but not irreparably. I'll just have to teach you how to read. 
It won't take long if you put your mind to it. Aragon winced. Brom's lessons were usually intense and brutally direct. How much more can I learn at one time? I suppose it's necessary, he said ruefully. You'll enjoy it. There is much you can learn from books and scrolls, said Jode. He gestured at the walls. These books are my friends, my companions. They make me laugh and cry and find meaning in life. It sounds intriguing, admitted Aragon. Always the scholar, aren't you? asked Brom. Jode shrugged. Not any more. I'm afraid I've degenerated into a bibliophile. A what? asked Aragon. One who loves books, explained Jode, and resumed conversing with Brom. Bored, Aragon scanned the shelves. An elegant book set with gold studs caught his attention. He pulled it off the shelf and stared at it curiously. It was bound in black leather, carved with mysterious runes. Aragon ran his fingers over the cover and savoured its cool smoothness. The letters inside were printed with a reddish glossy ink. He let the pages slip past his fingers. A column of script set off from the regular lettering caught his eye. The words were long and flowing, full of graceful lines and sharp points. Aragon took the book to Brom. What is this? he asked, pointing to the strange writing. Brom looked at the page closely and raised his eyebrow in surprise. Jode, you've expanded your collection. Where did you get this? I haven't seen one in ages. Jode strained his neck to see the book. Ah, yes, the Domia Abawirda. A man came through here a few years ago and tried to sell it to a trader down by the wharves. Fortunately, I happened to be there and was able to save the book along with his neck. He didn't have a clue what it was. It's odd, Aragon, that you should pick up this book. The dominance of fate, said Brom. Of all the items in this house, it's probably worth the most. It details a complete history of Alagasia, starting long before the elves landed here and ending a few decades ago. The book is very rare and is the best of its kind. When it was written, the Empire decried it as blasphemy and burned the author, Heslant the monk. I didn't think any copies still existed. The lettering you asked about is from the ancient language. What does it say? asked Aragon. It took Brom a moment to read the writing. It's part of an elven poem that tells of the years they fought the dragons. This excerpt describes one of their kings, Serenthor, as he rides into battle. The elves love this poem and tell it regularly, though you need three days to do it properly, so that they won't repeat the mistakes of the past. At times they sing it so beautifully it seems the very rocks will cry. Aragon returned to his chair, holding the book gently. It's amazing that a man who is dead can talk to people through these pages. As long as this book survives, his ideas live. I wonder if it contains any information about the Razak. He browsed through the book while Brom and Jode spoke. Hours passed, and Aragon began to drowse. Out of pity for his exhaustion, Jode bid them good night. The butler will show you to your rooms. On the way upstairs, the servant said, If you need assistance, use the bell pull next to the bed. He stopped before a cluster of three doors, bowed, then backed away. As Brom entered the room on the right, Aragon asked, Can I talk to you? You just did, but come in anyway. Aragon closed the door behind himself. Sephira and I had an idea. Is there... Brom stopped him with a raised hand and pulled the curtains shut over the window. 
When you talk of such things, you would do well to make sure that no unwelcome ears are present. Sorry, said Aragon, berating himself for the slip. Anyway, is it possible to conjure up an image of something that you can't see? Brom sat on the edge of his bed. What you are talking about is called scrying. It is quite possible and extremely helpful in some situations, but it has a major drawback. You can only observe people, places, and things that you've already seen. If you were to scry the Razak, you'd see them all right, but not their surroundings. There are other problems as well. Let's say that you wanted to view a page in a book, one that you'd already seen. You could only see the page if the book were open to it. If the book were closed when you tried this, the page would appear completely black. Why can't you view objects that you haven't seen? asked Aragon. Even with those limitations, he realized scrying could be very useful. I wonder if I could view something leagues away and use magic to affect what was happening there. Because, said Brom patiently, to scry, you have to know what you're looking at and where to direct your power. Even if a stranger was described to you, it would still be nigh impossible to view him, not to mention the ground and whatever else might be around him. You have to know what you're going to scry before you can scry it. Does that answer your question? Aragon thought for a moment. But how is it done? Do you conjure up the image in thin air? Not usually, said Brom, shaking his white head. That takes more energy than projecting it onto a reflective surface like a pool of water or a mirror. Some riders used to travel everywhere they could, trying to see as much as possible. Then, whenever war or some other calamity occurred, they would be able to view events throughout Alagasia. May I try it? asked Aragon. Brom looked at him carefully. No, not now. You're tired, and scrying takes lots of strength. I will tell you the words, but you must promise not to attempt it tonight, and I'd rather you wait until we leave Tirm. I have more to teach you. Aragon smiled. I promise. Very well. Brom bent over and very quietly whispered, Dramor Cooper, into Aragon's ear. Aragon took a moment to memorize the words. Maybe after we've left Tirm I can scry Roran. I would like to know how he's doing. I'm afraid that the Razak might go after him. I don't mean to frighten you, but that's a distinct possibility, said Brom. Although Roran was gone most of the time the Razak were in Carvajal, I'm sure that they asked questions about him. Who knows, they may even have met him while they were in Therensford. Either way, I doubt their curiosity is sated. You're on the loose, after all, and the king is probably threatening them with terrible punishment if you aren't found. If they get frustrated enough, they'll go back and interrogate Roran. It's only a matter of time. If that's true, then the only way to keep Roran safe is to let the Razak know where I am, so that they'll come after me instead of him. No, that won't work either. You're not thinking, admonished Brom. If you can't understand your enemies, how can you expect to anticipate them? Even if you exposed your location, the Razak would still chase Roran. Do you know why? Aragon straightened and tried to consider every possibility. Well, if I stay in hiding long enough, they might get frustrated and capture Roran to force me to reveal myself. If that didn't work, they'd kill him just to hurt me. Also, if I become a public enemy of the Empire, they might use him as bait to catch me. And if I met with Roran and they found out about it, they would torture him to find out where I was. Very good. You figured that out quite nicely, said Brom. 
But what's the solution? I can't let him be killed. Brom clasped his hands loosely. The solution is quite obvious. Rawlin is going to have to learn how to defend himself. That may sound hard-hearted, but as you pointed out, you cannot risk meeting with him. You may not remember this. You were half delirious at the time, but when we left Carver Hall, I told you that I had left a warning letter for Roran, so he won't be totally unprepared for danger. If he has any sense at all, when the Razak show up in Carver Hall again, he'll take my advice and flee. I don't like this, said Aragon unhappily. Ah, but you forget something. What? he demanded. There is some good in all of this. The king cannot afford to have a rider roaming around that he does not control. Galbatorix is the only known rider alive beside yourself, but he would like another one under his command. Before he tries to kill you or Roran, he will offer you the chance to serve him. Unfortunately, if he ever gets close enough to make that proposition, it will be far too late for you to refuse and still live. You call that some good? It's all that's protecting Roran. As long as the king doesn't know which side you've chosen, he won't risk alienating you by harming your cousin. Keep that firmly in mind. The Razak killed Garrow, but I think it was an ill-considered decision on their part. From what I know of Galbatorix, he would not have approved it unless he gained something from it. And how will I be able to deny the king's wishes when he is threatening me with death? asked Aragon sharply. Brom sighed. He went to his nightstand and dipped his fingers in a basin of rosewater. Galbatorix wants your willing cooperation. Without that, you're worse than useless to him. So the question becomes, if you are ever faced with this choice, are you willing to die for what you believe in? For that is the only way you will deny him. The question hung in the air. Brom finally said, It's a difficult question and not one you can answer until you're faced with it. Keep in mind that many people have died for their beliefs. It's actually quite common. The real courage is in living and suffering for what you believe. The Witch and the Weircat It was late in the morning when Aragon awoke. He dressed, washed his face in the basin, and then held the mirror up and brushed his hair into place. Something about his reflection made him stop and look closer. His face had changed since he had run out of Carver Hall just a short while ago. Any baby fat was gone now, stripped away by travelling, sparring and training. His cheekbones were more prominent, and the line of his jaw was sharper. There was a slight cast to his eyes that when he looked closely gave his face a wild, alien appearance. He held the mirror at arm's length and his face resumed its normal semblance, but it still did not seem quite his own. A little disturbed, he slung his bow and quiver across his back, then left the room. Before he had reached the end of the hall, the butler caught up with him and said, Sir, Neil left with my master for the castle earlier. He said that you could do whatever you want today because he will not return until this evening. Aragon thanked him for the message, then eagerly began exploring Tirm. For hours he wandered the streets, entering every shop that struck his fancy and chatting with various people. Eventually he was forced back to Jodes by his empty stomach and lack of money. When he reached the street where the merchant lived, he stopped at the herbalist's shop next door. It was an unusual place for a store. The other shops were down by the city wall, not crammed between expensive houses. 
He tried to look in the windows, but they were covered with a thick layer of crawling plants on the interior. Curious, he went inside. At first he saw nothing, because the store was so dark, but then his eyes adjusted to the faint greenish light that filtered through the windows. A colourful bird with wide tail feathers and a sharp, powerful beak looked at Aragon inquisitively from a cage near the window. The walls were covered with plants. Vines clung to the ceiling, obscuring all but an old chandelier, and on the floor was a large pot with a yellow flower. A collection of mortars, pestles, metal bowls, and a clear crystal ball the size of Aragon's head rested on a long counter. He walked to the counter, carefully stepping around the complex machines, crates of rocks, piles of scrolls, and other objects he did not recognize. The wall behind the counter was covered with drawers of every size. Some of them were no larger than his smallest finger, while others were big enough for a barrel. There was a foot-wide gap in the shelves far above. A pair of red eyes suddenly flashed from the dark space, and a large, fierce cat leapt onto the counter. It had a lean body with powerful shoulders and oversized paws. A shaggy mane surrounded its angular face. Its ears were tipped with black tufts. White fangs curved down over its jaw. Altogether, it did not look like any cat Aragon had ever seen. It inspected him with shrewd eyes, then flicked its tail dismissively. On a whim, Aragon reached out with his mind and touched the cat's consciousness. Gently, he prodded it with his thoughts, trying to make it understand that he was a friend. You don't have to do that. Aragon looked around in alarm. The cat ignored him and licked a paw. Safira, where are you? he asked. No one answered. Puzzled, he leaned against the counter and reached for what looked like a wood rod. That wouldn't be wise. Stop playing games, Safira, he snapped, then picked up the rod. A shock of electricity exploded through his body and he fell to the floor, writhing. The pain slowly faded, leaving him gasping for air. The cat jumped down and looked at him. You aren't very smart for a dragon rider. I did warn you. You said that, exclaimed Aragon. The cat yawned, then stretched and sauntered across the floor, weaving its way between objects. Who else? But you're just a cat, he objected. The cat yowled and stalked back to him. It jumped on his chest and crouched there, looking down at him with gleaming eyes. Aragon tried to sit up, but it growled, showing its fangs. Do I look like other cats? No. Then what makes you think I am one? Aragon started to say something, but the creature dug its claws into his chest. Obviously your education has been neglected. I, to correct your mistake, am a weir-cat. There aren't many of us left, but I think even a farm boy should have heard of us. I didn't know you were real, said Aragon, fascinated. A weir-cat! He was indeed fortunate. They were always flitting around the edges of stories, keeping to themselves and occasionally giving advice. If the legends were true, they had magical powers, lived longer than humans, and usually knew more than they told. The weir-cat blinked lazily. Knowing is independent of being. I did not know you existed before you bumbled in here and ruined my nap. Yet that doesn't mean you weren't real before you woke me. Aragon was lost by its reasoning. I'm sorry I disturbed you.
I was getting up anyway, it said. It leapt back onto the counter and licked its paw. If I were you, I wouldn't hold on to that rod much longer. It's going to shock you again in a few seconds. He hastily put the rod back where he had found it. What is it? A common and boring artifact, unlike myself. But what's it for? Didn't you find out? The weircat finished cleaning its paw, stretched once more, then jumped back up to its sleeping place. It sat down, tucked its paws under its breast, and closed its eyes, purring. Wait, said Aragon. What's your name? One of the weircat's slanted eyes cracked open. I go by many names. If you are looking for my proper one, you will have to seek elsewhere. The eye closed. Aragon gave up and turned to leave. However, you may call me Solembum. Thank you, said Aragon seriously. Solembum's purring grew louder. The door to the shop swung open, letting in a beam of sunlight. Angela entered with a cloth bag full of plants. Her eyes flickered at Solembum, and she looked startled. He says you talked with him. You can talk with him too? asked Aragon. She tossed her head. Of course, but that doesn't mean he'll say anything back. She set her plants on the counter, then walked behind it and faced him. He likes you. That's unusual. Most of the time, Solembum doesn't show himself to customers. In fact, he says that you show some promise, given a few years of work. Thanks. It's a compliment coming from him. You're only the third person to come in here who has been able to speak with him. The first was a woman many years ago, the second was a blind beggar, and now you. But I don't run a store just so I can prattle on. Is there anything you want, or did you only come in to look? Just to look, said Aragon, still thinking about the weircat. Besides, I don't really need any herbs. That's not all I do, said Angela with a grin. The rich fool lords pay me for love potions and the like. I never claim that they work, but for some reason they keep coming back. But I don't think you need those chicaneries. Would you like your fortune told? I do that too, for all the rich fool ladies. Aragon laughed. No, I'm afraid my fortune is pretty much unreadable, and I don't have any money. Angela looked at Solembum curiously. I think, she gestured at the crystal ball resting on the counter, that's only for show anyway. It doesn't do anything. But I do have. Wait here. I'll be right back. She hurried into a room at the back of the shop. She came back, breathless, holding a leather pouch which she set on the counter. I haven't used these for so long, I almost forgot where they were. Now sit across from me and I'll show you why I went to all this trouble. Aragon found a stool and sat. Solembum's eyes glowed from the gap in the drawers. Angela laid a thick cloth on the counter, then poured a handful of smooth bones, each slightly longer than a finger, onto it. Runes and symbols were inscribed along their sides. These, she said, touching them gently, are the knuckle bones of a dragon. Don't ask me where I got them, it's a secret I won't reveal. But unlike tea leaves, crystal balls, or even divining cards, these have true power. They do not lie, though understanding what they say is complicated. If you wish, I will cast and read them for you, but understand that to know one's fate can be a terrible thing. 
You must be sure of your decision. Aragon looked at the bones with a feeling of dread. There lies what was once one of Sephira's kin. To no one's fate. How can I make this decision when I don't know what lies in wait for me and whether I will like it? Ignorance is indeed bliss. Why do you offer this? he asked. Because of Solembum. He may have been rude, but the fact that he spoke to you makes you special. He is a weirdcat, after all. I offered to do this for the other two people who talked with him. Only the woman agreed to it. Selina was her name. Ah, she regretted it, too. Her fortune was bleak and painful. I don't think she believed it, not at first. Emotion overcame Aragon, bringing tears to his eyes. Selina, he whispered to himself, his mother's name. Could it have been her? Was her destiny so horrible that she had to abandon me? Do you remember anything about her fortune? he asked, feeling sick. Angela shook her head and sighed. It was so long ago that the details have melted into the rest of my memory, which isn't as good as it used to be. Besides, I'll not tell you what I do remember. That was for her and her alone. It was sad, though. I've never forgotten the look on her face. Aragon closed his eyes and struggled to regain control of his emotions. Why do you complain about your memory? he asked, to distract himself. You're not that old. Dimples appeared on Angela's cheeks. I'm flattered, but don't be deceived. I'm much older than I look. The appearance of youth probably comes from having to eat my own herbs when times are lean. Smiling, Aragon took a deep breath. If that was my mother, and she could bear to have her fortune told, I can too. Cast the bones for me, he said solemnly. Angela's face became grave as she grasped the bones in each hand. Her eyes closed, and her lips moved in a soundless murmur. Then she said powerfully, Manin! Weirda! Hugin! And tossed the bones onto the cloth. They fell all jumbled together, gleaming in the faint light. The words rang in Aragon's ears. He recognized them from the ancient language and realized with apprehension that to use them for magic, Angela must be a witch. She had not lied. This was a true fortune-telling. Minutes slowly passed as she studied the bones. Finally, Angela leaned back and heaved a long sigh. She wiped her brow and pulled out a wineskin from under the counter. Do you want some? she asked. Aragon shook his head. She shrugged and drank deeply. This, she said, wiping her mouth, is the hardest reading I've ever done. You were right. Your future is nigh impossible to see. I have never known of anyone's fate being so tangled and clouded. I was, however, able to wrestle a few answers from it. Solembum jumped onto the counter and settled there, watching them both. Aragon clenched his hands as Angela pointed to one of the bones. I will start here, she said slowly, because it is the clearest to understand. The symbol on the bone was a long horizontal line with a circle resting on it. Infinity or long life, said Angela quietly. This is the first time I have ever seen it come up in someone's future. Most of the time it's the aspen or the elm, both signs that a person will live a normal span of years. Whether this means that you will live forever or that you will only have an extraordinarily long life, I'm not sure. Whatever it foretells, you may be sure that many years lie ahead of you. No surprises there. I am a rider, thought Aragon.
Was Angela only going to tell him things he already knew? No, the bones grow harder to read, as the rest are in a confused pile. Angela touched three of them. Here, the wandering path, lightning bolt and sailing ship all lie together, a pattern I've never seen, only heard of. The wandering path shows that there are many choices in your future, some of which face you even now. I see great battles raging around you, some of them fought for your sake. I see the mighty powers of this land struggling to control your will and destiny. Countless possible futures await you, all of them filled with blood and conflict. But only one will bring you happiness and peace. Beware of losing your way, for you are only one of the few who are truly free to choose their own fate. That freedom is a gift, but it is also a responsibility more binding than chains. Then her face grew sad. And yet, as if to counteract that, here is the lightning bolt. It is a terrible omen. There is a doom upon you, but of what sort I know not. Part of it lies in a death, one that rapidly approaches and will cause you much grief. But the rest awaits in a great journey. Look closely at this bone. You can see how its end rests on that of the sailing ship. It is impossible to misunderstand. Your fate will be to leave this land for ever. Where you will end up I know not, but you will never again stand in Allegasia. This is inescapable. It will come to pass even if you try to avoid it. Her words frightened Aragon. Another death? Who must I lose now? His thoughts immediately went to Roran. Then he thought about his homeland. What could ever force me to leave? And where would I go? If there are lands across the sea or to the east, only the elves know of them. Angela rubbed her temples and breathed deeply. The next bone is easier to read, and perhaps a bit more pleasant. Aragon examined it and saw a rose blossom inscribed between the horns of a crescent moon. Angela smiled and said, An epic romance is in your future. Extraordinary, as the moon indicates, for that is the magical symbol, and strong enough to outlast empires. I cannot say if this passion will end happily, but your love is of noble birth and heritage. She is powerful, wise, and beautiful beyond compare. Of noble birth? thought Aragon in surprise. How could that ever happen? I have no more standing than the poorest of farmers. Now for the last two bones, the tree and the hawthorn root, which cross each other strongly. I wish that this were not so. It can only mean more trouble. But betrayal is clear, and it will come from within your family. Roran wouldn't do that, objected Aragon abruptly. I wouldn't know said Angela carefully. But the bones have never lied, and that is what they say. Doubt wormed into Aragon's mind, but he tried to ignore it. What reason would there ever be for Roran to turn on him? Angela put a comforting hand on his shoulder and offered him the wineskin again. This time Aragon accepted the drink, and it made him feel better. After all that, death might be welcome, he joked nervously. Betrayal from Roran? It couldn't happen. It won't. It might be, said Angela solemnly, then laughed slightly. But you shouldn't fret about what is yet to occur. The only way the future can harm us is by causing worry. I guarantee that you'll feel better once you're out in the sun. Perhaps. Unfortunately, he reflected wryly, 
Nothing she said will make sense until it has already happened. If it really does, he amended himself. You used words of power, he noted quietly. Angela's eyes flashed. What I wouldn't give to see how the rest of your life plays out. You can speak to weirdcats, know of the ancient language, and have a most interesting future. Also, few young men with empty pockets and rough travelling clothes can expect to be loved by a noblewoman. Who are you? Aragon realised that the weircat must not have told Angela that he was a rider. He almost said, Evan, but then changed his mind and simply stated, I am Aragon. Angela arched her eyebrows. Is that who you are or your name? she asked. Both, said Aragon, with a small smile, thinking of his namesake, the first rider. Now I'm all the more interested in seeing how your life will unfold. Who was the ragged man with you yesterday? Aragon decided that one more name couldn't hurt. His name is Brom. A guffaw suddenly burst out of Angela, doubling her over in mirth. She wiped her eyes and took a sip of wine, then fought off another attack of merriment. Finally, gasping for breath, she forced out, Oh, that one? I had no idea. What is it? demanded Aragon. No, no, don't be upset, said Angela, hiding a smile. It's only that, well, he is known by those in my profession. I'm afraid that the poor man's doom, or future, if you will, is something of a joke with us. Don't insult him. He's a better man than any you could find, snapped Aragon. Peace, peace, chided Angela with amusement. I know that. If we meet again at the right time, I'll be sure to tell you about it. But in the meantime, you should... She stopped speaking as Solombum padded between them. The weircat stared at Aragon with unblinking eyes. Yes, Aragon asked, irritated. Listen closely, and I will tell you two things. When the time comes, and you need a weapon, look under the roots of the Minoa tree. Then, when all seems lost, and your power is insufficient, go to the rock of Cuthian and speak your name to open the vault of souls. Before Aragon could ask what Solombum meant, the weircat walked away, waving his tail ever so gracefully. Angela tilted her head, coils of dense hair shadowing her forehead. I don't know what he said, and I don't want to know. He spoke to you and only you. Don't tell anyone else. I think I have to go, said Aragon, shaken. If you want to, said Angela, smiling again. You are welcome to stay here as long as you like, especially if you buy some of my goods. But go if you wish. I am sure that we've given you enough to ponder for a while. Yes. Aragon quickly made his way to the door. Thank you for reading my future, I think. You're welcome, said Angela, still smiling. Aragon exited the shop and stood in the street, squinting until his eyes adjusted to the brightness. It was a few minutes before he could think calmly about what he had learned. He started walking, his steps unconsciously quickening, until he dashed out of Tiam, feet flying as he headed to Sephira's hiding place. He called to her from the base of the cliff. A minute later she soared down and bore him up to the clifftop. When they were both safely on the ground, Aragon told her about his day. And so, he concluded, I think Brom's right. I always seem to be where there's trouble. You should remember what the weircat told you. It's important. How do you know? 
he asked curiously. I'm not sure, but the names he used feel powerful. Cuthian, she said, rolling the word around. No, we should not forget what he said. Do you think I should tell Brom? It's your choice, but think of this. He has no right to know your future. To tell him of Solembam and his words will only raise questions you may not want to answer. And if you decide to only ask him what those words mean, he will want to know where you learned them. Do you think you can lie convincingly to him? No, admitted Aragon. Maybe I won't say anything. Still, this might be too important to hide. They talked until there was nothing more to say. Then they sat together companionably, watching the trees until dusk. Aragon hurried back to Tyrm and was soon knocking on Jode's door. Is Neil back? he asked the butler. Yes, sir, I believe he's in the study right now. Thank you, said Aragon. He strode to the room and peeked inside. Brom was sitting before the fire, smoking. How did it go? asked Aragon. Bloody awful, growled Brom around his pipe. So you talked to Brand? Not that it did any good. This administrator of trade is the worst sort of bureaucrat. He abides by every rule, delights in making his own whenever it can inconvenience someone, and at the same time believes that he's doing good. Then he won't let us see the records? asked Aragon. No, snapped Brom, exasperated. Nothing I could say would sway him. He even refused bribes, substantial ones too. I didn't think I would ever meet a noble who wasn't corrupt. Now that I have, I find that I prefer them when they're greedy bastards. He puffed furiously on his pipe and mumbled a steady stream of curses. When he seemed to have calmed, Aragon said tentatively, So, what now? I'm going to take the next week and teach you how to read. And after that? A smile split Brom's face. After that, we're going to give Brand a nasty surprise. Aragon pestered him for details, but Brom refused to say more. Dinner was held in a sumptuous dining room. Jode sat at one end of the table, a hard-eyed Helen at the other. Brom and Aragon were seated between them, which Aragon felt was a dangerous place to be. Empty chairs were on either side of him, but he didn't mind the space. It helped to protect him from the glares of their hostess. The food was served quietly, and Jode and Helen wordlessly began eating. Aragon followed suit, thinking, I've had cheerier meals at funerals. And he had, in Carver Hall. He remembered many burials that had been sad, yes, but not unduly so. This was different. He could feel simmering resentment pouring from Helen throughout the dinner. Of Reading and Plots Brom scratched a rune on parchment with charcoal, then showed it to Aragon. This is the letter A, he said. Learn it. With that, Aragon began the task of becoming literate. It was difficult and strange and pushed his intellect to its limits, but he enjoyed it. Without anything else to do and with a good, if sometimes impatient, teacher, he advanced rapidly. A routine was soon established. Every day, Aragon got up, ate in the kitchen, then went to the study for his lessons, where he laboured to memorise the sounds of the letters and the rules of writing. It got so that when he closed his eyes, letters and words danced in his mind. He thought of little else during that time. Before dinner, he and Brom would go behind Jode's house and spar. 
The servants, along with a small crowd of wide-eyed children, would come and watch. If there was any time afterward, Aragon would practice magic in his room with the curtains securely closed. His only worry was Sephira. He visited her every evening, but it was not enough time together for either of them. During the day, Sephira spent most of her time leagues away searching for food. She could not hunt near Tyrm without arousing suspicion. Aragon did what he could to help her, but he knew that the only solution for both her hunger and loneliness was to leave the city far behind. Every day, more grim news poured into Tyrm. Arriving merchants told of horrific attacks along the coast. There were reports of powerful people disappearing from their houses in the night and their mangled corpses being discovered in the morning. Aragon often heard Brom and Joe discussing the events in an undertone, but they always stopped when he came near. The days passed quickly, and soon a week had gone by. Aragon's skills were rudimentary, but he could now read whole pages without asking Brom's help. He read slowly, but he knew that speed would come with time. Brom encouraged him. No matter, you'll do fine for what I have planned. It was afternoon when Brom summoned both Jode and Aragon to the study. Brom gestured at Aragon. Now that you can help us, I think it's time to move ahead. What do you have in mind? asked Aragon. A fierce smile danced on Brom's face. Jode groaned. I know that look. It's what got us into trouble in the first place. A slight exaggeration, said Brom, but not unwarranted. Very well, this is what we'll do. We leave tonight or tomorrow, Aragon told Sephira from within his room. This is unexpected. Will you be safe during this venture? Aragon shrugged. I don't know. We may end up fleeing Tyrion with soldiers on our heels. He felt her worry and tried to reassure her. It'll be all right. Brom and I can use magic and we're good fighters. He lay on the bed and stared at the ceiling. His hands shook slightly and there was a lump in his throat. As sleep overcame him, he felt a wave of confusion. I don't want to leave Tiam, he suddenly realized. The time I've spent here has been almost normal. What I would give not to keep uprooting myself, to stay here and be like everyone else, would be wonderful. Then another thought raged through him. But I'll never be able to while Sephira is around. Never. Dreams owned his consciousness, twisting and directing it to their whims. At times he quaked with fear, at other times he laughed with pleasure. Then something changed. It was as though his eyes had been opened for the first time, and a dream came to him that was clearer than any before. He saw a young woman, bent over by sorrow, chained in a cold, hard cell. A beam of moonlight shone through a barbed window set high on the wall and fell on her face. A single tear rolled down her cheek like a liquid diamond. Aragon rose with a start and found himself crying uncontrollably before sinking back into a fitful sleep. Thieves in the Castle Aragon woke from his nap to a golden sunset. Red and orange beams of light streamed into the room and fell across the bed. They warmed his back pleasantly, making him reluctant to move. He dozed, but the sunlight crept off him, and he grew cold. The sun sank below the horizon, lighting the sea and sky with color. Almost time. He slung his bow and quiver on his back, but left Zarok in the room. The sword would only slow him, and he was averse to using it.
If he had to disable someone, he could use magic or an arrow. He pulled his jerkin over his shirt and laced it securely. He waited nervously in his room until the light faded. Then he entered the hallway and shrugged so the quiver settled comfortably across his back. Brom joined him, carrying his sword and staff. Jode, dressed in a black doublet and hose, was waiting for them outside. From his waist swung an elegant rapier and a leather pouch. Brom eyed the rapier and observed, That toad sticker is too thin for any real fighting. What will you do if someone comes after you with a broadsword or a flamberge? Be realistic, said Jode. None of the guards has a flamberge. Besides, this toad sticker is faster than a broadsword. Brom shrugged. It's your neck. They walked casually along the street, avoiding watchmen and soldiers. Aragon was tense and his heart pounded. As they passed Angela's shop, a flash of movement on the roof caught his attention, but he saw no one. His palm tingled. He looked at the roof again, but it was still empty. Brom led them along Tiam's outer wall. By the time they reached the castle, the sky was black. The sealed walls of the fortress made Aragon shiver. He would hate to be imprisoned there. Jode silently took the lead and strode up to the gates, trying to look at ease. He pounded on the gate and waited. A small grill slid open and a surly guard peered out. Yeah, he grunted shortly. Aragon could smell rum on his breath. We need to get in, said Jode. The guard peered at Jode closer. What for? The boy here left something very valuable in my office. We have to retrieve it immediately. Aragon hung his head, shamefaced. The guard frowned, clearly impatient to get back to his bottle. Ah, whatever, he said, swinging his arm. Just make sure and give him a good beating for me. I'll do that, assured Jode, as the guard unbolted a small door set into the gate. They entered the keep, then Brom handed the guard a few coins. Thank ye, mumbled the man, tottering away. As soon as he was gone, Aragon pulled his bow from its tube and strung it. Jode quickly led them into the main part of the castle. They hurried toward their destination, listening carefully for any soldiers on patrol. At the records room, Brom tried the door. It was locked. He put his hand against the door and muttered a word that Aragon did not recognize. It swung open with a faint click. Brom grabbed a torch from the wall and they darted inside, closing the door quietly. The squat room was filled with wooden racks piled high with scrolls. A barred window was set in the far wall. Jode threaded his way between the racks, running his eyes over the scrolls. He halted at the back of the room. Over here, he said. These are the shipping records for the past five years. You can tell the date by the wax seals on the corner. So what do we do now? asked Aragon, pleased that they had made it so far without being discovered. Start at the top and work down, said Jode. Some scrolls only deal with taxes. You can ignore those. Look for anything that mentions Seether oil. He took a length of parchment from his pouch and stretched it out on the floor, then set a bottle of ink and a quill pen next to it. So we can keep track of whatever we find, he explained. Brom scooped an armful of scrolls from the top of the rack and piled them on the floor. He sat and unrolled the first one. Aragon joined him, positioning himself so he could see the door. The tedious work was especially difficult for him, as the cramped script on the scrolls was different from the printing Brom had taught him. By looking only for the names of ships that sailed in the northern areas, they winnowed out many of the scrolls. Even so, they moved down the rack slowly, recording each shipment of seether oil as they located it. It was quiet outside the room, except for the occasional watchman. Suddenly, Aragon's neck prickled. 
He tried to keep working, but the uneasy feeling remained. Irritated, he looked up and jerked with surprise. A small boy crouched on the windowsill. His eyes were slanted, and a sprig of holly was woven into his shaggy black hair. Do you need help? asked a voice in Aragon's head. His eyes widened with shock. It sounded like Solombum. Is that you? he asked incredulously. Am I someone else? Aragon gulped and concentrated on his scroll. If my eyes don't deceive me, you are. The boy smiled slightly, revealing pointed teeth. What I look like doesn't change who I am. You don't think I'm called a weircat for nothing, do you? What are you doing here? Aragon asked. The weircat tilted his head and considered whether the question was worth an answer. That depends on what you are doing here. If you are reading those scrolls for entertainment, then I suppose there isn't any reason for my visit. But if what you are doing is unlawful and you don't want to be discovered, I might be here to warn you that the guard whom you bribed just told his replacement about you, and that this second officer of the Empire has sent soldiers to search for you. Thank you for telling me, said Aragon. Told you something, did I? I suppose I did. And I suggest you make use of it. The boy stood and tossed back his wild hair. Aragon asked quickly, What did you mean last time about the tree in the vault? Exactly what I said. Aragon tried to ask more, but the weircat vanished through the window. He announced abruptly, There are soldiers looking for us. How do you know? asked Brom sharply. I listened in on the guard. His replacement just sent men to search for us. We have to get out of here. They've probably already discovered that Jode's office is empty. Are you sure? asked Jode. Yes, said Aragon impatiently. They're on their way. Brom snatched another scroll from the rack. No matter, we have to finish this now. They worked furiously for the next minute, scanning the records as fast as they could. As the last scroll was finished, Brom threw it back onto the rack, and Jode jammed his parchment, ink, and pen into his pouch. Aragon grabbed the torch. They raced from the room and shut the door, but just as it closed, they heard the heavy tramp of soldiers' boots at the end of the hall. They turned to leave, but Brom hissed furiously, Damnation! It's not locked! He put his hand against the door. The lock clicked at the same time three armed soldiers came into view. Hey, get away from that door! shouted one of them. Brom stepped back, assuming a surprised expression. The three men marched up to them. The tallest one demanded, Why are you trying to get into the records? Aragon gripped his bow tighter and prepared to run. I'm afraid we lost our way. The strain was evident in Jode's voice. A drop of sweat rolled down his neck. The soldier glared at them suspiciously. Check inside the room, he ordered one of his men. Aragon held his breath as the soldier stepped up to the door, tried to open it, then pounded on it with his mailed fist. It's locked, sir. The leader scratched his chin. All right, then. I don't know what you were up to, but as long as the door's locked, I guess you're free to go. Come on. The soldiers surrounded them and marched them back to the keep. I can't believe it, thought Aragon. They're helping us get away. At the main gates, the soldier pointed and said, Now you walk through those and don't try anything. We'll be watching. If you have to come back, wait until morning. Of course, promised Jode. Aragon could feel the guards' eyes boring into their backs as they hurried out of the castle. 
The moment that the gates closed behind them, a triumphant grin stretched across his face, and he jumped into the air. Brom shot him a cautioning look and growled, "'Walk back to the house normally. You can celebrate there.' Chastised, Aragon adopted a staid demeanour, but inside he still bubbled with energy. Once they had hurried back to the house and into the study, Aragon exclaimed, "'We did it!' "'Yes, but now we have to figure out if it was worth the trouble,' said Brom. Joe took a map of Allegasia from the shelves and unrolled it on the desk. On the left side of the map, the ocean extended to the unknown west. Along the coast stretched the spine, an immense length of mountains. The Hadarak Desert filled the centre of the map. The east end was blank. Somewhere in that void hid the Varden. To the south was Serda, a small country that had seceded from the Empire after the Riders' fall. Aragon had been told that Serda secretly supported the Varden. Near Serda's eastern border was a mountain range, labelled Beor Mountains. Aragon had heard of them in many stories. They were supposed to be ten times the height of the spine, though he privately believed that was an exaggeration. The map was empty to the east of the Beors. Five islands rested off the coast of Surda. Nie, Palam, Uden, Ilium, and Beerland. Nie was no more than an outcropping of rock, but Beerland, the largest, had a small town. Farther up, near Tirm, was a jagged island called Sharktooth, and high to the north was one more island, immense, and shaped like a knobby hand. Aragon knew its name without even looking. Vroengard, the ancestral home of the riders, once a place of glory, but now a looted, empty shell, haunted by strange beasts. In the centre of Vroengard was the abandoned city of Doru Ariba. Carvajal was a small dot at the top of Palankar Valley. Level with it, but across the plains, sprawled the forest, Duweldenvarden. Like the Beor Mountains, its eastern end was unmapped. Parts of Du Weldenvarden's western edge had been settled, but its heart lay mysterious and unexplored. The forest was wilder than the spine. The few who braved its depths often came back raving mad, or not at all. Aragon shivered as he saw Urubane in the centre of the empire. King Albatorix ruled from there with his black dragon Shrukan by his side. Aragon put his finger on Urubane. The Razak are sure to have a hiding place here. You would better hope that that isn't their only sanctuary, said Brom flatly. Otherwise you'll never get near them. He pushed the rustling map flat with his wrinkled hands. Jode took the parchment out of his pouch and said, From what I saw in the records, there have been shipments of seether oil to every major city in the Empire over the past five years. As far as I can tell, all of them might have been ordered by wealthy jewellers. I'm not sure how we can narrow down the list without more information. Brom swept a hand over the map. I think we can eliminate some cities. The Razak have to travel wherever the king wants, and I'm sure he keeps them busy. If they're expected to go anywhere at any time, the only reasonable place for them to stay is at a crossroads where they can reach every part of the country fairly easily. He was excited now and paced the room. This crossroads has to be large enough so the Razak will be inconspicuous. It also has to have enough trade so any unusual requests, special food for their mounts, for example, will go unnoticed. That makes sense, said Joad, nodding. Under those conditions we can ignore most of the cities in the north. The only big ones are Tirm, Gilead, and Siunon. 
I know they're not in Tirm, and I doubt that the oil has been shipped farther up the coast to Nada. It's too small. Siunon is too isolated. Only Gilead remains. The Razak might be there, conceded Brom. It would have a certain irony. It would at that, Jode acknowledged softly. What about southern cities? asked Aragon. Well, said Jode, there's obviously Urubain, but that's an unlikely destination. If someone were to die from Seetheroil in Galbatorix's court, it would be all too easy for an earl or some other lord to discover that the Empire had been buying large amounts of it. That still leaves many others, many of which could be the one we want. Yes, said Aragon, but the oil wasn't sent to all of them. The parchment only lists Coasta, Drasleona, Aros, and Bellatona. Coasta wouldn't work for the Razak. It's on the coast and surrounded by mountains. Aros is isolated like Siunon, though it is a centre of trade. That leaves Bellatona and Drasleona, which are rather close together. Of the two, I think Drasleona is the likelier. It's larger and better situated. And that's where nearly all the goods of the Empire pass through at one time or another, including Tiams, said Jode. It would be a good place for the Razak to hide. So, Drasleona, said Brom, as he sat down and lit his pipe. What do the records show? Jode looked at the parchment. Here it is. At the beginning of the year, three shipments of seether oil were sent to Drasleona. Each shipment was only two weeks apart, and the records say they were all transported by the same merchant. The same thing happened last year and the year before that. I doubt any one jeweller or even a group of them has the money for so much oil. What about Gilead? asked Brom, raising an eyebrow. It doesn't have the same access to the rest of the empire, and, Joe tapped the parchment, they've only received the oil twice in recent years. He thought for a moment, then said, Besides, I think we forgot something. Hellgrind. Brom nodded. Ah, yes, the Dark Gates. It has been many years since I've thought of it. You're right, that would make Drasleona perfect for the Razak. I guess it's decided, then. That's where we'll go. Aragon sat abruptly, too drained of emotion to even ask what Hellgrind was. I thought I would be happy to resume the hunt. Instead, I feel like an abyss has opened before me. Drasleona, it's so far away. The parchment crackled as Jode slowly rolled up the map. He handed it to Brom and said, You'll need this, I'm afraid. Your expeditions often take you into obscure regions. Nodding, Brom accepted the map. Jode clapped him on the shoulder. It doesn't feel right that you will be leaving without me. My heart expects to go along, but the rest of me reminds me of my age and responsibilities. I know, said Brom, but you have a life in Tirm. It is time for the next generation to take up the standard. You've done your part. Be happy. What of you? asked Jode. Does the road ever end for you? A hollow laugh escaped Brom's lips. I see it coming, but not for a while. He extinguished his pipe, and they left for their rooms exhausted. Before he fell asleep, Aragon contacted Sephira to relate the night's adventures. A Costly Mistake In the morning, Aragon and Brom retrieved their saddlebags from the stable and prepared to depart. Jode greeted Brom while Helen watched from the doorway.
With grave looks, the two men clasped hands. I'll miss you, old man, said Joad. And I you, said Brom thickly. He bowed his white head and then turned to Helen. Thank you for your hospitality. It was most gracious. Her face reddened. Aragon thought she was going to slap him. Brom continued unperturbed. You have a good husband. Take care of him. There are few men as brave and as determined as he is. But even he cannot weather difficult times without support from those he loves. He bowed again and said gently, Only a suggestion, dear lady. Aragon watched as indignation and hurt crossed Helen's face. Her eyes flashed as she shut the door brusquely. Sighing, Jode ran his fingers through his hair. Aragon thanked him for all his help, then mounted Caddock. With the last farewell said, he and Brom departed. At Tiam's south gate the guards let them through without a second glance. As they rode under the giant outer wall, Aragon saw movement in a shadow. Solombum was crouched on the ground, tail twitching. The weircat followed them with inscrutable eyes. As the city receded into the distance, Aragon asked, What are weircats? Brom looked surprised at the question. By the sudden curiosity. I heard someone mention them in Tiam. They're not real, are they? said Aragon, pretending ignorance. They are quite real. During the riders' years of glory they were as renowned as the dragons. Kings and elves kept them as companions, yet the weircats were free to do what they chose. Very little has ever been known about them. I am afraid that their race has become rather scarce recently. Could they use magic? asked Aragon. No one, sure. But they could certainly do unusual things. They always seemed to know what was going on, and somehow or another managed to get themselves involved. Brom pulled his hood up to block a chill wind. What's Hellgrind? asked Aragon, after a moment's thought. You'll see when we get to Drasleona. When Tyrion was out of sight, Aragon reached out with his mind and called, Saphira! The force of his mental shout was so strong that Caddock flicked his ears in annoyance. Saphira answered and sped toward them with all of her strength. Aragon and Brom watched as a dark blur rushed from a cloud, then heard a dull roar as Saphira's wings flared open. The sun shone behind the thin membranes, turning them translucent, silhouetting the dark veins. She landed with a blast of air. Aragon tossed Caddock's reins to Brom. I'll join you for lunch. Brom nodded, but seemed preoccupied. Have a good time, he said, then looked at Saphira and smiled. It's good to see you again. And you too. Aragon hopped onto Saphira's shoulders and held on tightly as she bounded upward. With the wind at her tail, Saphira sliced through the air. Hold on, she warned Aragon, and letting out a wild bugle, she soared in a great loop. Aragon yelled with excitement as he flung his arms in the air, holding on only with his legs. I didn't know I could stay on while you did that without being strapped into the saddle, he said, grinning fiercely. Neither did I admitted Saphira, laughing in her peculiar way. Aragon hugged her tightly, and they flew a level path, masters of the sky. By noon his legs were sore from riding bareback, and his hands and face were numb from the cold air. Saphira's scales were always warm to the touch, but she could not keep him from getting chilled. When they landed for lunch, he buried his hands in his clothes and found a warm, sunny place to sit. 
as he and Brom ate, Aragon asked Safira, Do you mind if I ride Caddock? He had decided to question Brom further about his past. No, but tell me what he says. Aragon was not surprised that Safira knew his plans. It was nearly impossible to hide anything from her when they were mentally linked. When they finished eating, she flew away as he joined Brom on the trail. After a time, Aragon slowed Caddock and said, I need to talk to you. I wanted to do it when we first arrived in Tiam, but I decided to wait until now. About what? asked Brom. Aragon paused. There's a lot going on that I don't understand. For instance, who are your friends, and why were you hiding in Carvajal? I trust you with my life, which is why I'm still travelling with you, but I need to know more about who you are and what you are doing. What did you steal in Gilead, and what is the Tuatha du Orothrim that you are taking me through? I think that after all that's happened, I deserve an explanation. You eavesdropped on us. Only once, said Aragon. I see that you have yet to learn proper manners, said Brom grimly, tugging on his beard. What makes you think that this concerns you? Nothing, really, said Aragon, shrugging. Just, it's an odd coincidence that you happened to be hiding in Carvajal when I found Sephira's egg, and that you also know so much dragon lore. The more I think about it, the less likely it seems. There were other clues that I mostly ignored, but they're obvious now that I look back. Like how you knew of the Razak in the first place and why they ran away when you approached. And I can't help but wonder if you had something to do with the appearance of Sephira's egg. There's a lot you haven't told us, and Sephira and I can't afford to ignore anything that might be dangerous. Dark lines appeared on Brom's forehead as he rained snowfire to a halt. You won't wait? he asked. Aragon shook his head mulishly. Brom sighed. This wouldn't be a problem if you weren't so suspicious. But I suppose that you wouldn't be worth my time if you were otherwise. Aragon was unsure if he should take that as a compliment. Brom lit his pipe and slowly blew a plume of smoke into the air. I'll tell you, he said, but you have to understand that I cannot reveal everything. Aragon started to protest, but Brom cut him off. It's not out of a desire to withhold information, but because I won't give away secrets that aren't mine. There are other stories woven in with this narrative. You'll have to talk with the others involved to find out the rest. Very well. Explain what you can, said Aragon. Are you sure? asked Brom. There are reasons for my secretiveness. I've tried to protect you by shielding you from forces that would tear you apart. Once you know of them and their purposes, you'll never have the chance to live quietly. You will have to choose sides and make a stand. Do you really want to know? I cannot live my life in ignorance, said Aragon quietly. A worthy goal. Very well. There is a war raging in Alagazia between the Varden and the Empire. Their conflict, however, reaches far beyond any incidental armed clashes. They are locked in a titanic power struggle, centred around you. Me? said Aragon, disbelieving. That's impossible. I don't have anything to do with either of them. Not yet, said Brom. But your very existence is the focus of their battles. The Varden and the Empire aren't fighting to control this land or its people. 
Their goal is to control the next generation of riders, of whom you are the first. Whoever controls these riders will become the undisputed master of Alagasia. Aragon tried to absorb Brom's statements. It seemed incomprehensible that so many people would be interested in him and Sephira. No one besides Brom had thought he was that important. The whole concept of the Empire and Varden fighting over him was too abstract for him to grasp fully. Objections quickly formed in his mind. But all the riders were killed, except for the Forsworn who joined Galbatorix. As far as I know, even those are now dead. And you told me in Carvajal that no one knows if there are still dragons in Alagasia. I lied about the dragons, said Brom flatly. Even though the riders are gone, there are still three dragon eggs left, all of them in Galbatorix's possession. Actually, there are only two now, since Sephira hatched. The king salvaged the three during his last great battle with the riders. So there may soon be two new riders, both of them loyal to the king, asked Aragon with a sinking feeling. Exactly, said Brom. There is a deadly race in progress. Galbatorix is desperately trying to find the people for whom his eggs will hatch, while the Varden are employing every means to kill his candidates or steal the eggs. But where did Sephira's egg come from? How could anyone have gotten it away from the king? And why do you know all of this? asked Aragon, bewildered. So many questions, laughed Brom bitterly. There is another chapter to all this, one that took place long before you were born. Back then I was a bit younger, though perhaps not as wise. I hated the Empire, for reasons I'll keep to myself, and wanted to damage it in any way I could. My fervor led me to a scholar, Jode, who claimed to have discovered a book that showed a secret passageway into Galbatorix's castle. I eagerly brought Jode to the Varden, who are my friends, and they arranged to have the egg stolen. The Varden! However, something went amiss, and our thief got only one egg. For some reason he fled with it and didn't return to the Varden. When he wasn't found, Jode and I were sent to bring him and the egg back. Brom's eyes grew distant, and he spoke in a curious voice. That was the start of one of the greatest searches in history. We raced against the Razak and Morzan, last of the Forsworn, and the king's finest servant. Morzan! interrupted Aragon. But he was the one who betrayed the riders to Galbatorix, and that happened so long ago. Morzan must have been ancient. It disturbed him to be reminded of how long riders lived. So? asked Brom, raising an eyebrow. Yes, he was old, but strong and cruel. He was one of the king's first followers, and by far his most loyal. As there had been blood between us before, the hunt for the egg turned into a personal battle. When it was located in Gilead, I rushed there and fought Morzan for possession. It was a terrible contest, but in the end I slew him. During the conflict I was separated from Jode. There was no time to search for him, so I took the egg and bore it to the Varden, who asked me to train whomever became the new rider. I agreed, and decided to hide in Carvajal, which I had been to several times before, until the Varden contacted me. I was never summoned. Then how did Sephira's egg appear in the spine? Was another one stolen from the king? asked Aragon. Brom grunted. <laughs> Small chance of that. 
He has the remaining two guarded so thoroughly that it would be suicide to try and steal them. No, Sephira was taken from the Varden, and I think I know how. To protect the egg, its guardian must have tried to send it to me with magic. The Varden haven't contacted me to explain how they lost the egg, so I suspect that their runners were intercepted by the Empire, and the Razak were sent in their place. I'm sure they were quite eager to find me, as I've managed to foil many of their plans. Then the Razak didn't know about me when they arrived in Carver Hall, said Aragon, with wonder. That's right, replied Brom. If that ass Sloan had kept his mouth shut, they might not have found out about you. Events could have turned out quite differently. In a way, I have you to thank for my life. If the Razak hadn't become so preoccupied with you, they might have caught me unawares, and that would have been the end of Brom the storyteller. The only reason they ran was because I'm stronger than the two of them, especially during the day. They must have planned to drug me during the night, then question me about the egg. You sent a message to the Varden telling them about me? Yes, I'm sure they'll want me to bring you to them as soon as possible. But you're not going to, are you? Brom shook his head. No, I'm not. Why not? Being with the Varden must be safer than chasing after the Razak, especially for a new rider. Brom snorted and looked at Aragon with fondness. The Varden are dangerous people. If we go to them, you will be entangled in their politics and machinations. Their leaders may send you on missions just to make a point, even though you might not be strong enough for them. I want you to be well prepared before you go anywhere near the Varden. At least while we pursue the Razak, I don't have to worry about someone poisoning your water. This is the lesser of two evils, and, he said with a smile, it keeps you happy while I train you. To Arthur do Orothrim is just a stage in your instruction. I will help you find, and perhaps even kill the Razak, for they are as much my enemies as yours. But then you will have to make a choice. And that would be, asked Aragon wearily, whether to join the Varden, said Brom. If you kill the Razak, the only ways for you to escape Galbatorix's wrath will be to seek the Varden's protection, flee to Surda, or plead for the king's mercy and join his forces. Even if you don't kill the Razak, you will still face this choice eventually. Aragon knew the best way to gain sanctuary might be to join the Varden, but he did not want to spend his entire life fighting the Empire like they did. He mulled over Brom's comments, trying to consider them from every angle. You still didn't explain how you know so much about dragons. No, I didn't, did I? said Brom with a crooked smile. That will have to wait for another time. Why me? Aragon asked himself. What made him so special that he should become a rider? Did you ever meet my mother? he blurted. Brom looked grave. Yes, I did. What was she like? The old man sighed. She was full of dignity and pride, like Garrow. Ultimately, it was her downfall but it was one of her greatest gifts nevertheless. She always helped the poor and the less fortunate, no matter what her situation. You knew her well? asked Aragon, startled. Well enough to miss her when she was gone. As Cadoc plodded along, Aragon tried to recall when he had thought that Brom was just a scruffy old man who told stories. For the first time, Aragon understood how ignorant he had been. He told Sephira what he had learned 
She was intrigued by Brom's revelations, but recoiled from the thought of being one of Galbatorix's possessions. At last she said, Aren't you glad that you didn't stay in Carvajal? Think of all the interesting experiences you would have missed. Aragon groaned in mock distress. When they stopped for the day, Aragon searched for water while Brom made dinner. He rubbed his hands together for warmth as he walked in a large circle, listening for a creek or spring. It was gloomy and damp between the trees. He found a stream a ways from the camp, then crouched on the bank, and watched the water splash over the rocks, dipping in his fingertips. The icy mountain water swirled around his skin, numbing it. It doesn't care what happens to us or anyone else, thought Aragon. He shivered and stood. An unusual print on the opposite stream bank caught his attention. It was oddly shaped and very large. Curious, he jumped across the stream and onto a rock shelf. As he landed, his foot hit a patch of damp moss. He grabbed a branch for support, but it broke and he thrust out his hand to break his fall. He felt his right wrist crack as he hit the ground. Pain lanced up his arm. A steady stream of curses came out from behind his clenched teeth as he tried not to howl. Half blind with pain, he curled on the ground, cradling his arm. Heracon, came Sephira's alarmed cry. What happened? Broke my wrist, did something stupid, fell. I'm coming, said Sephira. No, I can make it back. Don't come. Trees too close for wings. She sent him a brief image of her tearing the forest apart to get at him, then said, Hurry. Groaning, he staggered upright. The print was pressed deeply into the ground a few feet away. It was the mark of a heavy, nail-studded boot. Aragon instantly remembered the tracks that had surrounded the pile of bodies in Yazwak. Urgle, he spat, wishing that Zarok was with him. He could not use his bow with only one hand. His head snapped up and he shouted with his mind, Sephira, Urgles, keep Brom safe! Aragon leapt back over the stream and raced toward their camp, yanking out his hunting knife. He saw potential enemies behind every tree and bush. I hope there's only one Urgle. He burst into the camp, ducking as Sephira's tail swung overhead. Stop, it's me! he yelled. Oops, said Sephira. Her wings were folded in front of her chest like a wall. Oops, growled Aragon, running to her. You could have killed me. Where's Brom? I'm right here, snapped Brom's voice from behind Sephira's wings. Tell your crazy dragon to release me. She won't listen to me. Let him go, said Aragon, exasperated. Didn't you tell him? No, she said sheepishly. You just said to keep him safe. She lifted her wings, and Brom stepped forward angrily. I found an Urgle footprint, and it's fresh. Brom immediately turned serious. Saddle the horses, we're leaving. He put out the fire, but Aragon did not move. What's wrong with your arm? My wrist is broken, he said, swaying. Brom cursed and saddled Caddock for him. He helped Aragon onto the horse and said, We have to put a splint on your arm as soon as possible. Try not to move your wrist until then. Aragon gripped the reins tightly with his left hand. Brom said to Sephira, It's almost dark. You might as well fly right overhead. If Urgles show up, they'll think twice about attacking with you nearby. They'd better, or else they won't think again, remarked Sephira as she took off.
The light was disappearing quickly, and the horses were tired, but they spurred them on without respite. Aragon's wrist, swollen and red, continued to throb. A mile from the camp, Brom halted. Listen, he said. Aragon heard the faint call of a hunting horn behind them. As it fell silent, panic gripped him. They must have found where we were, said Brom, and probably Sephira's tracks. They will chase us now. It's not in their nature to let prey escape. Then two horns winded. They were closer. A chill ran through Aragon. Our only chance is to run, said Brom. He raised his head to the sky and his face blanked as he called Sephira. She rushed out of the night sky and landed. Leave Caddock. Go with her. You'll be safer, commanded Brom. What about you? Aragon protested. I'll be fine. Now go. Unable to muster the energy to argue, Aragon climbed onto Sephira while Brom lashed Snowfire and rode away with Caddock. Sephira flew after him, flapping above the galloping horses. Aragon clung to Sephira as best he could. He winced whenever her movements jostled his wrist. The horns blared nearby, bringing a fresh wave of terror. Brom crashed through the underbrush, forcing the horses to their limits. The horns trumpeted in unison close behind him, then were quiet. Minutes passed. Where are the Urgals? wondered Aragon. A horn sounded, this time in the distance. He sighed in relief, resting against Sephira's neck, while on the ground Brom slowed his headlong rush. That was close, said Aragon. Yes, but we cannot stop until... Sephira was interrupted as a horn blasted directly underneath them. Aragon jerked in surprise and Brom resumed his frenzied retreat. Horned urgles shouting with coarse voices barreled along the trail on horses, swiftly gaining ground. They were almost in sight of Brom. The old man could not outrun them. We have to do something, exclaimed Aragon. What? Land in front of the urgles. Are you crazy? demanded Sephira. Land! I know what I'm doing, said Aragon. There isn't time for anything else. They're going to overtake Brom. Very well. Sephira pulled ahead of the Urgles, then turned, preparing to drop onto the trail. Aragon reached for his power and felt the familiar resistance in his mind that separated him from the magic. He did not try to breach it yet. A muscle twitched in his neck. As the Urgles pounded up the trail, he shouted, Now! Sephira abruptly folded her wings and dropped straight down from above the trees, landing on the trail in a spray of dirt and rocks. The Urgles shouted with alarm and yanked on their horses' reins. The animals went stiff-legged and collided into each other, but the Urgles quickly untangled themselves to face Sephira with bared weapons. Hate crossed their faces as they glared at her. There were twelve of them, all ugly, jeering brutes. Aragon wondered why they did not flee. He had thought that the sight of Sephira would frighten them away. Why are they waiting? Are they going to attack us or not? He was shocked when the largest Urgle advanced and spat, our master wishes to speak with you, human. The monster spoke in deep, rolling gutturals. It's a trap, warned Sephira before Aragon could say anything. Don't listen to him. At least let's find out what he has to say, he reasoned, curious but extremely wary. Who is your master? he asked. The Urgle sneered. His name does not deserve to be given to one as low as yourself. He rules the sky and holds dominance over the earth. You are no more than a stray ant to him. Yet he has decreed that you shall be brought before him alive. Take heart that you have become worthy of such notice. I'll never go with you nor any of my enemies, 
declared Aragon, thinking of Yazuak. Whether you serve Shade, Urgol, or some twisted fiend I've not heard of, I have no wish to parley with him. That is a grave mistake, growled the Urgol, showing his fangs. There is no way to escape him. Eventually, you will stand before our master. If you resist, he will fill your days with agony. Aragon wondered who had the power to bring the Urgles under one banner. Was there a third great force loose in the land, along with the Empire and the Varden? Keep your offer, and tell your master that the crows can eat his entrails for all I care. Rage swept through the Urgles. Their leader howled, gnashing his teeth. We'll drag you to him, then. He waved his arm, and the Urgles rushed at Sephira. Raising his right hand, Aragon barked, Jirda! No! cried Sephira. But it was too late. The monsters faltered as Aragon's palm glowed. Beams of light lanced from his hand, striking each of them in the gut. The Urgles were thrown through the air and smashed into trees, falling senseless to the ground. Fatigue suddenly drained Aragon of strength, and he tumbled off Sephira. His mind felt hazy and dull. As Sephira bent over him, he realized that he might have gone too far. The energy needed to lift and throw twelve Urgles was enormous. Fear engulfed him as he struggled to stay conscious. At the edge of his vision, he saw one of the Urgles stagger to his feet, sword in hand. Aragon tried to warn Sephira, but she was too weak. No, he thought feebly. The Urgle crept towards Sephira until he was well past her tail, then raised his sword to strike her neck. No! Sephira whirled on the monster, roaring savagely. Her talons slashed with blinding speed. Blood spurted everywhere as the Urgle was rent in two. Sephira snapped her jaws together with finality and returned to Aragon. She gently wrapped her bloody claws around his torso, then growled and jumped into the air. The night blurred into a pain-filled streak. The hypnotic sound of Sephira's wings put him in a bleary trance. Up, down, up, down, up, down. When Sephira eventually landed, Aragon was dimly aware of Brom talking with her. Aragon could not understand what they said, but a decision must have been reached because Sephira took off again. His stupor yielded to sleep that covered him like a soft blanket. Vision of Perfection Aragon twisted under the blankets, reluctant to open his eyes. He dozed, then a fuzzy thought entered his mind. How did I get here? Confused, he pulled the blankets tighter and felt something hard on his right arm. He tried to move his wrist. It zinged with pain. The Urgles! He bolted upright. He lay in a small clearing that was empty, save a small campfire heating a stew-filled pot. A squirrel chattered on a branch. His bow and quiver rested alongside the blankets. Attempting to stand made him grimace, as his muscles were feeble and sore. There was a heavy splint on his bruised right arm. Where is everyone? he wondered forlornly. He tried to call Sephira, but to his alarm could not feel her. Ravenous hunger gripped him, so he ate the stew. Still hungry, he looked for the saddlebags, hoping to find a chunk of bread. Neither the saddlebags nor the horses were in the clearing. I'm sure there's a good reason for this, he thought, suppressing a surge of uneasiness. He wandered about the clearing, then returned to his blankets and rolled them up. Without anything better to do, he sat against a tree and watched the clouds overhead. Hours passed, but Brom and Sephira did not show up. I hope nothing's wrong. 
As the afternoon dragged on, Aragon grew bored and started to explore the surrounding forest. When he became tired, he rested under a fir tree that leaned against a boulder, with a bowl-shaped depression filled with clear dew water. Aragon stared at the water and thought about Brom's instructions for scrying. Maybe I can see where Sephira is. Brom said that scrying takes a lot of energy, but I'm stronger than he is. He breathed deeply and closed his eyes. In his mind, he formed a picture of Sephira, making it as lifelike as possible. It was more demanding than he expected. Then he said, Draumer Kupa, and gazed at the water. Its surface became completely flat, frozen by an invisible force. The reflections disappeared and the water became clear. On it shimmered an image of Sephira. Her surroundings were pure white, but Aragon could see that she was flying. Brom sat on her back, beard streaming, sword on his knees. Aragon tiredly let the image fade. At least they're safe. He gave himself a few minutes to recuperate, then leaned back over the water. Roran, how are you? In his mind he saw his cousin clearly. Impulsively he drew upon the magic and uttered the words. The water grew still, then the image formed on its surface. Roran appeared, sitting on an invisible chair. Like Sephira, his surroundings were white. There were new lines on Roran's face. He looked more like Garrow than ever before. Aragon held the image in place as long as he could. Is Roran in Therensford? He certainly know where I've been. The strain of using magic had brought beads of sweat to his forehead. He sighed, and for a long time was content just to sit. Then an absurd notion struck him. What if I tried to scry something I created with my imagination or saw in a dream? He smiled. Perhaps I'd be shown what my own consciousness looks like. It was too tempting an idea to pass by. He knelt by the water once again. What shall I look for? He considered a few things, but discarded them all when he remembered his dream about the woman in the cell. After fixing the scene in his mind, he spoke the words and watched the water intently. He waited, but nothing happened. Disappointed, he was about to release the magic when inky blackness swirled across the water, covering the surface. The image of a lone candle flickered in the darkness, brightening to illuminate a stone cell. The woman from his dream was curled up on a cot in one corner. She lifted her head, dark hair falling back, and stared directly at Aragon. He froze, the force of her gaze keeping him in place. Chills ran up his spine as their eyes locked. Then the woman trembled and collapsed limply. The water cleared. Aragon rocked back on his heels, gasping. This can't be. She shouldn't be real. I only dreamed about her. How could she know I was looking at her? And how could I have scried into a dungeon that I've never seen? He shook his head, wondering if any of his other dreams had been visions. The rhythmic thump of Sephira's wings interrupted his thoughts. He hurried back to the clearing, arriving just as Sephira landed. Brom was on her back, as Aragon had seen, but his sword was now bloody. Brom's face was contorted, the edges of his beard were stained red. What happened? asked Aragon, afraid that he had been wounded. What happened? roared the old man. I've been trying to clean up your mess. He slashed the air with the sword, flinging drops of blood along its arc. Do you know what you did with that little trick of yours? Do you? I stopped the Urgles from catching you said Aragon, a pit forming in his stomach. 
Yes, growled Brom, but that piece of magic nearly killed you. You've been sleeping for two days. There were twelve Urgles, twelve! But that didn't stop you from trying to throw them all away to Tiam, now did it? What were you thinking? Sending a rock through each of their heads would have been the smart thing to do. But no, you had to knock them unconscious so they could run away later. I've spent the last two days trying to track them down. Even with Sephira, three escaped. I didn't want to kill them, said Aragon, feeling very small. It wasn't a problem in Yazrak. There was no choice then, and I couldn't control the magic. This time it just seemed... extreme. Extreme, cried Brom. It's not extreme when they wouldn't show you the same mercy. And why, oh, why did you show yourself to them? You said that they had found Sephira's footprints. It didn't make any difference if they saw me, said Aragon defensively. Brom stabbed his sword into the dirt and snapped, I said they had probably found her tracks. We didn't know for certain. They might have believed they were chasing some stray travellers. But why would they think that now? After all, you landed right in front of them. And since you let them live, they're scrambling around the countryside with all sorts of fantastic tales. This might even get back to the Empire. He threw his hands up. You don't even deserve to be called a rider after this, boy. Brom yanked his sword out of the ground and stomped to the fire. He took a rag from inside his robe and angrily began to clean the blade. Aragon was stunned. He tried to ask Sephira for advice, but all she would say was, Speak with Brom. Hesitantly, Aragon made his way to the fire and asked, Would it help if I said I was sorry? Brom sighed and sheathed his sword. No, it wouldn't. Your feelings can't change what happened. He jabbed his finger at Aragon's chest. You made some very bad choices that could have dangerous repercussions, not least of which is that you almost died. Died, Aragon. From now on, you're going to have to think. There's a reason why we're born with brains in our heads, not rocks. Aragon nodded, abashed. It's not as bad as you think, though. The Urgles already knew about me. They had orders to capture me. Astonishment widened Brom's eyes. He stuck his unlit pipe in his mouth. No, it's not as bad as I thought. It's worse. Sephira told me you had talked with the Urgles, but she didn't mention this. The words tumbled out of Aragon's mouth as he quickly described the confrontation. So they have some sort of leader now, eh? questioned Brom. Aragon nodded. And you just defied his wishes, insulted him, and attacked his men? Brom shook his head. I didn't think it could get any worse. If the Urgles had been killed, your rudeness would have gone unnoticed, but now it'll be impossible to ignore. Congratulations. You just made enemies with one of the most powerful beings in Alagazia. All right, I made a mistake, said Aragon sullenly. Yes, you did, agreed Brom, eyes flashing. What has me worried, though, is who this Urgle leader is. Shivering, Aragon asked softly, What happens now? There was an uncomfortable pause. Your arm is going to take at least a couple of weeks to heal. That time would be well spent forging some sense into you. I suppose this is partially my fault. I've been teaching you how to do things, but not whether you should. It takes discretion, something you obviously lack. 
All the magic in Allegasia won't help you if you don't know when to use it. But we're still going to Dras Leona, right? asked Aragon. Brom rolled his eyes. Yes, we can keep looking for the Razak, but even if we find them, it won't do any good until you've healed. He began unsaddling Saphira. Are you well enough to ride? I think so. Good. Then we can still cover a few miles today. Where are Caddock and Snowfire? Brom pointed off to the side. Over there a ways. I picketed them where there was grass. Aragon prepared to leave, then followed Brom to the horses. Saphira said pointedly, If you had explained what you were planning to do, none of this would have happened. I would have told you it was a bad idea not to kill the Urgles. I only agreed to do what you asked, because I assumed it was halfway reasonable. I don't want to talk about it. As you wish, she sniffed. As they rode, every bump and dip in the trail made Eragon grit his teeth with discomfort. If he had been alone, he would have stopped. With Brom there, he dared not complain. Also, Brom started drilling him with difficult scenarios involving Urgles, Magic, and Saphira. The imagined fights were many and varied. Sometimes a shade or other dragons were included. Eragon discovered that it was possible to torture his body and mind at the same time. He got most of the questions wrong and became increasingly frustrated. When they stopped for the night, Brom grumbled shortly. It was a start. Aragon knew that he was disappointed. Master of the Blade The next day was easier on both of them. Aragon felt better and was able to answer more of Brom's questions correctly. After an especially difficult exercise, Aragon mentioned his scrying of the woman. Brom pulled on his beard. You say she was imprisoned? Yes. Did you see her face? asked Brom intently. Not very clearly. The lighting was bad, yet I could tell that she was beautiful. It's strange. I didn't have any problem seeing her eyes. And she did look at me. Brom shook his head. As far as I know, it's impossible for anyone to know if they're being scried upon. Do you know who she might be? asked Aragon, surprised by the eagerness in his own voice. Not really, admitted Brom. If pressed, I suppose I could come up with a few guesses, but none of them would be very likely. This dream of yours is peculiar. Somehow you managed to scry in your sleep something that you'd never seen before, without saying the words of power. Dreams do occasionally touch the spirit realm, but this is different. Perhaps to understand this we should search every prison and dungeon until we find the woman, bantered Aragon. He actually thought it would be a good idea. Brom laughed and rode on. Brom's strict training filled nearly every hour as the days slowly blended into weeks. Because of his splint, Aragon was forced to use his left hand whenever they sparred. Before long, he could duel as well with his left hand as he had with his right. By the time they crossed the spine and came to the plains, spring had crept over Allegasia, summoning a multitude of flowers. The bare, deciduous trees were russet with buds, while new blades of grass began to push up between last year's dead stalks. Birds returned from their winter absence to mate and build nests. The travellers followed the Tork River southeast along the edge of the spine. It grew steadily as tributaries flowed into it from every side, feeding its bulging girth. When the river was over a league wide, Brom pointed at the silt islands that dotted the water. We're close to Leona Lake now, he said. It's only about two leagues away. 
Do you think we can get there before nightfall? asked Aragon. We can try. Dusk soon made the trail hard to follow, but the sound of the river at their side guided them. When the moon rose, the bright disk provided enough light to see what lay ahead. Leona Lake looked like a thin sheet of silver beaten over the land. The water was so calm and smooth it did not even seem to be liquid. Aside from a bright strip of moonlight reflecting off the surface, it was indistinguishable from the ground. Sephira was on the rocky shore, fanning her wings to dry them. Aragon greeted her, and she said, The water is lovely, deep, cool, and clear. Maybe I'll go swimming tomorrow, he responded. They set up camp under a stand of trees, and were soon asleep. At dawn, Aragon eagerly rushed out to see the lake in daylight. A white-capped expanse of water rippled with fan-shaped patterns where the wind brushed it. The pure size of it delighted him. He whooped and ran to the water. Sephira, where are you? Let's have some fun! The moment Aragon climbed onto her, she jumped out over the water. They soared upward, circling over the lake, but even at that height the opposing shore was not visible. Would you like to take a bath? Aragon casually asked Sephira. She grinned wolfishly. Hold on. She locked her wings and sank to the waves, clipping the crests with her claws. The water sparkled in the sunlight as they sailed over it. Aragon whooped again. Then Sephira folded her wings and dived into the lake, her head and neck entering it like a lance. The water hit Aragon like an icy wall, knocking out his breath and almost tearing him off Sephira. He held on tightly as she swam to the surface. With three strokes of her feet she breached it and sent a burst of shimmering water toward the sky. Aragon gasped and shook his hair as Sephira slithered across the lake, using her tail as a rudder. Ready? Aragon nodded and took a deep breath, tightening his arms. This time they slid gently under the water. They could see for yards through the unclouded liquid. Sephira twisted and turned in fantastic shapes, slipping through the water like an eel. Aragon felt as if he were riding a sea serpent of legend. Just as his lungs started to cry for air, Sephira arched her back and pointed her head upward. An explosion of droplets haloed them as she leapt into the air, wings snapping open. With two powerful flaps, she gained altitude. Wow, that was fantastic, exclaimed Aragon. Yes, said Sephira happily, though it's a pity you can't hold your breath longer. Nothing I can do about that, he said, pressing water out of his hair. His clothes were drenched and the wind from Sephira's wings chilled him. He pulled at his splint. His wrist itched. Once Aragon was dry, he and Brom saddled the horses and started around Leona Lake in high spirits, while Sephira playfully dived in and out of the water. Before dinner, Aragon blocked Zarok's edge in preparation for their usual sparring. Neither he nor Brom moved as they waited for the other to strike first. Aragon inspected their surroundings for anything that might give him an advantage. A stick near the fire caught his attention. Aragon swooped down, grabbed the stick, and hurled it at Brom. The splint got in his way, though, and Brom easily sidestepped the piece of wood. The old man rushed forward, swinging his sword. Aragon ducked just as the blade whistled over his head. He growled and tackled Brom ferociously. They pitched to the ground, each struggling to stay on top. Aragon rolled to the side and swept Zarok over the ground at Brom's shins. Brom parried the blow with the hilt of his sword, then jumped to his feet. 
twisting as he stood, Aragon attacked again, guiding Zadok through a complex pattern. Sparks danced from their blaze as they struck again and again. Brom blocked each blow, his face tight with concentration, but Aragon could tell that he was tiring. The relentless hammering continued as each sought an opening in the other's defences. Then Aragon felt the battle change. Blow by blow he gained advantage. Brom's parries slowed, and he lost ground. Aragon easily blocked a stab from Brom. Veins pulsed on the old man's forehead and cords bulged in his neck from the effort. Suddenly confident, Aragon swung Zarok faster than ever, weaving a web of steel around Brom's sword. With a burst of speed, he smashed the flat of his blade against Brom's guard and knocked the sword to the ground. Before Brom could react, Aragon flicked Zarok up to his throat. They stood panting, the red sword tip resting on Brom's collarbone. Aragon slowly lowered his arm and backed away. It was the first time he had bested Brom without resorting to trickery. Brom picked up his sword and sheathed it. Still breathing hard, he said, We're done for today. But we just started, said Aragon, startled. Brom shook his head. I can teach you nothing more of the sword. Of all the fighters I've met, only three of them could have defeated me like that, and I doubt any of them could have done it with their left hand. He smiled ruefully. I may not be as young as I used to be, but I can tell that you're a talented and rare swordsman. Does this mean we're not going to spar every night? asked Aragon. Oh, you're not getting out of it, laughed Brom. But we'll go easier now. It's not as important if we miss a night here or there. He wiped his brow. Just remember, if you ever have the misfortune to fight an elf, trained or not, female or male, expect to lose. They, along with dragons and other creatures of magic, are many times stronger than nature intended. Even the weakest elf could easily overpower you. The same goes for the Razak. They are not human, and tire much more slowly than we do. Is there any way to become their equal? asked Aragon. He sat cross-legged by Sephira. You fought well, she said. He smiled. Brom seated himself with a shrug. There are a few but none are available to you now. Magic will let you defeat all but the strongest enemies. For those, you'll need Sephira's help, plus a great deal of luck. Remember, when creatures of magic actually use magic, they can accomplish things that could kill a human, because of their enhanced abilities. How do you fight with magic? asked Aragon. What do you mean? Well, he said, leaning on an elbow, suppose I was attacked by a shade. How could I block his magic? Most spells take place instantaneously, which makes it impossible to react in time. And even if I could, how would I nullify an enemy's magic? It seems I would have to know my opponent's intention before he acted. He paused. I just don't see how it can be done. Whoever attacked first would win. Brom sighed. What you are talking about, a wizard's duel, if you will, is extremely dangerous. Haven't you ever wondered how Galbatorix was able to defeat all of the riders with the help of only a dozen or so traitors? I never thought about it, acknowledged Aragon. There are several ways. Some you'll learn about later, but the main one is that Galbatorix was, and still is, a master of breaking into people's minds. You see, in a wizard's duel there are strict rules that each side must observe or else both contestants will die. 
To begin with, no one uses magic until one of the participants gains access to the other's mind. Safira curled her tail comfortably around Aragon and asked, Why wait? By the time an enemy realizes that you've attacked, it will be too late for him to act. Aragon repeated the question out loud. Brom shook his head. No, it won't. If I were to suddenly use my power against you, Aragon, you would surely die, but in the brief moment before you were destroyed, there would be time for a counterattack. Therefore, unless one combatant has a death wish, neither side attacks until one of them has breached the other's defences. Then what happens? Aragon inquired. Brom shrugged and said, Once you're inside your enemy's mind, it's easy enough to anticipate what he will do and prevent it. Even with that advantage, it's still possible to lose if you don't know how to counteract spells. He filled and lit his pipe. And that requires extraordinarily quick thinking. Before you can defend yourself, you have to understand the exact nature of the forces directed at you. If you're being attacked with heat, you have to know whether it is being conveyed to you through air, fire, light, or some other medium. Only once that's known can you combat the magic by, for instance, chilling the heated material. It sounds difficult. Extremely, confirmed Brom. A plume of smoke rose from his pipe. Seldom can people survive such a duel for more than a few seconds. The enormous amount of effort and skill required condemns anyone without the proper training to a quick death. Once you've progressed, I'll start teaching you the necessary methods. In the meantime, if you ever find yourself facing a wizard's duel, I suggest you run away as fast as you can. The Mire of Drasleona They lunched at Fasseloft, a bustling lakeside village. It was a charming place, set on a rise overlooking the lake. As they ate in the hostel's common room, Aragon listened intently to the gossip and was relieved to hear no rumours of him and Sephira. The trail, now a road, had grown steadily worse over the past two days. Wagon wheels and iron-shod hooves had conspired to tear up the ground, making many sections impassable. An increase in travellers forced Sephira to hide during the day, and then catch up with Brom and Aragon at night. For days they continued south along Leona Lake's vast shore. Aragon began to wonder if they would ever get around it, so he was heartened when they met men who said that Dras Leona was an easy day's ride ahead of them. Aragon rose early the following morning, his fingers twitched with anticipation at the thought of finally finding the Razak. The two of you must be careful, said Safira. The Razak could have spies watching for travellers that fit your description. We'll do our best to remain inconspicuous, he assured her. She lowered her head until their eyes met. Perhaps, but realize that I won't be able to protect you as I did with the Urgles. I will be too far away to come to your aid, nor would I survive long in the narrow streets your kind favor. Follow Brom's lead in this hunt. He is sensible. I know, he said somberly. Will you go with Brom to the Varden? Once the Razak are killed, he will want to take you to them. And since Galbatorix will be enraged by the Razak's death, that may be the safest thing for us to do. Aragon rubbed his arms. I don't want to fight the Empire all the time like the Varden do. 
Life is more than constant war. There'll be time to consider it once the Razak are gone. Don't be too sure, she warned, then went to hide herself until night. The road was clogged with farmers taking their goods to market in Drasleona. Brom and Aragon were forced to slow their horses and wait for wagons that blocked the way. Although they saw smoke in the distance before noon, it was another league before the city was clearly visible. Unlike Tirm, a planned city, Drasleona was a tangled mess that sprawled next to Leona Lake. Ramshackled buildings sat on crooked streets, and the heart of the city was surrounded by a dirty, pale yellow wall of daubed mud. Several miles east, a mountain of bare rock speared the sky with spires and columns, a tenebrous nightmare ship. Near vertical sides rose out of the ground like a jagged piece of the earth's bone. Brom pointed, That is Hellgrind. It's the reason Drasleona was originally built. People are fascinated by it, even though it's an unhealthy and malevolent thing. He gestured at the buildings inside the city walls. We should go to the center of the city first. As they crept along the road to Drasleona, Aragon saw that the highest building within the city was a cathedral that loomed behind the walls. It was strikingly similar to Helgrind, especially when its arches and flanged spires caught the light. Who do they worship? he asked. Brom grimaced in distaste. Their prayers go to Helgrind. It's a cruel religion they practice. They drink human blood and make flesh offerings. Their priests often lack body parts because they believe that the more bone and sinew you give up, the less you're attached to the mortal world. They spend much of their time arguing about which of Helgrind's three peaks is the highest and most important, and whether the fourth and lowest should be included in their worship. That's horrible, said Aragon, shuddering. Yes, said Brom grimly. But don't say that to a believer. You'll quickly lose a hand in penance. At Drasleona's enormous gates, they led the horses through the crush of people. Ten soldiers were stationed on either side of the gates, casually scanning the crowd. Aragon and Brom passed into the city without incident. The houses inside the city wall were tall and thin to compensate for the lack of space. Those next to the wall were braced against it. Most of the houses hung over the narrow, winding streets, covering the sky so that it was hard to tell if it was night or day. Nearly all the buildings were constructed of the same rough brown wood, which darkened the city even more. The air reeked like a sewer. The streets were filthy. A group of ragged children ran between the houses, fighting over scraps of bread. Deformed beggars crouched next to the entrance gates, pleading for money. Their cries for help were like a chorus of the damned. We don't even treat animals like this, thought Aragon, eyes wide with anger. I won't stay here, he said, rebelling against the sight. It gets better farther in, said Brom. Right now we need to find an inn and form a strategy. Drasleona can be a dangerous place to even the most cautious. I don't want to remain on the streets any longer than necessary. They forged deeper into Drasleona, leaving the squalid entrance behind. As they entered wealthier parts of the city, Aragon wondered, how can these people live in ease when the suffering around them is so obvious? They found lodging at the Golden Globe, which was cheap but not decrepit. A narrow bed was crammed against one wall of the room with a rickety table and a basin alongside it. Aragon took one look at the mattress and said, 
I'm sleeping on the floor. There are probably enough bugs in that thing to eat me alive. Well, I wouldn't want to deprive them of a meal, said Brom, dropping his bags on the mattress. Aragon set his own on the floor and pulled off his bow. What now? he asked. We find food and beer. After that, sleep. Tomorrow we can start looking for the Razak. Before they left the room, Brom warned, No matter what happens, make sure that your tongue doesn't loosen. We'll have to leave immediately if we're given away. The inn's food was barely adequate, but its beer was excellent. By the time they stumbled back to the room, Aragon's head was buzzing pleasantly. He unrolled his blankets on the floor and slid under them as Brom tumbled onto the bed. Just before Aragon fell asleep, he contacted Sephira. We're going to be here for a few days, but this shouldn't take as long as it did at Tiam. When we discover where the Razak are, you might be able to help us get them. I'll talk to you in the morning. Right now, I'm not thinking too clearly. You've been drinking, came the accusing thought. Aragon considered it for a moment and had to agree that she was absolutely right. Her disapproval was clear, but all she said was, I won't envy you in the morning. No, groaned Aragon, but Brom will. He drank twice as much as I did. Trail of Oil What was I thinking? wondered Aragon in the morning. His head was pounding and his tongue felt thick and fuzzy. As a rat skittered under the floor, Aragon winced at the noise. How are we feeling? asked Sephira smugly. Aragon ignored her. A moment later, Brom rolled out of bed with a grumble. He doused his head in cold water from the basin, then left the room. Aragon followed him into the hallway. Where are you going? he asked. To recover. I'll come. At the bar, Aragon discovered that Brom's method of recovery involved imbibing copious amounts of hot tea and ice water and washing it all down with brandy. When they returned to the room, Aragon was able to function somewhat better. Brom belted on his sword and smoothed the wrinkles out of his robe. The first thing we need to do is ask some discreet questions. I want to find out where the Seether oil was delivered in Drasleona and where it was taken from there. Most likely soldiers or workmen were involved in transporting it. We have to find those men and get one to talk. They left the Golden Globe and searched for warehouses where the Seether oil might have been delivered. Near the centre of Drasleona, the streets began to slant upward toward a palace of polished granite. It was built on a rise so that it towered above every building except the cathedral. The courtyard was a mosaic of mother-of-pearl and parts of the walls were inlaid with gold. Black statues stood in alcoves with sticks of incense smoking in their cold hands. Soldiers stationed every four yards watched passers-by keenly. Who lives there? asked Aragon in awe. Marcus Tabor, ruler of this city. He answers only to the king and his own conscience, which hasn't been very active recently, said Brom. They walked around the palace looking at the gated, ornate houses that surrounded it. By midday they had learned nothing useful, so they stopped for lunch. This city's too vast for us to comb it together, said Brom. Search on your own. Meet me at the Golden Globe by dusk. He glowered at Aragon from under his bushy eyebrows. I'm trusting you not to do anything stupid. I won't, promised Aragon. Brom handed him some coins and strode away in the opposite direction. 
Throughout the rest of the day, Aragon talked with shopkeepers and workers, trying to be as pleasant and charming as he could. His questions led him from one end of the city to the other and back again. No one seemed to know about the oil. Wherever he went, the cathedral stared down at him. It was impossible to escape its tall spires. At last, he found a man who had helped ship the Seether oil and remembered to which warehouse it had been taken. Aragon excitedly went to look at the building, then returned to the Golden Globe. It was over an hour before Brom came back, slumped with fatigue. Did you find anything? asked Aragon. Brom brushed back his white hair. I heard a great deal of interesting things today, not the least of which is that Galbatorix will visit Drasleona within the week. What? exclaimed Aragon. Brom slouched against the wall, the lines on his forehead deepening. It seems that Tabor has taken a few too many liberties with his power, so Galbatorix has decided to come teach him a lesson in humility. It's the first time the king has left Urubane in over ten years. Do you think he knows of us? asked Aragon. Of course he knows of us, but I'm sure he hasn't been told our location. If he had, we would already be in the Razak's grasp. However, this means that whatever we're going to do about the Razak must be accomplished before Galbatorix arrives. We don't want to be anywhere within twenty leagues of him. The one thing in our favor is that the Razak are sure to be here, preparing for his visit. I want to get the Razak, said Aragon, his fists tightening, but not if it means fighting the king. He could probably tear me to pieces. That seemed to amuse Brom. Very good. Caution. And you're right. You wouldn't stand a chance against Galbatorix. Now tell me what you learned today. It might confirm what I heard. Aragon shrugged. It was mostly drivel. But I did talk with a man who knew where the oil was taken. It's just an old warehouse. Other than that, I didn't discover anything useful. My day was a little more fruitful than yours. I heard the same thing you did, so I went to the warehouse and talked with the workers. It didn't take much cajoling before they revealed that the cases of Seether oil are always sent from the warehouse to the palace. And that's when you came back here, finished Aragon. No, it's not. Don't interrupt. After that, I went to the palace and got myself invited into the servants' quarters as a bard. For several hours I wandered about, amusing the maids and others with songs and poems, and asking questions all the while. Brom slowly filled his pipe with tobacco. It's really amazing all the things servants find out. Did you know that one of the earls has three mistresses, and they all live in the same wing of the palace? He lit the pipe. Aside from the tidbits, I was told, quite by accident, where the oil is taken from the palace. And that is? asked Aragon impatiently. Brom puffed on his pipe and blew a smoke ring. Out of the city, of course. Every full moon, two slaves are sent to the base of Helgrind with a month's worth of provisions. Whenever the Seether oil arrives in Drasleona, they send it along with the provisions. The slaves are never seen again, and the one time someone followed them, he disappeared too. I thought the riders demolished the slave trade, said Aragon. Unfortunately, it has flourished under the king's reign. So the Razak are in Helgrind, said Aragon, thinking of the rock mountain. There or somewhere nearby. If they are in Helgrind, they'll either be at the bottom, and protected by a thick stone door, or higher up where only their flying mounts or Sephira can reach. 
top or bottom, their shelter will no doubt be disguised. He thought for a moment. If Safira and I go flying around Helgrind, the Razak are sure to see us, not to mention all of Drasleona. It is a problem, agreed Brom. Aragon frowned. What if we took the place of the two slaves? The full moon isn't far off. It would give us a perfect opportunity to get close to the Razak. Brom tugged his beard thoughtfully. That's chancy at best. If the slaves are killed from a distance, we'll be in trouble. We can't harm the Razak if they aren't in sight. We don't know if the slaves are killed at all, Aragon pointed out. I'm sure they are, said Brom, his face grave. Then his eyes sparkled, and he blew another smoke ring. Still, it's an intriguing idea. If it were done with Sephira hidden nearby and a... His voice trailed off. It might work, but we'll have to move quickly. With the king coming, there isn't much time. Should we go to Helgrind and look around? It would be good to see the land in daylight, so we won't be surprised by any ambushes, said Aragon. Brom fingered his staff. That can be done later. Tomorrow I'll return to the palace and figure out how we can replace the slaves. I have to be careful not to arouse suspicion, though. I could easily be revealed by spies and courtiers who know about the Razak. I can't believe it. We actually found them, said Aragon quietly. An image of his dead uncle and burned farm flashed through his mind. His jaw tightened. The toughest part is yet to come. But yes, we've done well, said Brom. If fortune smiles on us, you may soon have your revenge, and the Varden will be rid of a dangerous enemy. What comes after that will be up to you. Aragon opened his mind and jubilantly told Sephira, We found the Razak's lair! Well... He quickly explained what they had discovered. Hellgrind, she mused. A fitting place for them. Aragon agreed. When we're done here, maybe we could visit Carvajal. What is it you want? She asked, suddenly sour. To go back to your previous life? You know that won't happen, so stop mooning after it. At a certain point you have to decide what to commit to. Will you hide for the rest of your life, or will you help the Varden? Those are the only options left to you, unless you join forces with Galbatorix, which I do not and never will accept. Softly, he said, If I must choose, I cast my fate with the Varden, as you well know. Yes, but sometimes you have to hear yourself say it. She left him to ponder her words.